Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And, of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. Or if you just want to give us a five-star rating on iTunes without a full review, that's totally fine, too. All right, so we have come to the Backlash slash Monday Night Raw mega episode. And, of course, as is the custom for pay-per-views, I had to bring in a special guest. Joining the Raw Attitude Podcast for the third time, he is the host of the WrestleMania Salvation Podcast, and he is none other than Sal. And Sal, would you care to remind the fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast what WrestleMania Salvation is all about? Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me on again, Henry. It's always a pleasure. Of course. We're talking about the Attitude Era of the WWF. Uh, The WrestleMania Salvation Podcast is part of the Rundown Wrestling Network where I chronologically go through every single WrestleMania, sometimes with a guest, sometimes solo, and review in detail what made that WrestleMania great, what made it memorable, and what made it absolutely awful. WrestleMania 28 was just released on the feed back on July 1st, and coming up, when this episode drops, it will probably already be available, I'll be taking on WrestleMania 29, one of the worst WrestleManias of all time. Oh, yes. However, I make it fun, regardless, even if it's bad. In fact, if it's bad, it might actually be more funny. So, we make it work, much like you do here at the Raw The Two Podcast. Yeah, and we can get into whether or not Backlash falls into that category, I suppose, in just a little bit. It was definitely memorable, I'll say that. It was, it, was. it certainly was. And actually, before we begin, Sal, I also want to quickly take a, just a second to recommend a book. Um, I've spoken with you about this book. It's called Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW by Guy Evans. Wait, is that the whole title? That's the whole title, yeah. <laughs> it's a long title. It's a lengthy title. You can just call it Nitro for short. But yeah, the book came out in 2018, and I actually had never even heard of it until recently. But it sounded interesting, so I bought it off Amazon, and I'll just say that I'm pretty glad I did. I mean, for me, the obvious comparison for the book is The Death of WCW by R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez. But whereas that book is more kind of like quirky and opinionated, Nitro is more of like a straightforward retelling of all the events leading up to the end of WCW. And the author actually conducts quite a few interviews with a bunch of people who were involved with the company, probably most notably Eric Bischoff. And the book's almost 600 pages, so if you thought that everything WCW-related had already been covered, I assure you, it has not. So, big thumbs up there for Nitro by Guy Evans. If I may, did Guy Evans take the time to interview Kevin Nash? He did. He he does have some audio, or some, uh, some, he has some sound bites from Kevin Nash, I should say. I'm I'm, I'm intrigued with the possibilities with Kevin Nash said in this book. Yeah, yeah, he, he gets in there a little bit. 
And uh, also I have one more quick note before I begin here, Sal. And I shared this with you already, but I feel that I should let the listeners know too. So I actually sent out a complimentary tweet to Vince Russo based on some of the booking he did for the episode of Raw that we'll cover in a little bit. And because of that, I'm proud to say that Vince Russo now follows me on Twitter. I don't know if he'll swerve me and then block me shortly thereafter, but as of right now, Vince Russo is indeed following at Raw Attitude Pod. Now, Sal, should I go ahead and say that I should wear that as a badge of honor, bro? Well, I think it's a late follow. I think Vince Russo's been a listener since day one. (laughs) Yeah, it probably has been. I mean, where do you think he gets all his ideas from? Clearly, yeah. I mean, I have been critical of him on this podcast quite a bit, but based on, you know, the events of what happens on Raw, I was like, you know what, I'm going to give him some props here on Twitter, and like, immediately he followed me back and retweeted my tweet, so so he is now a loyal, I assume, listener. If he wasn't before, he, he now is for certain. So anyway, with that being said, Sal, are you ready to get into Backlash? Are you ready? Oh, wait, that guy's not on DX anymore, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, I am ready. Okay, good. But But of course... Before we get into Backlash, we do have an episode of Sunday Night Heat to cover, so let's jump right into that. And when the show begins, the very first thing we see is a graphic saying, In memory of Rick Rude, 1958 to 1999. Yes, unfortunately, Rude actually does end up dying five days before this pay-per-view at the far too young age of 40 years old due to an overdose of mixed medications. And Sal, I couldn't help but think of the episode of Raw, which aired just three weeks before this show, where Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler went on that lengthy tirade about how Outside the Lines did a quote-unquote hatchet job on the WWF, because one of the main focuses on their piece was about wrestler deaths. And here we are three weeks later, and Rick Rude is dead at age 40. But obviously that was just unfair biased reporting. I mean, clearly, clearly. Clearly. I gotta tell you, the second I turned this on, I instantly got sad. I'm like, really? This is how we're gonna stop this tonight? Can can I make you a little bit sadder for a second here? Sure. So in case you want to be depressed even further, Rick Rude died on April 20th, 1999, which is, of course, the exact same day as the Columbine school shooting. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, so we're after a pretty uplifting start here, huh, Sal? Yeah, way way to kick things off. By the way, more on that later, because that does impact something that happens on this show. But moving on. After the Rick Rude Memoriam graphic, we kick into a recap of last week's episode of Monday Night Raw, where The Rock held a funeral for Stone Cold Steve Austin. And by the way, is it bad timing to memorialize Rick Rude and then kick into highlights from a funeral? Yeah, you know. Yeah, timing is everything. So anyway, Stone Cold, of course, ended up interrupting the funeral by crushing The Rock's brand new Lincoln Continental with his monster truck. Then he drove the truck into the arena and crushed a hearse for good measure. Austin then threw The Rock into an open grave and celebrated by holding up the smoking skull belt, at which point Shane McMahon snuck up on him and smacked him in the back with a shovel. And that provides a fitting recap for tonight's main event at Backlash, Stone Cold defending his WWF title against The Rock with Shane McMahon acting as the guest referee. From there, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. And don't worry, I'll list all the noteworthy signs when we actually get into Backlash. But for now, I'm just going to dive into Sunday Night Heat. Coming to you live from Providence, Rhode Island, not far at all from Raw Attitude Podcast and WrestleMania Salvation Headquarters here in Boston. And Sal, did you happen to notice that Kevin Kelly asked a rather interesting question during that opening scanning of the crowd? Um, I, I don't recall the question he asked. I got the quote for you here. Quote, does the leader of the new era, Shane McMahon, hold all the cards as we head into Backlash? So yes, Shane was leading a, quote-unquote, new era well before that bullshit statement back in 2016. 
Oh, I, I thought Kevin Kelly just was about three years too late on the new generation. I thought that's what he was going with. Oh, fair. Well, anytime you can miss the new generation, that's probably a good thing. If I may just make a comment on the opening video. First of all, very well done video, as the WWF tends to do. Mm-hmm. But I'm watching this, and thanks to your episode from last time on the Rotted 2 podcast, the monster truck segment was obviously memorable. Great visual, seeing the truck go over the Lincoln Continental, and then the funeral uh, hearse. But for me, what, you know, I've watched wrestling, especially WWF slash WWE, for enough years that little shocks me. For me, what made this segment so good was at the very end when Shane hits him with the shovel, I didn't see it coming. Completely, completely didn't see it coming. And it's smart because back when pay-per-view was something you had to sell, you want to make the viewer want to buy the pay-per-view. If Austin is on top at the end of the night, well, yay, that's great. But if Shane hits him with that shovel, you have in the back of your mind now when Raw goes off the air, oh, shit, what's going to happen on Sunday when Shane's the special guest referee? So very well done by them at the end of Raw last week. Yeah, it's a great point because I, I forgot the Shane thing even happened. So that was a great thing to do because you know, you have you have what could easily be a feel-good moment, like you said. Like Austin standing tall, he just got the smoking skull belt back. He knocks Rock into a grave, and he's standing tall, his music's playing. And then just out of nowhere, Shane blasts him with a shovel. So it, it's a really good point that you're making that it, like, it seems like Austin has got his belt back, but no, Shane swoops in and steals it. So going into tonight, we do have that sort of build-up going in. So they can, they'd certainly have my twenty nine ninety five. that's for sure. And they did. They did in 1999. They did have my, my twenty nine ninety five. Well, I will freely admit I purchased WrestleMania 15. The more I think about it, I don't think I purchased Backlash. Because it was so close to WrestleMania. I mean, okay, I can't ask for another one. i got to like wait for like King of the Ring. So. Yeah, you were there like, oh, Rock versus Austin, that does nothing for me. <laughs> <laughs> more like, um, oh man, I wish. Actually, you know what? WrestleMania 19.99, I might have watched this at good times. They were having the pay-per-view. You could go to watch the pay-per-views at Good Times and Somerville back then for $3. Yes. And drink yourself crazy even though you were 15 years old. That's right. We used to go, I think I told you before, we used to go to Hooters in Boston, the one at North Station, because that was one of the only places that would actually show the pay-per-views. I mean, um, hey, why not, right? Yeah, very, very similar to another very popular podcast that you and I enjoy. The two guys uh, who host the show also went to Hooters back in the day. So you probably know which one I'm talking about if I haven't mentioned it. But funny enough, yes, we were all there at the same time uh, at Hooters in Boston watching the pay-per-views because they were technically free. Hooters didn't charge you an admission fee, but you did have to kind of, like, order food, you know. Do you think the Hooters waitresses is hated when wrestling fans came in? Absolutely. Oh, it's the wrestling fans. 100%. <laughs> So anyway, we kick off Sunday Night Heat with D'Lo Brown and Ivory heading to the ring. So D'Lo grabs a mic and says that tonight's match was supposed to be a mixed tag team match, him and Ivory versus Val Venus and Sable, but apparently Sable has backed out due to some other Hollywood engagements, and so Val will apparently have to go it alone. But if that's the case, Sal, my first question would be, does that mean that Ivory could wrestle Val Venus because usually in the mixed tag matches, the men only wrestle the men and the women only wrestle the women. But as it turns out, we actually do get a ver- an answer on that very early on because once D'Lo hits Val with his sky-high powerbomb, he goes to the top rope, presumably to hit the frog splash. But when he does, Ivory tags D'Lo, meaning that she is now the legal man or uh, woman. So Ivory gets into the ring and she appears ready to square off with Val, but before she can do that, Nicole Bass 
runs out from backstage, and sure enough, Nicole then lifts Ivory with her patented shitty-looking chokeslam that barely gets any height. She puts one foot on Ivory's chest. Referee Teddy Long makes the count, and yes, that means that your winners of the match are Val Venus and, I guess, Nicole Bass. I mean, she got the winning pinfall, so I think we clearly have to count her as an official participant. And after the match, Nicole Bass proceeds to grab a microphone, and she then says to Val, quote, You owe me. I want your slide trombone in my brass section. And frankly, I'm not sure Nicole's sexual innuendos are quite up to par on Val's just yet. I mean, like, I guess I can understand the slide trombone as a dick metaphor since you slide your hand up and down it. But why is her vagina a brass section, exactly? Maybe if she said something like, stick your trombone right up my brass, then it'd make a little more sense. But (laughs) that's just, that's me being an armchair quarterback. And, of course, when Nicole says this, the fearful Val Venus then proceeds to run right up the ramp and head to the locker room as Nicole walks after him. So, uh, Sal, what did you think of our opening mixed tag team contest? Okay, first of all, shame on Teddy Long for counting the pinfall for a competitor that wasn't a legal participant in the match. Mm -hmm. Second of all, Nicole Bass mentions Val's slide trombone because in the opening promo, Val said something about his slide trombone. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Side note, Nicole Bass was totally a dude, right? Like, I mean, this isn't China. This is literally a person with uh, a jacked-up chin and jawline and probably looking like she could be in an action movie, and she's supposed to be a woman. I'm just not buying it. She she did look quite manly. I think that was why she was kind of like on the Howard Stern show in the first place, because it was basically like, here's, here's your six-foot-three female bodybuilder who looks manly and... And obviously, being on the Howard Stern show, that that's what endeared her to the aforementioned Vince Rousseau. In the 90s, yes, that's correct. But the other thing is, too, so Nicole mentions how she wants to fuck Val, which is stomach-turning, just to say out loud. And Val runs faster than when he found out Terry was pregnant. <laughs> yeah, fair points. But yeah, the, the opening, as for a match, like this is nothing really at all. It was pretty quick. And again, Nicole Bass clearly... Not a worker. That that choke slam is is not great. And then we get a kayfabe killing moment, but I'll I'll let you talk about that. Oh, okay. This is after the match, or yes, this is uh, the next shot is of the Undertaker. Yes, walking around outside in the daylight with his robe on. Yes, Just a little. Yeah, I was actually going to touch on that because it does. You're right. We go backstage. Basically, Undertaker's walking in the door with Paul Bearer, the Acolytes, Viscera, Midian. And so, actually, if you listen to the previous episode of this podcast, you may be wondering why Taker is still associating with all these guys, since he and Viscera beat the shit out of the Acolytes last week, and Taker had also told Midian not to fail him, but later on in that same show, Midian ended up getting his ass kicked by Vince McMahon, of all people, when Midian showed up at WWF Studios on Monday. And in case you're wondering, no, none of that ends up being addressed at all tonight, aside from a quick sentence from Taker. So yeah, nice job making that a focal point throughout the entire episode of Raw leading up to this show. Well, I disagree. Taker did say, you know, your transgressions have been forgiven, but not forgotten. Right, we get to that. Yep, that's that's basically the one sentence where he mentions and it. And then the, this is the first time he mentions the higher power. That's, that's a little later on, actually. Oh, this wasn't the, okay. This wasn't the sentence. That's fine. Yep, that's on the actual backlash. We're still still on heat, but I appreciate you getting you getting ahead there because you just love backlash so much. You want to jump right into it. Clearly. But yes, after a commercial break, we get a recap of the Triple H X-Pac feud, which then takes us backstage where Jim Ross is with X-Pac, or as JR calls him, Sean, since we can't get enough of using wrestlers' real names lately. 
Why isn't it Sean Morley? Why can't we, we call Val Venus by his real name, but it's okay to call Xbox Sean? That's a fair point. Why not call Triple H Paul while he's at it, too? I mean... So that would bring the house down. Oh, yeah. So, unfortunately for Sean here, he looks straight into the camera, and it seems like he momentarily forgets what he wanted to say, because he has to pause for a bit on two separate occasions. I'll give you his exact quote. And tonight, because of that man, you're going to find out that your worst enemies are the ones that used to be your friends. Not great. Not great. I think he was reading off the teleprompter. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And so, actually, I think this is, unfortunately, the point where we're starting to go down that path where the fans begin to turn on Xbox a little bit because the guy can't cut a decent promo. And when he actually does get mic time, he'll frequently end his promos by saying, your ass is grass and I'm going to smoke it, which is eh, not a money line, to say the least. Not, not so great. And from there, we then cut elsewhere backstage where Jerry Lawler is indeed with Triple H in China, and Hunter, not surprisingly, then proceeds to cut a much better promo, although, of course, we once again have to get a little bit insidery when Triple H says that he got X-Pac over, so we're shooting again, bro. Hunter also says that X-Pac wanted to take over leadership of DX, which, it should be noted, was never an on-camera storyline, so I'm not sure what Triple H was referencing there, but okay. He then finishes by saying that he made X-Pac, and tonight, he's going to break him. And then, Sal, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Michael Cole informed us that if we send in our cable bill, we would get a free WWF Attitude hat, but not just any hat. It was basically the same one that the cat in the hat wears, only with red and black stripes instead of red and white ones. And honestly, I can see why they were giving those away for free, because I can't imagine anyone actually paying money to own one, except maybe Draws. He used to wear hats like that, but what do you think, Sal? Would you have wanted the free Attitude Era Dr. Seuss hat? I had no idea this hat existed. <laughs> for good reason. I cannot believe that this hat was a thing, and that they were giving it away to anybody who sent in their cable bill. I guarantee you they got maybe five requests. That's why they were giving them away for free. Just send in that cable bill, and there you go. Uh, real quick on Hunter. Oh, is that too inside? Uh, he used this for the first three years of his Triple H character. He even had a shirt at one point that said, Game over, damn right I'm over. I hated that shirt. And then you, you know, okay, fast forward to the current day, and, and every wrestler who has a podcast says, Oh, you fans don't know what being over means. Because everybody wants to say Roman Reigns isn't over, right? Just mm -hmm. using him as, an, him as an example. Well, gee, I wonder why we don't know what it means. Fucking Triple H brainwashed us for 13 years, shoving it in our face, going, This is over. This is over. That's over. Well, we don't fucking know. We're not fucking wrestlers. Yeah. Thanks, Hunter. Dick. <laughs> How do you really feel? How do you really feel? Stop holding back. And so after a commercial break, we then cut backstage where Nicole Bass is walking around looking for Val Venus. She says, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. So yes, Nicole Bass is on a mission to sexually assault Val Venus. I was going to say to rape him. That's what it sounded like to yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Hashtag, it was a different time. And we then go into the arena for our next match. And hey, speaking of draws, here he is teaming with that mystery man who debuted a few weeks ago. And we now know that he has a name and it is Prince Albert. Kevin Kelly tells us that Prince Albert is, quote, Draws's personal tattoo and piercing artist, and that piercing part is particularly noteworthy because in case you aren't familiar with the lingo, a Prince Albert is indeed a cock piercing. And in case you need a frame of reference, picture a big hoop earring through the head of your dick. So that's what we're dealing with here, folks. That's who he's named after. Jesus, I thought it was a barbell. 
<laughs> Sadly, I had to Google that just to be like, now what does a Prince Albert look like? And I'm, I'm not happy that I did. The one I saw was a hoop earring through the head of someone's dick. Jesus Christ. Side note, um, I fucking despise, especially at the age I'm at now, uh, full disclosure, I have tattoos, and I've had my ears pierced, and I even got my tongue pierced at one point. I don't still have my tongue piercing, but that's another story for another day. I used to hate, in the late 90s and early 2000s, that there were piercing artists, I guess you would call them, that would also be tattoo artists. That's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> you, you do not have skill in one just because you know the other. And the perfect example I can think of is there was a place called House of Pain in Everett. Yeah. Yeah, that guy actually started doing tattoos. God, I feel bad for anybody who paid that man money to do a tattoo. <laughs> He was, he was initially just... A piercer. Just a piercer, okay, and then he... Oh, man, wow. Oh, look at me, I can do tattoos. Yeah, that's gonna come out well. Yeah, I would assume, like, if you can do the tattoos, it would be the easier segue into the piercing. Yes. But, wow. But still, you should, you know. And that's why the House of Pain in Everett, Massachusetts is no longer in business. That's right, because of fucking people like that. But, yes. uh, yeah, also Draws is wearing that stupid fucking hat that we just talked about. That's I don't right. know if it's the Raw Attitude one, but it's the same style. Yeah. I wish he was wearing a Raw Attitude podcast hat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll send him one. He's still he's still around. Although not in oh, as good of shape. But yeah, I, I won't. Let's not go there. He can still wear a hat. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, I hate, I hate to say it, though. When I was doing, when I was looking, uh, when I was watching the SmackDown pilot the other day, one of the matches on the SmackDown pilot is Draws versus D'Lo Brown. So... But not that match. Not that one, thankfully, no. But I was reminded of that because I was like, oh, shit. Bad, bad times. But... Props to Draws. We love Draws here. So anyway, in addition to that wonderful name, Prince Albert, of course, his real claim to fame is his ridiculously hairy upper body, which will lead to many shave-your-back chants in the future. And honestly, though, if you're a tattoo artist who presumably has quite a few yourself, wouldn't you want to be clean-shaven so that people can see your tattoos? I mean, that's just a thought. Just a thought. Well, <laughs> um... I mean, he had an easy gimmick change, though. All he had to do was shave off all the, all the hair and put fake tattoos on himself, and then he can call himself Lord Tenzai. Yeah, that's true. Oh, he's playing the long game. 13 years later. 13 years in the making. I'm going to shave off all my hair, and nobody's going to remember me. Genius. So, anyway, tonight, Draws and Prince Albert are taking on the team of Too Much, Brian Christopher, and Scott Taylor. And Sal, of particular note here, is the fact that Too Much are dancing before the match, and we see Scott Taylor... Do the worm. And you know what? He's pretty good at it. I feel like you should maybe make that a thing in the future. Maybe about, you know, like six months or so from now. Just a thought. Just a thought. Given where this team is on the card in 99, can you believe where they got to in 01 and 02? Yeah, it's it's pretty insane. That that makeover that they give themselves is only about, I think only about less than two months away at this point. So it's, it's coming. Uh, I mean, they don't exactly get, you know, a lot of on-camera time initially. It takes them a little while. But, uh, yeah, that, that turnabout, I think, is coming in June. I was say initially, no, but eventually... Oh, absolutely. It did get over, so... Big time. And so we get underway with our heel-versus-heel tag match, because, you know, who wants to actually root for someone when we can get shoulder-shrugging indifference instead? Now, fun fact for here, Sal. The referee of this match is Tim White, and tonight we're in Providence, near his hometown of Cumberland, Rhode Island. And spoiler for future episodes of this podcast, Tim White actually owns a bar called The Friendly Tap in Cumberland, and the bar makes an appearance on several episodes of WWE programming in the future, most notably at another Providence pay-per-view, Armageddon 2005, where Tim White is at The Friendly Tap, and he takes out a shotgun... We then hear the sound of a gunshot off-camera because he has apparently killed himself live on the air. And that show, by the way, took place 
one month after Eddie Guerrero's death. Thank you very much. But thankfully, the WWE then learned from that mistake and dropped the angle entirely, and they certainly did not then air 15 more vignettes on WWE.com, where he kept trying to kill himself. No, that certainly did not happen. But I actually have one more fun fact for you here, Sal. That same Providence pay-per-view where Tim White pulled out the shotgun is also the one where Bob Orton, who had hepatitis C, did a blade job and bled all over The Undertaker. So I guess what I'm saying is Armageddon 2005, not a high point for the company. Mm, no. <laughs> no. But sorry, that was quick diversion there. So where were we? Oh, that's right, yes. Draws and Prince Albert versus Too Much. Now, Sal, as you know, I've appeared on the Nitromania podcast several times, the podcast where friend of the show Adam covers Monday Nitro, and I frequently mocked Lex Luger for literally yelling every time he sells or even delivers a move. Well, if you enjoy Luger's selling, I've got some good news for you, because Prince Albert does the same goddamn thing during this match. Did you happen to notice that as well? He did, but he was not the most vocal person who sold on this night. We'll get to that on the main card, but yes, Prince Albert was a little bit vocal today. Oh, good, I'm looking forward to hearing that. But actually, just to prove my point, I actually did go ahead and make a compilation of Albert's shout-selling from this match, so let's take a listen. Prince Albert now hammering away on one side, and there's Roz working on Scott Taylor on the other. A tag team matchup, folks, clock's ticking. What will that have on Stone Cold and The Rock tonight? Oh, what a double team by Too Much. Taylor now with a right hand blocked by Draws. Too Much is going to have the experience advantage, but there's no way they can match up to the power of Draws and Prince Albert, who is just an absolute mountain. Looks like he goes about 330 pounds. Draws 285. Oh. There goes Brian Christopher sailing over the top rope. Prince Albert misses, but look at the oh, strength boy. now of this 300-pounder. So remember, folks, if you yell every time something happens during a match, you too can remain employed by the WWE 20 years later. Let that be a lesson to you. But anyway, as for the match, it's over in about a minute, and our finish comes when Albert picks Scott Taylor up above his head, and basically picture someone delivering a press slam and then dropping to his ass when he does it, and you've kind of got the visual. Not sure if that finisher ends up sticking, but I guess we'll see in the coming weeks. So anyway, Albert pins Taylor, suicidal hometown referee Tim White makes the count, and that is enough to give the victory to Draws and Prince Albert. And after the match... Draws and Albert start beating on Brian Christopher, and Draws then puts Christopher into a half-Nelson, and while he's doing that, Albert pulls out a large needle and walks toward Christopher, apparently to pierce his nipple live on the air, but thankfully, the lights go out. And when they come back on, we see the Ministry of Darkness running toward the ring, with The Undertaker and Paul Bearer slowly walking behind them. Draws and Albert get the hell out of Dodge, so that leaves too much alone in the ring, surrounded by Ministry members. And as you might expect, the Ministry quickly beats their asses and tosses them out of the ring, and Paul Bearer then holds up a microphone for The Undertaker to speak into. The Undertaker says that he will defeat Ken Shamrock tonight at Backlash, but in addition to that, quote, A most horrible tragedy will occur here tonight. To which I say, no, Taker, that would be next month's pay-per-view, but we'll get there soon enough. <laughs> so, so yes, Taker is promising that something awful will happen tonight, aside from the entire undercard of the pay-per-view. But, Sal, what did you think of Draws and Albert versus Too Much and the subsequent interruption by the Ministry of Darkness? What the absolute fuck? Were they really teasing Prince Albert was going to pierce Brian Christopher? I mean, come on! What the f I get it, he's a piercer. That's, that's not a thing. You're not going to pierce somebody live in the air. I don't care how big you make the needle, how comically big you make the needle, and I don't care how close you get to actually showing it on TV. That's a fucking 
dumb angle. Well, wait a second. Do you think it would have been a good rib if the ministry, like, you know, took their time on the entrance so, like, Albert had to stand there with with the needle being like, should I, should I do it? Or I'm going yeah. to do it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it this time. Yeah. Uh, and then, I think, God, the ministry showed up. I didn't think I would say that. <laughs> but, yeah, they just beat the shit out of too much. And meanwhile, Albert and Draws are like, what? We're getting out of here. Those guys are evil. Yeah, probably the right call. Yeah, I, I, I suppose. Speaking of, and, and I hate to make this the theme. As you know, I am the WrestleMania guy. I remember WrestleMania 15, not only when I did it on my podcast, but when you recently covered it with William Rankin on this show. And we had talked about Vince Russo and the crazy angles he comes up with or his overbookingness of things. But what I don't understand is you have this whole Ministry of Darkness campaign, and the premise is that Undertaker is believing his own character. Right. Why would you point that out on television? <laughs> yeah, I, I have no idea. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll ask... Just call him Mark next time. I mean... Oh, they, they did do that. Oh, fuck. They've done that as well. Ken Shermark has called him Mark on numerous occasions, and uh, I think both Vince McMahon and Stephanie McMahon called him Mark when they did that sit-down interview with Jerry Lawler. Are you sure they weren't saying he was a Mark for himself, maybe? Well, well, that's true, too. But uh, I, I, far be it for me to criticize friend of the show Vince Russo. I mean, he's, uh, yeah. as a loyal follower, I, I don't want to be smart his good name. But, yeah, in terms of the match, did you enjoy the match? It was not much to it, really. It was pretty quick. Not much to it at all. I, I enjoyed, like you said... We're, we're seeing the beginnings of where too much would end up. But as far as Draws and Albert, I mean, Draws and Albert was never really a tag team of remembrance. The the tag team of memory would come when Test would join Albert, oh. and they got a certain manager to come with them. So you know. Yeah, I think she was the most memorable part of that tag team, quite frankly. Definitely wasn't Andrew Martin, but anyway. Yeah. So after commercial, we then see footage from During the Break, where Nicole Bass is still looking for Val Venus, saying, quote, the more you hide, the hotter I get. What? <laughs> she then barges into a men's room and boots down one of the stall doors where someone is taking a shit, but alas, it isn't her intended target. And we then go back live where we see Val grabbing his luggage and wheeling it out of the arena because he's so desperate to escape the sexual assault which is surely coming to him. I repeat, it was a different time. And we then go back inside the arena for our next match. One half of the WWF Tag Team Champions, Kane, versus the Big Boss Man, who is accompanied by Test. And as soon as the match starts, we immediately get loud, Boss Man sucks chants. Now, I'm not sure if that's because he's a good heel, or if it's more of a case of X-Pac heat, but at least he's getting a reaction, I suppose. And this turned out to be another short match, as you could probably expect. The finish came when Boss Man was taking it to Kane, but for some reason, Test stood up on the ring apron, Bossman then went to Irish whip Kane over toward him, but Kane reversed it, sending Bossman crashing into Test. From there, Kane grabbed Bossman by the throat, picked him up, and nailed him with a choke slam. Referee Mike Kyoto made the count, and that was enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of the match is Kane. And after the match ended, we quickly cut backstage, where an irate Shane McMahon could be seen watching the monitor in his dressing room. He threw his water bottle across the room and angrily yelled, How many rookie mistakes are you going to make? Seemingly blaming Test for the boss man's loss. So, Sal, what did you think of Kane versus the big boss man? Hey, boss man, we're going to put you in a noose live <laughs> in WrestleMania, okay? I know this doesn't sound appealing, but trust me, it's going to be the most memorable segment on the card, and then the next month you'll be on the pre-show and you'll face Kane. 
Is that okay? Is that cool? Yeah? I'll pay you. All right, cool. You'll be, you'll be facing the brother of the guy that hung you. Yeah. And it will have nothing to do with that story whatsoever. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and then, if, fucking Shane. Like, ooh, how many rookie mistakes are you going to make? Uh, gee, I don't know. He's only... He was a bodyguard for the first however many years of his adult life, and he's only been wrestling for like six months. What the fuck, Shane? Lord knows you weren't good for the first six years of your career. Yeah. Still isn't, but anyway. He's not great now. I actually do like him in this uh, in this heel role, taking over as the uh, the leader of the corporation. But uh, yeah, kind of. But we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, but but present day Shane McMahon is uh, from what I'm from what I'm told. Obviously, I'm not a very avid watcher of the current product, but I'm told he's kind of worn out his welcome on the uh, on the on the modern day product. There was a week where he got just about 120 minutes of television time between Raw and SmackDown. Jeez. And you want it to be more, is what you're saying? No. <laughs> I don't, skip. I heard that, though. I, I did hear that. I mean, hey, you know? Boss's son. He's got to make up for the time he was gone from the company for seven years. Exactly. We were so excited to have him back when he came back, too. Alas. Alas. So after a commercial break, we went back inside the arena where the boss man and Test are still in the ring, shoving each other back and forth. And as it turns out, they're still there because Test now has a match against Viscera, Hey, what do you know? Another heel versus heel match. How wonderful. And once Big Vis comes out from backstage, Test and Bossman stop getting in each other's faces, Bossman exits the ring, and our match begins. And yet again, we have another quick match here, mercifully so because it involves Viscera, who is kind of just fat and useless at this point. The finish came when Test went to Irish whip Viscera off the ropes, but Big Vis reversed it, and then the Bossman hit Test in the back of the head, with his nightstick. And it should be noted, this was not an accident, like when Bossman mistakenly collided with Test in the last match. This was quite clearly Bossman trying to hurt his fellow corporation member on purpose. And from there, Viscera nailed Test with a pile driver. Referee Jimmy Corderas made the count. And miraculously, Viscera actually won a match. So yes, it appears that the rough stretch for Test is continuing. Two weeks ago, Triple H threw him into the ring, only for Test to take a tombstone from Kane. Then last week, Triple H pushed Test from behind, sending him right into a chokeslam from the Big Show. And tonight, the Big Boss Man has now smacked Test with his nightstick, completely giving up any pretense that it could have been an accident. So you've got to wonder where that leaves him in the corporation. And after a commercial break, we cut backstage where Test and the Boss Man are trying to go after each other, but Shane McMahon is standing between them. As if Shane didn't have enough on his plate, being the referee for the main event tonight, now he has to mediate a conflict within his own corporation. So, busy times for the boy wonder. But anyway, Sal, what did you think of Test versus Viscera? Holy shit, Viscera got a win at a pay-per-view? Yeah. <laughs> oh my fucking god, Big Viss. That's what's up. Technically the pre-show. Well... Still got a paycheck. I, I guess they're setting up something with Test here that he keeps fucking up and they're getting sick of it. But I'm pretty sure I know what it leads to, yes. and I don't like that either. So that's on the next episode of Raw, I do believe. So you know, it, it was what it was. A lot of a lot of really quick matches on MTV tonight at this hour. Yeah, they're all very short, kind of just angle advancement. It seems. As, as, you know, as probably would be expected from, from the WWF at this point. And so, after a commercial break, we get a recap of the amazing buildup over the past few weeks for the Stone Cold Rock feud. And then, after another break, we go back into the arena where your new leader of the corporation, Shane McMahon, is heading to the ring. Before you get there. Sure, yeah. They labeled part of the build 
as the rescue of the week. Yes, was it sponsored by the Coast Guard? Yes, with in in this the clip they showed was Austin throwing the IC title into the Merrimack River about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. How is that a rescue? Well, the coast the Coast Guard had to, to go into the, the water title. and bring the title out. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, continue. Sure. I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. I'm just saying. So apparently Shane has a big announcement in store for us, so let's take a listen to what he has to say. Tonight is the dawning of a new era. It's the Shane McMahon 2000 and all Grow brawl. Let me tell you one thing. 
I have been with The Rock day in and day out, and he is quite upset with you that you crushed his $37,000 Lincoln Town car. Stone Cold tonight in this very ring. It's going to be the Brahma Bull taking on the Rattlesnake, and I will not be dressed like this, oh no. I'll be wearing the black and the white, the pinstripes. And I will be counting one, two, three. Anything goes. And let me tell you, what we've seen in the past between the Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin, it's going to be electric here this evening. Waving the disqualification rule. If Austin even gets near Shane, Shane will throw it out and award the title to The Rock, folks. You One heard it here. Thing. Remember, anything goes in this pay-per-view spectacular match. The WWF Championship will once again become corporate property. So Shane McMahon, no holds barred title match tonight. Disqualification, the title can change hands. Rumble arriving here at the Providence Civic Center. It's Vince! Vince McMahon is here! Vince is here! Austin Rock title, what's going to happen at Backlash? So there you have it. Shane is making tonight's Stone Cold Rock main event a no-holds-barred match, although shortly after that he then says that he will disqualify Austin if he puts his hands on him. And Sal, when Shane said that, I couldn't help but think of Nitromania podcast host Adam, who always goes to great pains to point out that no holds barred does not mean no disqualifications, but rather that only previously illegal holds are now allowed. So essentially, you can choke someone, but hitting him with a chair should still be illegal. Basically, I feel like this stipulation was made just for Adam, a no holds barred match where disqualifications are also in play. And not only that, but apparently the title can change hands via disqualification as well, so it's province of Quebec rules too, I guess. And then, as you heard at the very end of the clip there, we saw a limousine pull up backstage, and yes, Vince and Stephanie McMahon proceeded to emerge from it. So unfortunately for Shane, his father, the man who he stole the corporate leadership from a few weeks ago, will be in the house for backlash. And surprisingly, for the very first time in the duration of this podcast, Vince McMahon gets a noticeable face pop from the crowd. Truly, the tide has turned. But anyway, that visual of Vince and Stephanie exiting the limo is how heat goes off the air. So, Sal, what did you think of Shane's promo and the arrival of his father and sister? Shane's promo was good. I saw that no DQ step a mile away. Yeah, that seems to be a recurring thing. I did not realize he was going to add the if... Austin puts his hands on me, I'll disqualify him and award Rock the title. That was an interesting twist. But my heart sank when Vince got that pop. Oh, that fucking heel heat right out the window. What the fuck? They're trying to turn him face. Uh, Spoiler, it won't work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know what you're talking about. I I think Vince McMahon has a lengthy, lengthy face run coming up here. That's for sure. (laughs) <laughs> well, hey, on Backlash, he gets a good, a good amount of time to shine at the actual Backlash show, but I suppose we'll, we'll get into that in just a little bit. But on that note, before we get into Backlash, I should inform you that this episode of Sunday Night Heat did a very solid 4.0 in the ratings, although that is surprisingly down from last week's 4.1. 
So I always assumed that these pre-pay-per-view episodes of Heat would do much higher ratings than usual, but no, that is not always the case. Go figure. But so with that being said, Sal, are you ready to get into Backlash? Oh, yes, I am. Then let's do it. It is Sunday, April 25th, 1999, and we are live from the Providence Civic Center in Providence, Rhode Island, now called the Dunkin' Donuts Center in the present day, because what could possibly be more New England than that? Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include 12 episodes of Raw, 13 episodes of SmackDown, and a fair number of pay-per-views as well, including the 1994 Royal Rumble, King of the Ring 97, the aforementioned Armageddon 2005 with Tim White killing himself and Bob Wharton's hepatitis, and finally, another backlash actually took place in this same venue, Backlash 2009. Sal, bonus points to you if you can remember the main event from Backlash 2009. I'm going to take a stab in the dark. I'm going to say John Cena versus Randy Orton. Oh, you're half right. Because <laughs> it was always John Cena versus Randy Orton. You are half right. It was Edge beating John Cena in a last man standing match to win the World Heavyweight Championship. I think the one where Big Show throws Cena through the light, the spotlight. By the way, also, great reviews for Backlash 2009. That was also the show where Chris Jericho faced Ricky Steamboat one-on-one. Oh, okay, so we're coming out of WrestleMania... Um, 25, I think. 25, yes, yes. Yep, yeah, that, I think people tend to forget that, but Steamboat and Jericho did have a one-on-one match after, the, uh, after Steamboat basically fucking found the fountain of youth at WrestleMania 25. I heard they were going to give him a little bit of a run, and sadly, right after that, he had a stroke. Oh, man. That, that would have been nice if they did, because he still looked like he could go. And I think his match, actually, at Backlash 09 against Jericho is pretty good, too. Yeah, he, he could still go. He got a huge pop. He knew how, obviously, Steamboat knows how to work a match. It just... Man, the things they could have did with Ricky Steamboat in 2009. I know. I think he, he, he actually got involved with the Nexus, I think, in 2010, too, right? They, they jumped him at some point. Yeah. Uh, fun fact, by the way, about the Providence Civic Center and what is now the Dunkin' Donuts Center. You mentioned they had held the Royal Rumble of 1994 at this event. I vividly remember that Royal Rumble because it was probably the second or third event that I had gotten live on pay-per-view. And in that event, I remember that my father would walk by occasionally and make a comment how wrestling was fake. Yeah, and one of the times he did this, he witnessed... The Undertaker, or actually he witnessed Marty Jannetty on strings being hoisted up through the (laughs) rafters of the arena, and he gave me a look where he rolled his eyes, and I just went, I I, I can't defend that one. I got nothing. (laughs) Oh my god, yeah, that was was bad. Well, did you enjoy the finish of uh, Luger and Bret Hart hitting the floor at the same time? Fuck no, because (laughs) I just wanted to know who won the Royal Rumble. Exactly. And it was like 15 minutes, and they will not. They would not say who won the Royal Rumble. And I'm like, just fucking say it! Yeah. Here's a fucking tie, because that'll send everybody home happy. Ugh. Just, ugh. Uh, it's funny you mentioned the Quebecers. They were at that show defending the belts against the Hart Brothers. Oh, yes, I remember. That's the infamous, I kicked your leg out of your leg, <laughs> promo. <laughs> but at least, at least that set up an amazing match at WrestleMania 10, so that's okay. Fair. Absolutely. And an amazing SummerSlam main event. That's, oh, yeah, that's true. Great one. Steel Cage match. And actually, while we're on the topic of Backlash, the show we're covering tonight, Backlash 99, is the first ever version of the Backlash pay-per-view, which lasted all the way up until 2018, although it was discontinued between 2010 and 2015 for some reason. But also of note, the full title for this show is actually Backlash In Your House. And why do I bring that up? Because this show is actually the 28th and final pay-per-view ever to have the In Your House name attached to it. 
After this, all the pay-per-views simply have standalone names, and In Your House is no more. So, Sal, are you sad to see In Your House go away? I actually just had a conversation on a recent podcast that I did about In Your House, and there are In Your Houses like Beware of Dog, but then there are In Your Houses like Canadian Stampede, mm-hmm. which we tend to forget about, which had the you know the Heart Foundation against the five Americans, for lack of a better term, and the Heart Foundation in Canada were over like crazy in in Calgary and got a earth-shattering pop when they came out. Great show. So much so that the camera started shaking back and forth because that's how loud Calgary was for them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I also remember Mind Games being a pretty good one, too. Mind Games was a good one, yeah. Or at least the main event was good. The original In Your House concept was great. I mean, I remember being a kid being like, oh, my God, I want to win a house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. I don't know whatever happened to that guy who got the house. I mean, for all we know, the thing was infested with mold, but... <laughs> I think that's a fair bet, for sure. Knowing WWF, it was probably in Florida on wetland. Yeah. <laughs> Sinkholes for everyone. You get it for free, and then you sell it for 200 bucks. <laughs> and so we immediately kick things off with one of those hype videos with movie trailer voice guy. Love that guy. Oh, well, in fact, he even manages to drop the phrase, in a world, into the video at the end. So what the hell? You know what? I'm actually going to go ahead and play it for you right here. It might seem that tonight's epic encounter is simply a battle between two uniquely divergent superstars. The WWF champion, unpredictable and defiant. The so-called people's champion, arrogant yet refined. Two distinct individuals whose only common bond is the mutual contempt they harbor for each other. But like life, nothing of consequence is ever black and white. Tonight is really about two athletes more similar than not. Two men blessed with charisma, youth, and an undying heart. Two supernovas burning brightest amidst an infinite galaxy of stars. Like two heirs to a single throne, two reverent knights courting the fair princess, they are two men deserving what only one can have. Two fearless warriors of courage and distinction. Two men who have sacrificed their bodies and gutted their souls for the opportunity to glow ever so briefly in the fleeting light of fame. Tonight, only one man can walk away the victor. Only one man can raise the coveted grail. Two men, both worthy sovereigns in a world that can be ruled by only one. Great stuff there, as always, but I couldn't help but get a chuckle that movie trailer guy comparing Stone Cold and Rock's quest for the title to two reverent knights courting the fair princess. Bit of a reach if you ask me, but hey, what do I know? So from there, we queue up the pyro and, of course, the obligatory scanning of the crowd. And yes, there were a ton of noteworthy signs in the audience tonight. So will you indulge me for a moment, Sal, while I list off a few of them? Of course. All right, so let's see. I heart nudity. The kid behind me can't see... There's nothing bad about Billy Gunn's ass. Suck my sock. Deborah, I'll adopt your puppies. I shower with ivory. Hey, JR, keep a stiff upper lip. Paul Bearer collects chins. Less sable, more meanie. Vince, sign me to a contract with the dude's phone number on the sign. The Rock's cooking gives me the Rudy poos. 
Thanks for the lap dance, Club Fantasies. And yes, I looked it up, and Club Fantasies is indeed a strip club right there in Providence. Chuck's ass stinks. D'Lo fears New Jack. Nice tits. Billy Gunn tosses salad. We want to pull a train on the hose. Little Debbie, show us your tasty cakes. Pickles give me a rash. And the rather creepy sign, there's nothing finer than Deborah's vagina. Gross. So, Sal, were there any you noticed that I happened to miss? I noticed a few, but you picked up on the eye shower with ivory, which is great because of the ivory soap, if anybody's unaware. I picked up on the rocks, cooking gave me the Rudy Poos, and suck my sock. I had two that you didn't mention. Oh, well. One, very tame, but I thought very simple. The Rock stinks. I thought that was, hey, you know. Fair. For all the vulgarity, that one got the point across. <laughs> and there was a sign directly behind commentary, obviously calling out an adolescent Dave Batista for something he was telling his friends at school. It said, Dave never slammed me. Oh, I saw that one, yeah. I want a backstory on that. I do want to get a backstory on that. Dave, stop telling your friends you slammed her. You just did it. Exactly. Oh, you think it was a sexual thing, not a uh, scoop slam? Oh, yes. I, I, I instantly thought it was Dave went to his buddies in high school and said, hey, I had my way with that girl the other night. Okay. I assumed it was like like an Andre the Giant situation with like some big fat dude in the crowd being like, Dave never slammed me, no matter what he said. That one probably makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> some local independent wrestler, I guess. And from there, we go directly into our first match of the evening, and it is a six-man tag team match. The Brood, sadly, without their usual Ring of Fire entrance, versus Ministry of Darkness members, the Acolytes, and Midian, whose name is once again misspelled as M-I-D-I-A-N on his on-screen graphic. And Sunday Night Heat just ended, but this match could probably be classified as Sunday Night No Heat, because truthfully, the crowd didn't really seem to care too much about this one in the early going, outside of a brief Midian sucks chant. In fairness, though... Very true. Very quickly, uh, you mentioned there was no Ring of Fire entrance. Very disappointed. However, I'm sure it's very difficult to get the approval to include fire in your entrance from the fire marshal in Providence. Oh, I mean, this is Providence. We're not talking some pissant town like Warwick. Yeah. Oh, too soon, too soon. <laughs> in this case, four years too soon, because that's when that happens. But Also, why does Midian, maybe you can explain this to me, why does Midian have an eyeball in the jar? Yeah, I have, I have no clue. It's just been kind of his thing since he came back. Like, he has an eyeball on his shirt, and I think he's got, like, an eyeball tattoo somewhere also. But, yeah, it's never really explained, necessarily. But, actually, on the note of Midian, I did, you know, I did mention the Midian sucks chant, but he did somehow manage to bust out a very nice British Bulldog-esque stalling suplex at one point. I, I didn't know he had that in his arsenal, so good for him. I thought maybe that could have actually been a tribute to Davy Boy Smith, who, as I've been mentioning in previous episodes, is currently laid up in a hospital in Calgary, but I'm not sure if they even knew each other. So anyway, Edge played the goth in peril for most of the match before he finally made the tag to Christian. The pace started to pick up here with members of both teams brawling in and around the ring, culminating with Christian leaping over the top rope, only to be caught by Farouk on the floor, but then Edge hit a baseball slide to Christian's back, knocking him down on top of Farouk. Nice spot. It looked like the brood was in control, but then, out of nowhere, Viscera waddled his way out from backstage and splashed Christian from behind, sandwiching him into the side of the ring, behind referee Teddy Long's back. Viscera then rolled Christian into the ring, where Bradshaw proceeded to nail him with a clothesline from hell. He made the cover, and that was enough to score the one, the two, 
and the three, your winners of the match, the Ministry of Darkness, in just under 12 minutes. So despite the fact that the Ministry were made to look like complete fools last week on Raw, tonight they score a victory over the group of younger guys who could really use the push after having just broken away from them. Okay then. So Sal, what did you think of our opening contest here? Surprisingly, it wasn't bad. All six guys can work. Obviously, Edge and Christian can work, but Farouk and Bradshaw can, can work. You know, we know Ron Simmons knows how to fucking put together a match. I thought they did some decent work getting heat on Edge, throughout, like you said, throughout the match. There was a couple spots when the Brood uh, got the hot tag that they were doing the almost a poetry motion, yeah. but instead of a, you know, tossing themselves into the, their opponent sideways, it was almost like a, a splash, which proves that the Hardys copied Edge and Christian, not the other way around. <laughs> I actually thought I bought in when Christian hit the Tornado DDT on Bradshaw that I thought he was going to get the pin. Yeah. And then, you know, Fat Albert came down and ruined the match. <laughs> so, that, it was a little surprising that the ministry jobbers, who literally got me to look like shit last week on Raw, would go over tonight. I know we briefly touched on it about uh, Midian showing up at WWE Studios on Raw last week. And getting the shit kicked out of him by Vince McMahon. Vince throwing haymakers at Midian like he was fucking Evander Holyfield. And then almost murdering him with his car. Yes, and then almost running or cutting Midian in half yes. uh, with his car, which would have been interesting. Yes. Yeah, Midian, one of your active wrestlers getting his ass kicked by a 53-year-old man. Easily. And easily. Yeah. Yeah. Easily. That's the other thing. Let's not forget. Easily. And yeah, you did mention that uh, Visceron Taker beat up the Acolytes, which made no fucking goddamn sense, because apparently now everything's fine. Yeah, that's all good. That's all good. I kind of understand why they did that, I guess, because of where we're going on Raw. They want to make the Ministry look a little bit stronger. But if you knew, I, I, this probably proves that they're booking week to week, because if your whole goal was to get to what we get to on Raw, you probably don't make the Ministry look like complete failures one week in advance and then try to undo it at Backlash, I would assume. So, so I guess that's what I would assume their logic is. But really, again, the Brood literally just broke away from the Ministry two weeks ago, and you have them job on pay-per-view. So I, I think I think Edge and Christian will be okay. Yes, yeah. Oh, just wait till uh, just wait till the pilot episode of SmackDown where the Brood speaks for the first time, and then you definitely see uh, you you find out which member of the group is going to be a star and which one is not. After that, let's just let's just say that. Obviously, Gangrel. Yes, it is exactly. So from there, we move on to our next match, and it is for the WWF Hardcore Championship. You missed something. Oh, did I? Yes, we get a backstage shot of the Great One showing up. Oh, yeah. Literally, at 8.10, he shows up. Hey, hey, Rock, call time was 2 p.m., you jackass. That's a good point. I usually, like, leave out those parts where people arrive, but that's actually a good point that the Rock showing up, yeah, at least at least 10 or 15 minutes into the show. Well, he, he knows he's going on last. He's okay. Oh, okay. That's, that's what Bret Hart used to do. Bret Hart always uh, notoriously was, like, late to the arena all the time. What are they going to do with the champ? They're going to take the belt off me. <laughs> so, yes, uh, the next match, WWF Hardcore Champion Hardcore Holly versus challenger Al Snow, who is, of course, accompanied by Head. Now, remember that these two fought each other into the Mississippi River in a hardcore match back at St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and over the past few weeks, Al Snow has actually been helping Hardcore Holly win matches because he wants to be the one to defeat him for the Hardcore title, and now, at last, he has his chance. And as soon as the match begins, Holly smacks Al right in the head with the Hardcore title, and holy shit, 
This proceeds to bust Al Snow right the fuck open. I mean, good lord, I'm assuming this had to be hard way, since why the hell would you blade from a belt shot that early on? But my goodness, we're like a few seconds into the match, and Al Snow was just bleeding all over the fucking place. What the fuck? <laughs> I think that hardcore title has a lot of jagged edges to it, that'd be my guess. Well, yeah, that's probably true, but yeah, I was kind of confused by that. Oh, shit, Al's busting wide open. Off of what? And why this early? Yeah, I think that it had to have been like the one of those little pointy parts sticking off the hardcore title, I think. See, I didn't you know what? When he when Holly grabbed the gallon of water mm. and and hit Al in the face with it, I actually got confused for a second. I'm like, was that what busted him open? Because I think that just made him bleed more, but Well realistically you could have done him a favor if you just poured the water over his head or something to clean him off. That's true. And actually, yeah, on that note, we get the jug of water, but then we also get uh, some other stuff that gets pulled out from under the ring, specifically a hockey stick, which is, I think, a callback to two weeks ago on the Raw in Detroit when Hardcore Holly pulled one out. We got some cookie sheets and, of course, a table, which gets set up in the ring. However, this is a hardcore match, and the ring just isn't cool, so pretty soon both these guys are heading up the aisle and wandering backstage. And at this point, Sal, I noticed that Al Snow's tights have the numbers 00123 on them, which I'm pretty sure is a clear reference to those phone numbers that exist around this time, like 1010321 and 1010220. There's a nice little sign of the times for you there. So we then go backstage, and Holly picks up a literal kitchen sink and walks over toward Al Snow, but Al sprays him with a fire hose, causing Holly to drop the porcelain sink, which proceeds to shatter all over the ground. And by the way, while this is going on, you can clearly see Farouk in the background looking on and laughing, and Sergeant Slaughter is also back there too, but he doesn't look nearly as amused. And then from there, we head out into the parking lot, where they take turns throwing each other into a car, which sets off the alarm, although apparently the alarm for this car is just the horn honking twice and then stopping, so that's not exactly an effective deterrent. And then things take a turn for the bazaar, as both men start walking up a staircase, but Holly pushes Snow off the side of it, where he lands in a full dumpster. Holly then jumps in, and referee Mike Kyoto follows, so Holly attempts to pin Snow in the dumpster, but it only gets a two-count. They then continue walking around and brawling near some vehicles, which causes Jerry Lawler to ask Jim Ross if that was his car that they walked past, to which JR says, I don't know. So apparently, JR doesn't know what his own vehicle looks like, or where he parked it. So you know, on second thought, maybe Michael Cole should be calling these shows after all. No, actually, no, never mind. I, I think I'd still prefer a senile JR. So Holly and Snow then briefly brawl inside the production truck, which I'm sure was amusing for that one guy sitting there. But we then get a fun spot where Snow tosses Holly off the production truck and onto a car, and Snow then follows that up with an elbow drop onto Holly onto the roof of the car, which is now caving in. Still, though... Only a two count. So finally, after all those backstage shenanigans, they eventually make their way back out into the arena, and with the table still set up in the ring, Snow puts Holly on top of it and climbs to the top rope, but Holly grabs a friggin' frying pan and nails Snow in the head with it, and then, in a nice-looking spot, Holly superplexes Al Snow through the table. Both men are then out of it for a while, and for some reason... Mike Kyoto starts counting both of them down, even though, as both commentators rightly point out, you can't be counted down in a hardcore match. And then we get our finish. So Al Snow rolls out of the table wreckage and begins slowly crawling over toward Head, which is positioned in one of the corners. Al then picks up Head and smacks Holly in the face with it. He makes the cover, Kyoto makes the count, and yes, 
that's good enough for the victory. Your winner and the new WWF Hardcore Champion for the very first time, Al Snow, in a ridiculous 15 and a half minutes. And one thing I have to note, that whole end section where Al Snow is slowly crawling over to head took 30 seconds. So yes, that was 30 seconds of crawling followed by Snow just whacking Holly with head. It really seemed like a very anticlimactic ending to the match, because why would you wait so long just to pick up the head and then use it? I don't get it, but whatever. But anyway, Sal, what did you think of this hardcore title match? Okay, so this actually, surprisingly, was a lot of fun. Agreed. The kitchen sink... Jesus, that kitchen sink has a family, damn it. (laughs) It fucking exploded. I thought it was a little bit much to have them fight in the dumpster. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like Vince was backstage going, You're trash, so you're gonna fight in the trash. <laughs> yeah, probably does think that. The hip toss in the car looked fucking brutal, followed up by the elbow. I thought that was great. So here's the thing. The sink, the dumpster, the hip toss in the car, the superplex through the table the long way was amazing. Finish it there? I mean, I get it based on where we're going with Al Snow's character. But to have all that happen and then he just grabs head and hits Polly with it to get the win, I was like, what? That's the finish? Yeah, very anticlimactic. Like I was saying, especially because he takes so long just to crawl over and get head, so to speak. And then it's just like, okay, he grabs head and he nails Holly with it. So it's, so why was there all that like like 30 seconds of buildup just for him grabbing the head? I don't get it. Yeah, really, really bizarre. And I like, like you said, good match, entertaining match. I think f- about 15 minutes was a little too long, but it was good. It was good for what uh, for what they gave us. You know, these hardcore matches are garbage brawls, but if they're entertaining garbage brawls, I'm okay with it for the most part. Would you have been completely fine if Snow pinned him off of the uh, hip toss onto the car and then the follow-up elbow? Oh, yeah, I'd be fine with that. Yeah, right? I think you're just outbooking yourself to keep it going after that. You literally went through a car. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they just wanted to finish it in the ring so you could get the celebration afterwards. I mean, it's it's Al Snow's first hardcore title reign, so clearly this is, some, this is a historic moment. Took him fucking long enough. I know. <laughs> and so after that match ends, we cut backstage where The Undertaker is speaking with the Ministry of Darkness, and unfortunately we get quite a few audio difficulties at the beginning, However, Taker has something important to say, so let's take a listen. You please me. Your recent stumblings, they are forgiven, but never forgotten. Now we can go on. We must look to the future. We have to prepare for the eventual arrival of our higher power, his unholiness. And then the calamity begins. Now... The destruction begins. Now, the tragedy begins. So yes, as you heard The Undertaker say there, the Ministry must now prepare for the arrival of their higher power, or as Taker accidentally puts it, their Howard power. Whoopsie. Also, it appears the Taker is willing to completely overlook the fact that pretty much every member of the Ministry failed him this past week on Raw, but he chalks it up to saying that their transgressions will be forgiven, but not forgotten. I guess because they beat the Brood earlier, now everything is all square. Okay, then. 
And by the way, Sal, this marks the first mention of the higher power or the greater power in several weeks. Initially, it seemed like they were just talking about how the Undertaker answers to a higher power, presumably just some random life force. But in this segment, Taker is literally saying that that person will be arriving soon. So we now know that this is actually going somewhere. So I've got to ask you, without revealing who it actually is, do you remember being captivated by this Howard Power angle back in 1999? Very much so. To the point where, in my crazy brain, I took it rather literally. And I said, well, it's got to be a guy who's bigger than The Undertaker. Mm-hmm. It's going to look up to him. It's a higher power. And I instantly thought of Giant Gonzalez. <laughs> probably a mistake. Probably uh, not correct on my early... I, you know, trying to predict this shit, but when when he used to talk about the higher power, I thought, like, it was going to be, like, some giant. Well, so you must have been very disappointed by the actual revelation. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I was very disappointed by the revelation, too, but, I mean, we'll get to that at... We'll get to that at some you. point, but see, that... More so on this night, it, it creates a lot of problems for me because it creates a lot of logicals. Oh for where they are in the storyline now to where they're going to get to in June doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah. So, Especially the ending of the main event makes yeah, it, makes yeah, it make even less sense. But yes, I was completely captivated by this storyline back in 99, and I was also doing a lot of like internet speculation with people too. I remember like Jake Roberts was a name I think that was yes, out there. I remember that was being thrown around. I was like, oh my god, he's so evil, that could work. Yeah. Uh, spoiler, it is not Jake Roberts, but... I think around this point in time, Jake Roberts was in no shape whatsoever to be doing an, a regular on-camera role. But uh, I was rooting for it. I was rooting for it. But so from there, we move along to our next match, and it is for the WWF Intercontinental Championship champion, The Godfather, versus challenger Goldust, who is accompanied by the recently rehired Blue Meanie. And Sal, if you listened to my segment last week where I recapped the notes from the Wrestling Observer, the Blue Meanie was indeed rehired by the WWF thanks to a website some fans created which received 3,000 hits over the span of a week. I mean, with overwhelming online support like that, how can you not bring him back? It's like Matt Hardy in 2005, for Christ's sakes. And not only that, but Meanie even manages to get some mic time before the match, and what he says sounds, dare I say, a little bit familiar. For all the men who want to be me. What? And for all the girls who came to see me. Are you ready for the grind? Oh, good Lord. Put the, my God. Put the women and children to bed. Hurry. Somebody call Sable's attorneys. I'd rather see Sable grind, quite frankly. Okay, Sal, so a couple questions here. Number one, what is the purpose of someone imitating Sable's catchphrase? And number two, of all people, why is the Blue Meanie the one to do it? It's not like he and Goldust have a feud with her or anything, so I'm, I'm a bit confused here. I would assume just for the vomit-inducing visual. That's fair, yeah. Yeah, I think Jerry Lawler is, like, literally gagging on commentary when he's doing this, right? Yeah, and it's Goldust, and they're weird, and, and, you know, it's it's funny, though, because (laughs) this whole thing with Meanie and Goldust, I know where Goldust ends up in a few months. Yeah, not in this company. (laughs) Right, right. So it, it seems like whether they agreed with the creative or not, this creative wasn't doing anything to elevate. Goldust and his little pet. 
So at the at the very least, it was basically just a comedy shtick, you know. If only someone had created a save Goldust website that could have gotten three thousand hits, then his his job could have been saved too. I somehow doubt it because Goldust looks like he's packing on the pounds at this point. <laughs> Also, Sal, we get a good sign of the times moment here as Godfather grabs a mic and does his usual come aboard the hoe train spiel before the match. But then he says he won't offer the hose to Goldust because his girls don't like no scrubs. Fun fact, at this point in time, TLC's song No Scrubs was indeed the number one song in America, topping the charts for the third of what will end up being four straight weeks. So were you a fan of that song, Sal? I was more a fan of the retort called No Pigeons. <laughs> yes, I remember that one too. By Sporty, Sporty Thieves. Thieves, yeah. That was a much better song. But um, Yeah, I think that, that song was off their album, Sporty Thieves' Greatest Hit. <laughs> uh, this seems like a appropriate place to put this comment. Should the Godfather's hose be called Butterface Enterprises? Oh, ouch. They all are not the most attractive-looking females. Especially face-wise. Well, I think the the way he gets them is basically they go to, like, local strip clubs and whatever the town is, and they're basically just like, hey, ladies, you want to be on Raw? Or... He went to Providence? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Maybe he went to Club Fantasies, like it was on that guy's sign, where it said, thanks for the lap dance, Club Fantasies. Maybe that's where they came from. Who knows? Ugh. I hope they didn't pay more than 20 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> And actually, Sal, I have an amusing line here from Jim Ross as well. So when the Godfather comes to the ring with five of his hoes, Jerry Lawler asks him which one is his favorite hoe, to which JR says, quote, I'm a happily married man. My little bride's watching back in Connecticut. Pause. I'll tell you later. Yeah, I'll t- out of nowhere, I'll tell you later. And I'm like, wait a minute. He just said. <laughs> Good old JR coming aboard the hoe train, it would seem. Also, why the fuck is Jan Ross in Connecticut? They had to move. Did they move it? Oh, man. That isn't that, I think Bischoff, ju- just getting hired, he had to move to Connecticut, too, because he was, uh, I saw on his Twitter, he was, like, doing the thing where it's, like, you know, 1,700 miles to Stanford. I'm doing you know what, In 1999, I get it, but in 2019, I mean, come on. You can Skype anything. You can video conference. Why the fuck do you actually have to be at headquarters? Yeah, that's a fair point. Vin- Vince wants to wants to see you in person, pal. Make sure your shirt's tucked in you have a nice suit on. That's right, and... and Whatever you do, don't sneeze. Don't sneeze. Don't yeah. sneeze, don't cough, don't blink. <laughs> exactly. Although Vince is getting old enough these days, if you put a mannequin in front of him, you probably wouldn't know the difference. You could do the thing where you, like, close your eyes and draw eyeballs on, like, your eyelids. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea. Get the Homer Simpson glasses or his <laughs> <Yeah>. eyes. <laughs> Perfect. And, uh, by the way, in case this Godfather Goldust matchup sounds familiar, it's because these two have now faced each other three times in the past four weeks. Truly an epic clash of the titans here. And early on in the match, the meanie proceeds to make his presence felt on numerous occasions, interfering on Goldust's behalf behind referee Jimmy Corderas' back, including tripping the Godfather and clubbing him several times on the arena floor. But then, things began to backfire. So meanie pulled out a bag full of coke, uh, pardon me, baby powder, and gave it to Goldust. He then distracted Corderas, and Goldust walked over to the Godfather... But of course, Godfather smacked Goldust's hand, causing the powder to fly into his own face. And from there, the match basically just stopped and devolved into a comedy segment. Why? Because the Blue Meanie entered the ring to try and help his friend, but because Goldust now couldn't see with all the powder in his eyes, he started attacking the Meanie, thinking he was the Godfather. And somehow, even though he is supposed to be blinded by the powder, Goldust manages to set the Meanie up in one of the corners. He runs at him, and yes, he hits Meanie with shattered dreams, kicking him right in the balls. 
And I don't mean to point out the obvious, but if Goldust had actually succeeded and done that to the Godfather, he would have been disqualified anyway, thereby not winning back the title, but I digress. So eventually all this hilarity comes to a close when the Godfather puts Goldust and Meanie into one of the corners, he gets a running start, and he hits his hoe train splash, and then he follows that up with a Death Valley driver to Goldust, he makes the cover, Jimmy Corderas makes the count, and yes, that was enough to secure the victory. Your winner, and still WWF Intercontinental Champion, The Godfather. And after the match, the hoes run into the ring to celebrate, and I would be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that one of them jumps right into Godfather's arms, and yes, for those scoring at home, we do get an uncensored nip slip on the WWE Network, if, you, if you're into that sort of thing, just pointing it out. The hoes then do a dog pile on top of Godfather, and when he stands up, he puts his hand over his crotch as if to say, yup, I've got a massive boner right now. Glad to see the man still enjoys his work. So, Sal, what did you think of the Godfather versus Goldust? I have an interesting question for you. Well, first of all, let's get it right out there on the table. Let's address this right now. If Goldust was lifting anybody else's leg other than Meanie when he was in the corner, let's assume Goldust is blinded, the fact that Meanie's stomach is hitting Goldust <laughs> in the forehead should pretty much tell him that's not the Godfather. Fair point. Second, and this one might be a little bit more somber, was this the beginning of the death of the IC title? From what we grew up with, this completely devolving into a comedy match and a joke spot, it felt to me like, oh, so this is where the IC title died. Yeah. Or started dying. Yeah, I think that's fair because just in the past couple months, you've had the title, after Shamrock held it for about four months, you've had it passed around where it's basically gone, you know, Val Venus, Billy Gunn, The Road Dog, Gold Dust. It's just kind of bounced around from one person to another. Oh, and of course, now The Godfather, with... Not it, it's not really benefiting every, anyone, I guess. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, just a short 18 months ago, you were having Austin and Rock feud over this thing, and it meant something. Right. And then Shamrock's involvement, uh, that meant something. Like, it really, you really felt that Shamrock wanted to win it. And then he finally did, and it seemed fine. But ever since Shamrock lost it, we are going down this road where this title means absolutely shit. And yeah. it keeps getting passed back and forth, gold dust. Uh, Road Dog was champ at WrestleMania, which made no fucking sense because he's right back to being a tag team wrestler on this show. So, I, you know, I, I think it's great for, for Godfather's character, but at the same time, there's no, you know, there's no classic fucking Brett versus Bulldog match here these days with the IC title. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, we're not even, we don't even get Rock, what was Rock and Triple H uh, at, on the ladder match at SummerSlam yes. in 98, yes. right? So it was. Literally six months ago, six, seven, eight months ago, whatever it was, and you have gone that far down the card where it means nothing anymore. Yeah, in, that's a good point, actually. I think in fairness, because Triple H got hurt shortly after the ladder match, I think yes. they were going to give him a good run with the Intercontinental title, and then they had to take it off, and then basically they, they did like the one-night tournament that Shamrock won. And again, they gave Shamrock the title for four months. His feud with Billy Gunn was actually pretty hot for a while, but yeah, that... Uh, those days are over at this point. Now it's just kind of like, oh, here's like a, a mid-card match with a couple guys who are nothing special, and the title just happens to be involved, basically. And you just brought up a good point, because, yeah, after so at the height, at this period in time, it was Triple H winning it at SummerSlam, and then obviously him getting hurt didn't play into their plans, but, but I did feel like it was on the right person with Shamrock, and then... Yeah. I just don't know where we went. Where? How have we gotten here? That's what I want to know. Straight, straight down the toilet. Which actually is a good segue because <laughs> our very next segment, we go to Michael Cole, who is in 
a bathroom with your new WWF Hardcore Champion Al Snow and Head, who are both on the floor next to the urinals. And apparently Head is telling Al that she should be the Hardcore Champion because Al was holding Head when he draped an arm over Holly for the pinfall. Honestly, Head kind of makes a good point there, and frankly I'm shocked that Vince Russo never went the route of putting the Hardcore title on an inanimate object. But then again, we always have the 24-7 title in the present day. Could happen. And so we go back into the arena for our next match, the New Age Outlaws versus Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart, who are accompanied by Deborah, with the winning team becoming the number one contenders for X-Pac and Kane's WWF Tag Team titles on the pilot episode of SmackDown this Thursday. Now remember, last week on Raw, the Road Dog unfortunately introduced us to a new term for Deborah's breasts, as he said that he wanted to see her puppies, and sure enough, Road Dog echoes that same sentiment on the mic before the match begins, and I dare say, this one may stick. And on that note, good lord, Deborah's outfit tonight is, uh, well, let's just say that it's not subtle. She's basically wearing a bra and a thong with a red suit coat barely covering herself. Now, this would be absurd enough on its own, but remember that Jeff Jarrett's gimmick lately has been to cover up Deborah when she starts to strip down, but for some reason he has no problem with her walking to the ring tonight showing off her ass and, uh, puppies. Doesn't seem to make much sense, but I suppose that's the attitude era for you. So anyway, getting into the match, I just have to say, I love that patented series of moves Owen does where he escapes an arm twist by somersaulting, then rolling over, and I don't even know what you call it, but he basically ends up with his head on the mat and he kips himself up, and then he reverses it into an arm twist of his own. It's classic Owen, and I feel the need to point it out since this is, well, sadly his final pay-per-view match for obvious reasons. But shortly after that, we get a loud... Show your puppies chant from the crowd, which causes Jim Ross to say, quote, I got a feeling we'll be hearing a lot of that here in the next few weeks. OJR, if only it was weeks instead of years, if only. I originally watching this wanted to come on this show and 100% blame Providence. Like, Providence, what the fuck is wrong with you, right? But now that I, I think of it, I have to blame Road Dog. It is. It's this his is fault. all his fault. All his fault. Sh- really? Show your puppy loudly. Yes. Loudly. And and also, Road Dog trying to pass himself off as a feminist at the beginning of this right. saying, Hey, hey, Jeff, Deborah's an adult woman. She can do what she wants. That's right. And I'm sitting here going, But you're the one who caused all this. <laughs> Hashtag woke dog. Also, when when Owen and Jeff are making their way to the ring, Lawler took a shot. I think he took a shot at Brett. Because somebody said something about Stu Hart, and he said, we haven't heard much from Stu lately. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, you're right. So, uh, also, in this match, to me, as as over as Road Dog was, Billy Gunn is the one making being made to look like the next breakout star. Right. Which we'll get more into on uh, on Raw and SmackDown, actually, because it, it goes in an interesting direction. Let's just say that. It goes in an interesting direction. But uh, also, I, I, should, I shouldn't say Road Dog is entirely at fault. I should also give some of that blame to Jerry Lawler, who was just on commentary the whole time going, ah, Puppies! Yeah, puppies! <laughs> Got a pocket full of puppet show right now, JR! Woo-hoo! My God. Now, and also, just to kind of tie this up, too, with the, with the past couple Raws where, you know, will Deborah show her puppies? I mean, did anybody actually think... Deborah was going to go topless one in one of these segments. Like, legit, just whip off the bra, just go full Miss Kitty Royal Rumble 2000. Yeah, uh, technically it was Armageddon 99, but, uh, but uh, I, see ah, your point. Well, I see your point, though. 
but yeah, I mean, I remember being a teenager around this time, and I didn't necessarily think she was going to do it, but I was, I was like hoping, like maybe they'll accidentally, you know, show more than they intend to show, because there are times where she's literally taking off her bra, but Jeff Jarrett's covering her up. So I remember at the time being like, maybe, maybe there'll be an accident one day, and yeah, but you know, I'm pretty sure there never actually is. But yes, you know, Armageddon '99, we do get that infamous moment. So there is, there is at least one instance of intentional nudity there. Although actually, if you talk about the UK pay-per-views, Jacqueline was getting them out at whatever that one was, Capital Carnage. So I guess it happens occasionally. Technically, that was a wardrobe malfunction. You're right, but before the term was even coined. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and, and to Deborah's credit. Definitely held everybody's interest. Sure. Mine included when I was 15, 16 years old. Yeah. Very much so. Poor, you know, I, hey, as stupid as it were, as it was, it got Jeff Jarrett a ton of heat. I wanted that dude to just kill over and die. Yeah. I was like, dude, get out of the way, seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at that point, you know, I, Vince Russo, I, I think it's safe to say he was tapped into the uh, teenager mind at that point because he knew we just wanted to see, you know, hot girls scantily clad and all that good stuff, and, and that is uh, something that was delivered in spades in the attitude. It was so. delivered in spades, but it was not original, because this brings me to a recently uh, interviewed Conrad Thompson. Oh. And he was on the Taz show, and he was talking about ECW. And he said, the first time I ever saw ECW, I saw a guy go to the ring drinking beer, smoking cigarettes, and then I saw two girls roll around in thongs, and ECW instantly became my favorite promotion. (laughs) (laughs) And it's true, because long before Deborah was teasing anything, ECW had pretty much naked women on their fucking show. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, this has been talked about many times in the, in the years since the WWF basically took a lot of what ECW was doing and just put it on a bigger scale. In WCW, the whole Titan Tron was, was Bischoff's first. He's the one who came out with a huge, uh, you know, screen and then Vince kind of copied that. The Pyro Nitro, you know, Adam, our host from Nitromania will tell you the Pyro showed up on, on Nitro long before it showed up on Raw. Right, and we also had Bischoff moving to 12 pay-per-views. Vince moved to 12 pay-per-views. Bischoff, you could say, did the evil authority figure before before Vince did. He, he did, but so. in Adam's timeline, Bischoff just turned, and he unveils that he's been part of the NWO, and you know he uses his power as, as a heel and as an executive to get that heel character over. Vince basically copied it. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. But, yeah, so just basically diving back into our tag match. So what happens is Owen nails Road Dog with an enziguri, followed by a leg drop, and local boy referee Tim White drops down to count the pinfall. And at this point, I just happened to, to point this out, Sal. Did you see when Tim White slapped the mat that some baby powder from the previous match flew up into the air? I did. I didn't know what that was, but, yeah, that makes sense now. <laughs> yeah. It was it was Coke. It was definitely Coke. Well, it's Tim White, so never fucking know. Yeah. He, he's had a problem for many years, clearly. Um, but I mean, come on, doesn't, doesn't the WWE have someone to like clean that shit in between That's matches? That's what I thought. I could have sworn that any type, anytime something like that happens in the ring, they, they actually co-hosted on the show of the rundown. Jason told me that they replaced the whole mat. That I believe. Yeah. For example, when somebody like bleeds all over the fucking mat, they will, t- you'll, you'll notice the next segment is either like a video recap or highlights because they have to take the time to replace the canvas. Right. Well, actually just calling back to that a few weeks ago or about a month ago at this point, the beer bath is the opening segment. Yes. So they have to, I assume they had to get a new mat in there because people weren't just going to be squishing on the mat all night every time there's a body slam. Right, and, and there was a segment too on Raw back in like the HLA days. Oh, Jesus. Where um, these women all had some type of like water gun fight. Oh. Like 
Candace Michelle, Kelly Kelly, Maria, all of them. And the fucking canvas was soaked. Soaked. So this, and that was like 9 o'clock hour, so they had to replace the canvas. Because otherwise, I mean, you're not going to mop up the ring. <laughs> replace the canvas? Yeah. No. <laughs> the canvas, Michelle? But anyway, so moving on to the finish, Owen locked Road Dog in the sharpshooter while Jarrett attempted to put Billy in the figure four, but Mr. Ass pushed Jarrett out of the ring, and from there, Billy ran up to Owen and nailed him with a fame-asser. He made the cover, and yes, that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three, your winners, and the new number one contenders for the WWF Tag Team titles are the New Age Outlaws. And after the match, Road Dog grabs a mic and tells Billy to show his ass to the world, and so he proceeds to pull his tights down to show his thong. I mean, hey, Deborah showed hers first, so I suppose that's only fair. But, uh, Sal, what did you think of this number one contendership match? The match was fun. Obviously, these four guys, they're going to put on a great fucking match. And, and, you know, the outlaws are over as fuck. But again, that focus on Billy, he gets the hot tag. He gets the pinfall with his finisher. He gets to pull his pants down. Everything was about Billy in this match. Now... As a long-standing WWF fan, I'm a little pissed because I remember I had said to you that, you know, if, if Over the Edge 99 is the pay-per-view after Backlash and Owen's still teaming with Jarrett, how the fuck do we get to where Owen was character-wise the night of Over the Edge? And watching this reinforces my point because there was literally no need as you had Owen in a tag team with Jarrett for Owen to be doing anything like what happened the night at Over the Edge, so... Well, if you want your answer on that, just tune into the SmackDown pilot, because that's when it all begins. But it doesn't need to begin, is my point. No. You could have absolutely still just kept Owen with Jared, and they were having a fine time as a tag team. There was no need to do anything different. And by the way, there's a story floating around that Triple H has said that Owen Hart was going to have the original gimmick of the game, which I don't know exactly what that gimmick is other than leather jacket wearing guy who also wears a jean vest on top of his leather jacket. But (laughs) I don't buy it. I think that's all, you know, oh, well, we were going to push Owen, but then, you know. (laughs) Yeah, just like he did in uh, late 97, early 98 when he was fucking red hot and the crowd loved him. The Blackheart, Owen Hart. One pay-per-view match, never saw him again. (laughs) I love that, by the way, when he came back as the Blackheart. But in, in case you want to know how he comes to be the, the Blue Blazer, spoiler alert for coming weeks, uh, I think the story is basically that Vince Russo wanted to do an angle where Owen was basically fucking Deborah was the story, and Jeff gets pissed at him, and they do kind of like a breakup storyline from there, and Owen essentially nixed it. He was like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want my kids, you know, seeing a storyline like that. So I think the Blue Blazer thing, like sending him back to the Blue Blazer was like kind of a rib on the fact that he's like, you know, old stuck in his ways, Owen Hart, you know, old stick in the mud. Fucking great idea. Yeah. Let me applaud you on that one, WWF. I know. Such a great fucking idea. I'm I'm still bitter. (laughs) Not as bitter as Martha, but who can fucking blame her? I'm somewhat okay with him going back to be the Blue Blazer. I'm not totally, you know, it's, it's not the best, but I'm more upset with what they do on the night of Over the Edge, because that's, that's the part that's completely unnecessary, especially given the state of the character, but that's a, we'll, we'll get to that in the coming weeks, I'm sure, but yeah, that's ugh, not good stuff, but this was a pretty good match. So from there, we go backstage where Michael Cole is in Shane McMahon's dressing room, and once again, Shane promises that he will be an impartial referee tonight, and if Stone Cold manages to pin The Rock, he swears on his dead grandfather that he will make 
the three count. And here's a fun time capsule for you, Sal. Did you notice that the shirt Shane was wearing said WWF Hotel and Casino on it? Uh, I didn't catch the hotel and casino, but I thought it was just a generic WWF shirt. No, well, are, are you at all aware of this side project by any chance? No. Okay, so basically, here's the short story. So Vince purchases the Debbie Reynolds Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas for a tidy $10 million, which actually for a casino, not, not a bad price, right? That's pretty good. However, the catch is that the land was not located on the Las Vegas Strip, where most of the gamblers gravitate toward, but rather a few miles away. So instead of dumping a bunch of extra cash into promoting a friggin' WWF-themed casino, the McMahons eventually give up on the idea and sell the property in December of 2000. So no sell, unfortunately, the WWF Hotel and Casino never actually ends up opening. However, if you want to see what it would have looked like, you can actually go find a virtual tour of the building if you Google WWF Hotel and Casino, so be sure to go and watch that. Interesting. Yeah, it's got some great 1999 CGI effects. Their, their yeah. WWF-themed ventures always do so well. Oh, yeah. WWF New York. That one's coming soon. That's coming soon on the timeline. And so after we get that interview with Shane, we then go to Kevin Kelly, who is with Vince and Stephanie, and Stephanie says she knows that Shane wouldn't swear on their dead grandfather if he didn't mean what he said, and Vince says that he hopes Shane doesn't make another mistake tonight, so we shall see. So first of all, Shane laying those early, early seeds for their feud at WrestleMania X7. <laughs> You're right. He's playing the long game here, clearly. Clearly. Then he swears on his dead grandfather's grave. Me, like a fucking Mark, watching this back, was like, well, he's going to come up with some way to honor that, where he doesn't actually, you know, do anything egregious or, or not count, because he swore on his grandfather's grave. Boy, what a dumb fucking Mark I still am. <laughs> We'll, we'll see how it turns out. We'll have to see how it turns out. Also, also, there's a shot of the Castro GTX blimp in the arena. Love I gotta it. be honest with you, if I'm paying for a ticket and there's a fucking blimp blocking my view at any point, I'm asking for a refund. Yeah, yeah. Especially because you probably already are paying for shit seats anyway, and then the blimp is kind of like hovering around you. It's like, come on, like, why? Why do that? They always seem to have, like, there was like the Castro blimp, the Stridex blimp, and all these other what ones. What the fuck? Like, it's Providence Civic Center, spoiler alert, not a giant arena. <laughs> no. Okay, we don't need a fucking blimp taking up fucking visuals of what's going on in the ring, so. I'm actually glad you mentioned that. I didn't mention the attendance, but this is basically like a, this arena seats just under like 11,000 people. So this is a full sellout, but it's not a huge venue. Like even the nearby Boston Garden at the time, or I guess the Fleet Center at the time of this show, is just under like 20,000. So this is a much smaller arena for a pay-per-view. Well, it's a secondary, it's an in-your-house pay-per-view essentially. And, you know, they they sold out the Spectrum in Philly for WrestleMania 15. Oh, sure. But again, only why? 20,000, maybe, 18 for the Spectrum. I'm, I'm not sure how much it fits, but it does. it's similar to the Garden. Yeah, around there. So you mentioned WrestleMania X7, which is the first time they really do a big arena show. They go back to, to a real arena. Yeah. I mean, the last time was, the last time, I believe, was SummerSlam 92 when they were at Wembley, where you had like 83,000 people there. But yeah, it, until, funny enough, as hot as the Attitude Era was, they don't do like a giant you know, football-type arena until WrestleMania X7 in Houston, so... Yeah, and that's uh, an interesting point. So I had brought this up in my, you know, show that from WrestleMania 8 in the Hoosier Dome to WrestleMania 17, they had avoided all stadiums and domes for 10 fucking years. And 
You know, uh, as you mentioned, SummerSlam and Wembley was the last time they were in a huge outdoor arena. And at this point in 98-99, they were doing a lot of small arenas. Yep. A lot of small arenas. Even WrestleMania 16 was only at the Pond in Anaheim. Same thing, about 20,000. If that. Um, and it's weird because they had so much success. But it almost worked because everything was a sellout. Oh, yeah. Every, you know, the old hanging from the rafters. You, you recap these raws. Is there any time that you've seen, like, blacked out sections? No, there's, like, 10 million signs. They're lining up at the door two hours before the gates open. So, I mean, for what, it, it's a business model that worked. They were selling out wherever they went. Absolutely. Uh, I personally like when they started going to, you know, the Astrodome and things like that because you just pack in 80,000 people. It's, it's fucking crazy. But nowadays they have enough trouble packing in 500 people to a live event. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially when they put one on a Monday when Raw is airing. Yeah, let's do it time. opposite of the very hyped Raw reunion show. That's a smart fucking idea. <laughs> Which, by the way, speaking of speaking of sellouts, I love how when Austin on the Raw reunion show, he was cutting his promo at the end, he's like, tonight was a legit sellout. <laughs> so was he basically saying, like, yeah, most of these sellouts, we say sellout, it's usually bullshit, but tonight was a legit sellout. You think Vince cringed a little bit when he said that live on mic? Yeah. Tonight was a legit sellout. I mean, fuck all those times we tell you it's a sellout. Tonight was real, though. <laughs> Tonight was a legit sellout. You know, like, every time I was in an arena back in the day, it was a legit sellout. Yeah. He loves talking about that. But, hey, to his credit, he's made, he's made a event in, and tonight's a sellout. So. Absolutely. But, yeah, you mentioned the Castle GP, GTX blimp. That basically gives them an excuse to, like, cut back into the arena for one second. But then we go right backstage because it is time for the boiler room brawl between Mankind and the Big Show. Now, in case you listeners are not familiar with the rules of a boiler room brawl, the goal was to simply exit the boiler room. Not Simple true. enough. Oh, no, okay. The original Broiler Room Brawl was you had to make your way to the ring to retrieve the urn. That's true. Not this one, though. No, this one you just had to walk out the Broiler Room. And I'm like, wait a minute. Not that I was expecting an urn, but <laughs> I was kind of like, you just have to leave? That's it? I like how you're, you're, it kind of sounds like you're saying Broiler Room as well. Like, there'd be, like, barbecue in there, too. Oh, I, I like... wish. <laughs> I, I thought Boiler Room Brawl. There you go, close, close enough. There is actually an oven in this boiler room for some reason. We see that, so that's, that's close enough. But yeah, so this actually leads, the very start of this, this boiler room brawl, leads to an amusing visual where we see referee Timmy Long, of Teddy Long, I should say. He's just standing outside the room and staring off into space as he waits for someone to come out the door. I feel like that's a call that not even Teddy Long could blow. <laughs> we just need, to st- need you to stand here and don't move. And whoever comes out first, they're the winner, Teddy. Do you think he completely almost botched it and was like, I really gotta pee? Maybe. I kind of just want to leave right now. Yeah. Like, if I, if I go to the bathroom, will they notice? I don't know. Now, Sal, unfortunately, though, from several reports at the time, when this match starts, it's the beginning of a pretty rough stretch where they start to lose the crowd. Now, remember that we already saw Al Snow and Hardcore Holly go backstage during their match, and a boiler room brawl obviously takes place entirely backstage in this case, so the fans were apparently getting a bit restless at this point, and that's actually a shame because I thought this was a really fun match. And actually, Sal, if you listen to the previous few episodes of this podcast, you've probably heard me complain about the fact that they're booking the hugely popular Mankind to face the big show who had just turned face. My whole point was, if you now want fans to cheer the big show, don't put him against the guy who is arguably the second most popular wrestler in the entire company. Common sense. 
So I went ahead and opened up Mick Foley's 2001 autobiography, Foley is Good, and it turns out that he actually does write about this very issue. Now, would you indulge me for a moment while I read an excerpt? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so here we go. Quote, I felt like I needed a match with the show, I don't know why he calls him the show, uh, in order to complete the story we had begun before WrestleMania, even though now as I write this, the only story I can remember is him being a lot bigger than me and beating the crap out of me. Russo and Vince were concerned because such a match, they thought, would put show in a position to be booed, a sound they definitely didn't want to hear. What if we have it in the boiler room, I said, in reference to the place that I used to call home during the early days of the Mankind character? The early Mankind was portrayed as dark and demented, and inhabited boiler rooms in arenas throughout the country. He rocked incessantly, pulled his hair out in clumps, and called out for his mommy. The evolved Mankind was more fun than dark and more dorky than demented, but somehow my ties to the boiler room had not been completely severed. This locale, I felt, would be the perfect place for the Mankind Paul White showdown, because fans would never be able to boo the show since he'd never set foot in the ring. Vincent Russo saw the logic in this, and the second-ever Boiler Room Brawl was booked for the April Backlash pay-per-view in Providence, Rhode Island. End quote. So there you go, Sal. Apparently, Foley, Vince McMahon, and Vince Russo were also concerned about the big show getting booed, hence the backstage Boiler Room Brawl stipulation. Although, once again, I ask, why book Mankind versus Big Show in the first place? But I digress. Well, by that account, it sounds like Nick wanted this. That he really wanted uh, to, to work show again, which I don't understand why. You're, you're going to take a beating from a guy who's kind of green still, and, and you're going to go in a hardcore match with him. I don't think he's going to take it easy on you, Mick. Yeah. You probably should have asked to work like Tiger Alley Singh or something. Yeah. But I, I agree with both Vince's concerns. We just fucking turned him face. You're going to put him against Foley? That's never going to work. Oh, we'll just keep him out of the ring so we can't see or hear the fans boo. Well, that's not a great visual either, so... I love the logic there. We're, we're still making the fans dislike the big show, but at least we won't hear it if he's in a fucking boiler room. So yeah, brilliant. So Big Show, by the way, has only one of his wrists taped for some reason, and that looks pretty stupid right off the bat. And as soon as he enters the room, naturally, Mankind jumps in from behind to try and gain an early advantage, and we're off from there. And as you can imagine, this is basically a garbage brawl with both men throwing each other into walls and trading shots with various objects. Although I will say, one of these spots legitimately had me laughing, because at one point they wander over toward a table where a bunch of slabs of sheetrock are sitting. So from there, Mankind just starts picking them up and whacking Show in the head with them. So it kind of went like this. Pick up the sheetrock, smack. Pick up the sheetrock, smack. Pick up the sheetrock, smack. It probably shouldn't have been funny, but I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> And as I mentioned, somehow this boiler room contains both a refrigerator and an oven, so it looks more like a kitchen than a boiler room, but I guess a kitchen brawl wouldn't have the same ring to it. And for the majority of the match, Mankind is unable to take Big Show off his feet, that is, until he runs up to him with what looks like a glass picture frame and smashes it right over his head, finally knocking Paul White down to the ground. Unfortunately for Foley, though, when he does that, we can see that some of the shattered glass apparently cut his left hand because it is now covered in blood. More on that in just a moment. And shortly after that, we get a bizarre spot where Foley finds a wooden ladder and starts climbing it, seemingly reaching for some sort of hook that's hanging overhead. But before he can reach it, the Big Show grabs him by the throat and choke slams him off the ladder through two tables which were positioned nearby and unfortunately for foley there were more panes of glass sitting on those tables so that can't have helped but at least it sounded really cool and after that we can see that big show is now 
also bleeding, presumably having done a blade job after Foley hit him in the head with that glass a little while ago. So yes, the blood is certainly flowing here in this match, or so it would seem. And eventually we come to our conclusion when Mankind, in a pretty cool spot again, smashes a metal pipe, causing some sort of chemical to shoot out of it right into Big Show's face. Jerry Lawler speculates that it was Freon, but that's never confirmed. Mankind then throws the blinded Big Show into a rack full of metal poles, the result of which causes all of them to fall on top of Paul White. Foley then slowly crawls toward the door, and we get the awesome visual of him tracking bloody handprints across the ground and wall. He opens the door and exits the boiler room, and yes, Teddy Long proclaims Mankind to be the winner. However, he barely gets a chance to celebrate before he gets attacked by the big boss man and Tess, who have seemingly mended fences after having been at each other's throats earlier tonight on heat. They throw Foley back into the boiler room and start beating on him, but then... The Big Show emerges from under that pile of pipes. So Show punches Test in the face, and when Bossman sees that, he simply heads right the fuck out of the boiler room as Big Show pursues him. Meanwhile, back in the room, Foley pulls out Socko and puts it in Test's mouth, taking him down to the ground. And that is how we wrap things up. So Sal, what did you think of this very bloody boiler room brawl? This was intense. Uh, yeah. From, from the minute Foley jumped Show, this, this was impactful and the spot fuck jesus christ the fucking way they use glass in this in this match um the first shot with foley nailing big show with the glass was insane but then when big show choke slammed foley through the two tables and the glass just exploded yeah. i was like foley's dead yeah. more so than hell in the south foley's fucking dead because he's literally in shambles on the ground and the loud like smashing of yes. the glass oh I, it was a great audio and definitely great visual mankind's hand looks like it's torn into fucking shreds which by the way fast forward to the spot where he puts the mandible claw on test he puts the sock on that bloody mess of a hand and shoves the bloody sock in test's mouth so test not only getting criticized for being a rookie he's getting treated like a rookie with this booking so much so that he swallows a gallon of mankind's fucking blood. Also, that spot where, where Foley nailed the the pipe and the, and the chemical pours out of it, it reminded me of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, the arcade game. <laughs> because if you kick the fire hydrant, it would it would open up and, and take out foot soldiers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally that spot. That That's completely where they got that from. And finally, yeah, why... So Foley wins, quote-unquote, because he, he looks like he's been in a car wreck. Instantly gets jumped. Big Show's just like, I know I just fought this guy for 20 minutes, but fuck it, we're friends now. <laughs> Made no fucking goddamn sense. And and again, why would Bossman and Tess do this if Bossman just was beating up Tess not 10 minutes ago? Well, actually, on that note, on the episode of Raw before this, which you, you, you watched that one too, right? That, that basically, a lot of the storyline of that is like, Mankind and Big Show respect each other because they're like, Mankind comes to Big Show's rescue, Big Show comes to his rescue. Yeah, but that was before he put him through a fucking table full of glass. <laughs> Fair point. But actually, Sal, before we move on, do you mind if I include one more excerpt from Foley as good as it pertains to this match? Oh, I want to hear it, yeah. Okay, so in this section, Mick Foley talks about speaking with Richie Posner, who essentially acted as a sort of prop master for the WWF around this time. So here in 99, Foley desperately needed knee surgery, but he kept putting it off. So according to him, he goes to Richie Posner in advance of the Boiler Room Brawl and asks him, quote, 
do you think you could come up with as much stuff as possible that looks painful but doesn't hurt? So I'm going to pick it up with the next excerpt from there. Quote, So it came to pass that in April 1999, Mick Foley, the hardcore legend, used fake glass, fake steam, and even, dare I say it, fake blood in a match that turned out to be better than I could have expected. Don't get me wrong, I still got the hell beaten out of me, but it was a good kind of hell beaten out of me, and I sat back and enjoyed the rest of the show in Providence with the knowledge that I had done something special. End quote. So yes, Sal, Mick Foley's bloody hand, as well as the bloody handprints he left all over the ground and the wall, were indeed fake blood. Now, does that ruin the mystique of the match for you, and retroactively, do you think that makes Mick Foley a total puss? No. Um, I actually give him credit because knowing how fucking crazy Foley is, even if he did need knee surgery, you know, Mick Foley, 95, 96 Mick Foley would have totally done it anyway. So kudos, Mick. You were smart enough to use fake blood and it worked wondrously because we all thought it was real. You were smart enough to use sugar glass, I think is what they call it. Uh, definitely had that effect of, of just a crazy visual and that noise that it made. And yes, you were successful because everything we saw made it look like you were getting killed, where in fact, you had actually strategically planned out that you wouldn't. Kudos, Mick Foley. Absolutely. And I was, I'm just joking, of course, about Mick Foley being a total puss because I think, I think his, uh, his pedigree is well established. But yes, I, I thought that was a very interesting passage because I was like, huh, okay, all that, the, the blood was fake. Fair enough. But, you know, good for him that he's, even though the fact that he has to have knee surgery and he's doing this, you know, hardcore match backstage. Hats off to Mick Foley, so good for him. Good for him. So we then cut elsewhere backstage, where Michael Cole was with Triple H in China, and surprisingly, China actually gets the chance to cut a promo, but unfortunately, it's not very good, because she pretty much just repeats exactly what Hunter said earlier. There's a pecking order in DX. They were responsible for getting X-Pac over, etc. Triple H then puts the cap on the segment by yet again telling X-Pac, quote, I made your ass, and tonight I'm going to break it. So, Sal, which is better? I made your ass and I'm going to break it, or your ass is grass and I'm going to smoke it? I'm having a hard time deciding. Uh, I think the better line is the pecker order. <laughs> the pecker order. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. So we then cut to the big show who is with Dr. Francois Petit, a.k.a. the fake doctor who played Sub-Zero in the Mortal Kombat movie. He tells Big Show that they need to stitch up his forehead and one of his fingers has been dislocated, so Paul White says he just wants to get it over with already. And we then go to Mick Foley, who basically proceeds to walk us through the boiler room and narrate all the spots that just happened. And Sal, this makes me think that the version of Backlash that's on the WWE Network must be the home video version, because this really seems like a DVD extra that they just went ahead and left in, because there's no real purpose to have Foley narrate what just happened, which makes me think they recorded this after the show, but just went ahead and inserted it after the match. Did you get that sense as well? That was my thing. I was like, why are we recapping what we just saw? Although... Foley with one of the funnier lines of the night when he says, well, I don't want to fight the big show anymore. <laughs> yeah. Shouldn't have fought him in the first place. Probably the smartest fucking thing you've ever said. <laughs> and, and yeah, the whole week of this is where my hand was bloody. This, uh, what is this, a cautionary tale? <laughs> Kids, don't try the boiler room brawl at Well, I, maybe that was the point, you know. They did have to throw, they, that, they absolutely used to throw those um, graphics when Foley would have his matches because... Kids were trying stuff like this at home. And even wrestlers that you watch today on TV will freely admit, oh yeah, I used to have Backyard Wrestling Federation, and we used to kill each other with fucking thumbtacks and ladders and two-by-fours, and I'm like, you moron. So kids, if you're watching this match, do not go into your own boiler rooms and try this at home. No, your fucking house will explode, you little bastards. 
So we then head back into the arena for our next match, Corporation member Triple H, accompanied by China, versus one half of the WWF Tag Team Champions, X-Pac. And Sal, when Triple H emerges from backstage, what the fuck is this theme song? Oh, you literally took the words off my paper. (laughs) What the fuck is this? Where's my time? So at first, I thought this was a WWE Network dub, but no, this is actually the theme song Triple H entered to at Backlash. Triple H's backlash theme here, Sal? No. I was so disappointed they didn't come out to my time. Granted, I understand he probably didn't have it yet, but watching the Raw before this, he was coming out to No Chance in Hell, which, generic corporation theme song at that point, I'm fine with it. It was Shane, this is the music Shane was using. I didn't necessarily like it, but I would have rather had... Triple H come out to Boss Man's music than this fucking awful whatever the fuck this was that he came out to tonight. Yeah, I don't think it lasts very long. Although we do get it the next night on Raw, too. But, yeah, I I think what you were saying, my time, I think is about a month away, maybe, somewhere around there. Well, it's a month too far. (laughs) Yes. And honestly, I don't even know if outside of backlash and the following night's episode of raw if we even get this theme song again after that so it's a nice little it's a nice little moment in time to find out this this one theme song triple h barely used before he got the more iconic one i guess you could say it's as stupid as fucking um who's that big fat guy in wcw that came out to ray mysterio's music oh Loch Ness. yes it's as stupid as hearing Loch Ness come out to ray mysterio's music <laughs> yeah. or zodiac who came out to the same theme did he really the march of death yeah oh that. my god dude Da, da, do, do, da, da. That, that's the one you're talking Although, about. Although, I right? will admit, for Zodiac, not too bad. Well, maybe they're like, this character is shit, but we really like that music, well, so... The music, I mean, that was a great music. They stuck with Ray Mysterio, which when he appears from a curtain, you don't really understand why he's using that music, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, wait a minute, you're like five feet tall, what's going on? Yeah, from a 600-pound guy to like a five foot hundred fifty pound guy, sure, yeah, why not? This, this might be a good place to bring this up. China's outfit had me feeling kind of weird. Oh, okay. <laughs> Dare I ask how so? I mean, on the one hand, she's literally wearing nothing but a thong with, like, stirrups that kind of hike up her ass a little bit. So, lower half, all good, even as a teenager, big fan. And then, like, upper half, it's like this jacked-up bodybuilder. So, you know, it's it's kind of a weird feeling. Like, you don't know how you should feel. Like, it's... And plus, her ass was on full display in this match. 
every time I turned around, her fucking ass was on the screen, so... Yeah, they always seem to get that camera angle, don't they? Yeah, I, I just, you know, I don't know how I feel because China was very steroided out at this point. She, I think she still looked pretty good at this point, though. Yeah. So, actually, let me just say, in terms of this Triple H Xbox match, I was very much looking forward to this going in because both guys are great workers, but as I've mentioned previously... I have a big problem with the build-up to this. Now, remember, Triple H turned on X-Pac at WrestleMania and left DX after being a founding member of the group. But in the weeks following WrestleMania, what do we get? Triple H being beaten down a few times by Stone Cold in the Big Show, and X-Pac was immediately put into a tag team with Kane. So for my money, I really think it's absolutely inexcusable that the breakup of the two top guys in DX was not the entire focus of this feud in the four weeks following WrestleMania. Not to mention the fact that the fucking New Age Outlaws have been completely separate from this entire feud. They are still in DX, and yet neither of them have even mentioned Triple H since then. It's just kind of been like, oh, um, well, the leader of DX betrayed the group. So moving right along... I mean, it, I, I just don't understand this at all. But. DX was your hottest product going into WrestleMania 15. Literally, they were on every fucking match. And you did this whole angle where they're, they're whole again right before Triple H turns. There's no follow-up to it. There's barely any verbal exchange between X-Pac and Triple H for a month. And when yeah. I say barely, they did say like a couple of lines in a promo against each other. Barely. They turned that into a much better video package on the on Sunday Night Heat than this entire feud had any right to be, which is weird. The video package was better than the actual month-long build because there wasn't one. It didn't make any fucking sense to me except for the only thing I could think of was that, well, without Triple H, DX is not DX, so we're just going to slowly stop associating them with each other, which, again, makes no fucking sense, but kind of what they did with the Nation of Domination, too. Yeah, it seems like the most story they've put into it has been on Sunday Night Heat, where Triple H is like, you tried to take the leadership of DX from me, which was never mentioned up yeah, to this point. When did that ever happen? Never. Never did. At this point, it just seems that once Vince is done with factions, he has no idea how to fucking end them. He just... They just stops talking about them, and then they eventually split off from each other. Exactly what he did with the nation. We so, didn't even get, and I'm sorry, we didn't even get the the Rock Farouk feud. Yes. Thinking about it, so every time we have this this leader and co leader split, there's never like a real good feud. This could have been money, but for some reason, nope. <laughs> yeah, I think they had they had a match. At, oh, I think it was Over the Edge '98, but it was like a terrible match, and they just kind of gave up on it immediately after that. So, yeah, but it wasn't, it, again, it wasn't even much of a feud. But as for Triple H versus X-Pac, the match gets started with X-Pac taking an early advantage, even though he somehow lands on his own fucking neck after he delivers a flying kick to Hunter's face. It seemed like he was alright at first, but they do eventually start working his injured neck into the match as we go, which makes sense. Remember, he had that injury in WCW, the neck injury. Bischoff subsequently fired him while he was recovering from it, and certainly the British Bulldog can relate. And Sal, we got a bit of an early indication of a divided crowd here, because you could hear the fans chanting, X-Pac, clap, clap, X-Pac, clap, clap. But after a little while, you could also hear a section of the crowd chant, sucks, after they said Xbox. So it was like, X-Pac, sucks. Yeah. I, I heard it, and I was like, oh, okay, this is where it started. This is the start, yeah. And why not? Because if you actually took the time to build X-Pac as a fiery babyface, and, and his best friend turned on him, I guarantee you wouldn't have got those reactions. That's right. But now we know, apparently, John Cena, not the originator of the dueling crowd chant. 
But it, it's interesting, too, because if you go just by basically his in-ring alone, I think it was like one of the previous issues of The Observer, Dave Meltzer singles out X-Pac as being literally, I think he says, the top worker in either of the two main companies. So there's no doubting his in-ring prowess. It's just the fact that when he gets mic time, he's just really bad with it. And I think in the in the Attitude Era, that is like a hugely important thing, obviously, to get guys over. They're not just going to you know give you brownie points based on your, uh, your in-ring capability, apparently. Well, you remember the feud that Sean Waltman had with Razor Ramon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Who carried that in terms of promo? Oh, had to be Razor, I'd imagine. Absolutely. Razor did all the talking. X-Pac just showed up and got the flu three count, which worked. Sure, got him over. But it doesn't keep you over. You have to be able to... Even Jeff Jarrett, as much as I fucking can't stand Jeff Jarrett, for multiple reasons, character work, whatever, he can talk. And and he knows how to get heat. And... X-Pac talking kind of sounds like some teenage stoner who doesn't belong. Looks like one, too. He really does. But that's the thing. You you, you go to X-Pac. Okay, X-Pac, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, Michael Cole. Yeah. Your ass is grass, and I'm going to smoke it. It doesn't work. Also, a lot of times, too, I've noticed this. Like, when he was, like, with the live crowd and he would grab the mic, a lot of times you could hear him, like, breathing heavily into the mic. So he'd be like... Like, I don't know if he just got winded during his entrance or something, but that was like a recurring thing with his promos. I noticed it every time. So. And I'm sure if you noticed it, the people in the back noticed I'm it. sure they did, too. But, yeah, getting back to the match, the aforementioned neck injury then basically becomes the entire focus here, as Triple H keeps working over Pac's neck with clubs, knee drops, front face locks, and all sorts of other moves. And at this point... The difference between Jim Ross and Michael Cole on commentary becomes pretty obvious because JR basically starts pleading for the match to be stopped and for X-Pac to just take the loss because it's not worth losing his career over. So not only is he putting over Pac as a huge underdog, but he's also getting Hunter over as a remorseless bastard, which I think is pretty great stuff from JR. The match, from, from my perspective, is by no means a classic, but JR is doing his best to kind of elevate it with his commentary. And it probably goes without saying, but he knows when to do that. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that for Al Snow versus Hardcore Holly. He picks his spots and he makes us believe it because we trust him. So, again, sorry to turn this match into a JR splooch fest, but... No, but I had that in my notes. And more... Yes, he was making it... He was trying to make, make Xbox, but to me, this was the first time you get the makings of what would become the Cerebral Assassin. Like, Triple H is ruthless. He's going after that neck. Like, he doesn't care. He just... He'll do anything to win. And that's the character JR fed to me as a viewer and and i was like oh shit this is kind of when it starts where he would be now and where he would get to at the end of 99 you see it start right here and frankly jr does help out this match quite a bit because they do lose the crowd for a while here just by virtue of the fact that hunter is probably working over x-pac for about eight straight minutes with a bunch of rest holds and Pac getting in minimal offense for an attitude era crowd let's just say it's asking a lot so fast-forwarding ahead, referee Mike Kyoto was outside the ring talking with Triple H, and X-Pac then attempted a dropkick through the ropes to the floor, but Hunter threw Kyoto in the way, causing Pac to dropkick the referee instead and knocking him down to the ground. Poor Kyoto, by the way, because it looked like he got clobbered. I think friend of the podcast, William Rankin, would probably classify that one as a best-of-luck spot. Oh, yeah, he ate it. Yeah. Kyoto ate it. I, I did feel bad for him. Yeah. And back in the ring, Pac nailed Triple H with an X-Factor, but of course, there was no referee to make the count. 
And China then proceeded to take advantage of that by hitting XPOC with a low blow, followed by, of all things, an inverted DDT, or slop drop, if you will. And so, let's pick it up from there. Look at XPOC trying to get up. Hope you don't think she's going to count. Really be hurt. Oh, oh boy. Exactly what we thought might happen. China. So as you heard there, after China attacks X-Pac, the lights go out and X-Pac's tag team partner Kane makes his way to the ring. He then proceeds to chokeslam Triple H, and yes, he gives one to China as well, with Jim Ross creepily cheering him on by yelling, quote, Give her what she wants! She wants to be a man! Treat her like a man! And that's a bit strange, because if you ask me, 
I think you shouldn't treat her like a woman, treat her like a man, or treat her like you know her, but that's just, that's just my personal opinion. But on the note of China getting choke slammed, I think this is the first time we've really seen her take a bump from a guy since Stone Cold clotheslined her out of the Royal Rumble. We're not yet in that portion of the Attitude Era where she's regularly mixing it up with the men, so this was still a rarity at the time, and the crowd responded accordingly. But anyway, Kane positions the freshly chokeslammed Hunter and China in opposite corners, in perfect position for X-Pac to hit Bronco Busters on both of them. And then, strangely, after he drags them into the corners, Kane just leaves and heads backstage, but not before Jerry Lawler calls him the big red retard, naturally, because, hey, we're contractually obligated to get that one in every time Kane makes an appearance in the Attitude Era. So X-Pac proceeds to hit Triple H with a Bronco Buster, and then he runs to the opposite corner and hits China with one as well, Unfortunately for X-Pac, though, when he turns back around, Triple H boots him in the stomach, then nails him with a pedigree. Mike Chioda makes the count, and that gives the victory to Triple H at a far too long 19 minutes and 19 seconds. Now raise his hand high and play that shitty theme music. But Sal, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I thought that ending really made both Kane and X-Pac look pretty bad. Because for starters, Kane comes in, looks awesome, hits choke slams on Hunter and China. But then he looks like a complete moron by leaving the ring and heading backstage as if to say, well, that's the end of that chapter. And then X-Pac, who is in prime position to capitalize on Kane's interference, just gets beaten cleanly by a pedigree like a bitch. I thought this really made the tag team champions look pretty pathetic, but I welcome your thoughts not just on the ending, but also on the match as a whole. Okay, as I mentioned, I I enjoyed the beginnings of the Cerebral Assassin character because he was going to town on Xbox neck. Now, for all the praise we gave JR, it's a little disjointed, that white meat baby face, I got my wife, my bride back at home, J- Jim Ross, <laughs> is sitting there going, yeah, choke slam China, fuck her up, Kane, fuck her up. <laughs> Trigger like a man. It doesn't really transition well. I mean, JR completely showing bias at this point, and, and just hoping that Kane beats up China is a little bit much. Uh, then, all that work done by Kane, he did his work, he leaves, because nothing can go wrong if he leaves, and then X-Pac hits the Bronco Buster on Triple H, X-Pac hits the Bronco Buster on China, and obviously X-Pac is gonna pick up Triple H and give him the X-Factor now, right? No, because Triple H is already up. Yeah. So fuck the choke slam. that didn't mean anything. Yeah. He's already up, kicks X-Pac in the stomach, and gives him the pedigree. Why did we have to do all that we did? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't it make more sense if if X Pac did try to pick up Triple H for a move and Triple H like hit him with a nut shot or something and hit him with the pedigree? So he kind of snuck out a win. Like this just this is the beginning of Triple H booking himself to be over and not giving a fuck how it made the other guy look. Yeah, this is this is particularly stuck in my craw because I know, like, when guys come in, like, spoiler, or when Jericho comes in, like, basically they use X-Pac as the benchmark to be like, well, if you can't have a good match with this guy, then you can't have a good match with anybody, right? But it's kind of like, Triple H, you know, if you go back to Backlash, you didn't necessarily have that great a match with him either. You know, and two, I mean, again, 19 minutes is just too long for an Attitude Era crowd, and this is a lot of rest holds. And I don't know if you noticed this, I, I have my headphones on when I watch these, so there is, like, one part in the match where you can clearly hear Triple H talk to the referee and be like, what's the time? Like, like how far how far in are we, you know? I think at that point they were like five minutes into the match, so I was like, ooh, that's not a good, that is not a good indicator. And, yeah, I mean, again, it, 
it, it continues to this day where Triple H, you know, like I like I think I've mentioned to you before, he's had the longest match at something like eight of the past nine WrestleManias. It's like he doesn't need to keep proving himself. He's already well established. At this point, granted, he's not established at this point, but like 19 minutes is too long for this crowd, especially when this story doesn't have the buildup that I feel no, it needed that's going the in. Thing. If, if you made this a blood feud... And, and Triple H and Xbox are both getting TV time, significant TV time every week, and everybody wants to see what happens in the match. And you have Xbox get a bunch of hope spots in this match and almost pull it out, kind of like Jeff Hardy and Taker back in uh, 2001. Fine, great, give them 19 minutes. This match needed to be 10 minutes, and give you could have done the exact same thing, just not have Triple H work over Xbox that much. You could have got the exact same result. And I don't think you need Kane's involvement. Because I get that China's interfering. Guess what? This is long before Kane and X-Pac were a tag team. X-Pac has a history with Triple H. You needed to button up this story with just X-Pac. Adding Kane to it makes me think that Triple H, makes me think that that's how X-Pac's going to win. And when he doesn't, it makes the whole thing look foolish. Agreed. This, this did not do wonders for the Tag Team Champions, in my opinion. And again, going in, I expected a good match, a really good match from these two, from Hunter and X-Pac. But no, it was, I mean, it was not terrible. It's not a terrible match by any stretch of the imagination. It's a good match, but I was hoping for, you know, a great match. But the length really, really hurts them on and this one, I think. It didn't have the build behind it. This is what happens when you don't have a good build. You yes. get just a whatever match. Absolutely. So once that match ends, we get a really quick cut from Hunter and China in the ring to Ken Shamrock emerging from backstage for our next match. And clearly, I think something was edited out on the WWE Network here, but I couldn't find what it was when I tried to research it. Probably an ad for some shitty discontinued product. Yeah. But, but anyway, it is now time for our penultimate match of the evening. Ken Shamrock versus The Undertaker, who is accompanied by Paul Bear. And Sal, if you want to talk about matches I have zero recollection of, Ken Shamrock and The Undertaker actually had a pay-per-view encounter. If you had told me that it happened prior to when I started watching the episodes of Raw, even before Backlash, I would not have believed you. But with that being said, I have to once again give credit to friend of the show Vince Russo here. The build-up for this match was pretty awesome. So just in the past four weeks since WrestleMania, we had the following events. The Ministry kidnaps Stephanie McMahon, and Vince personally enlists Ken Shamrock to find her, which he does by torturing Christian, even though Shamrock had just been given a bloodbath. As payback for that, the Acolytes abduct Shamrock one week later, and The Undertaker sacrifices his sister Ryan after Shamrock's been taken away. The week after that, Shane McMahon takes over control of the corporation, but Shamrock quits because he's loyal to Vince, and also because the corporation didn't attempt to stop the Ministry from sacrificing Ryan. The Ministry then attempts to sacrifice Shamrock himself, but he escapes when the Brood disobeys the Undertaker and starts brawling with the Ministry. And then finally, last week on Raw, the Undertaker appeared on the Titantron and mocked Shamrock by telling him the exact hotel and room number where Ryan was staying at the time, although admittedly this was a bit of a down note after all the other stuff, especially since we never actually got any follow-up on it. But there you have it, Sal. Once again, some great booking of the Undertaker, but of course the feud ultimately has to end up in the ring. Now, quick side note here before we begin, Sal. Remember how I had mentioned that the Columbine High School Massacre took place five days before this show? So, in the days after the murders, it was frequently reported how the two shooters kept themselves and wore black trench coats. So, how does that have any bearing on tonight's show? Well, USA Today published an article showing pictures of various people on television wearing trench coats as being possible influences on the school shooting, and one of the people they showed wearing a trench coat 
The Undertaker. God damn it. Yes. So let's write a major newspaper in the United States put out an article telling people that a wrestler could have been responsible for inspiring two psychos to gun down their classmates, even though there was no evidence whatsoever that they even watched wrestling. So long story short, if you watch The Undertaker's entrance at Backlash, there's a reason why he's not wearing his customary trench coat. Oh, really? Yes. But Viscera was wearing one earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. I guess it's just because The Undertaker was shown in the USA Today. So. Ah, well, okay, so once again, wrestling gets blamed for everything. Exactly. And guess what? It, it, yeah, I don't think that, from what I, from my recollection, those people had no interest in wrestling, never even saw the product. They were more Marilyn Manson fans than anything. So, I, you know, let's fucking blame wrestling for what happened in Columbine. Jesus Christ. You know what's funny, though? And we'll get to this on Monday Night Raw. A quick spoiler from Monday Night Raw. We don't know for any fact whatsoever that the shooters are wrestling fans. We know one of the victims was a wrestling fan, and we know that because the WWE edits out something on the episode of Monday Night Raw that follows this one. We'll get to that, but it's a very interesting thing. I can't wait to touch on that because I want to hear your thoughts on it, but it's it's a very bizarre little thing that WWE decides to remove from the network. So yes, there's that, no trench coat, because, you know, The Undertaker gunned down a bunch of people, obviously. But let's get into the actual match here, and I have to note, less than a minute after this match begins, it probably isn't a good sign that we immediately get chance of, we want Ryan, followed by You Screw Brett, which was, of course, directed at referee Earl Hebner. I think that was a pretty good indication the crowd wasn't going to have much patience for this one. Unfortunately, though... Real quick, so, uh... I was just thinking of this now. You know, how dare... I could kind of understand if there were parents against wrestling, um, if any of them might have been opposed to the Undertaker character, because, you know, you could see the WF being like, how can you blame us? And then, while I have this clip here of of guys dressed all in black sacrificing people, still, how can you blame us? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, what the WWE edits out from the episode of Monday Night Raw is actually a very positive thing for them because one of the parents of the victims actually reaches out to them to be like, my son was a fan. So it's, they, I'll, I'll get to it when we get to raw, but I was like, I was so perplexed as to why they removed it because it actually is like, excuse me, a, like a parent of a WWF fan coming to them and being like, Hey, how about some unity? So uh, maybe they just didn't want to associate or didn't want people to associate the thought with it. Maybe, maybe. But 20 years later, I thought it was a nice gesture, but apparently they, they removed it because they didn't like it, so all right then. But yes, yeah, so unfortunately, throughout the rest of the match, the fans pretty much seem to greet them with, with pretty much absolute silence. They just do not care about the match, and honestly, I can't blame them because just like the Triple H X-Pac match which preceded it, this one was just way too fucking long. When I saw the dots at the bottom of the screen on the WWE Network when this match started, I thought the huge gap between them had to be a mistake, but no, sadly, it was not. I would say the majority of this match followed the format of kick, punch, rest hold, kick, punch, rest hold, which was not very entertaining, although at one point, The Undertaker busted out the bow and arrow submission on Shamrock, so that was at least something new from his arsenal. And shortly after that, Taker followed it up with a one-legged Boston Crab, so he was at least trying some new stuff to to liven up the party, albeit a little bit unsuccessfully. Uh, Moving forward a little bit, we got an awkward spot where Taker nailed Shamrock with a big boot, he went for the cover, and it appeared as though Shamrock forgot to kick out, and Earl Hebner had to basically stop his count, even though Shamrock's shoulders were still down on the mat. So Ken Shamrock, not always the sharpest knife in the drawer. 
But shortly after that, Shamrock managed to put Taker in the ankle lock, but then Bradshaw ran down to the ring with a baseball bat. Bradshaw got up on the ring apron, but Shamrock knocked him down to the floor, and then we actually got what I thought was an awesome spot. So Taker grabbed Shamrock by the throat and picked him up for a choke slam, but Shamrock reversed it by leaping into the air, putting Taker into an arm scissors, and then taking him down to the mat into an arm bar, which was definitely the best part of this match by a mile. Also, one of the highlights of the entire show for me because it was so unexpected. But then the finish of the match came when Shamrock attempted to scoop slam The Undertaker, but we got that classic reversal where Taker grabbed Shamrock, fell backwards, and landed on his feet, transitioning perfectly into tombstone position, which, shall we say, he is not as effective at in the present day, just ask Roman Reigns. And from there, yes, Taker does indeed nail Shamrock with a tombstone, and Earl Hebner makes the three count, meaning that your winner at an unconscionably long 18 minutes and 53 seconds is The Undertaker. And hey, remember earlier tonight when Taker said there would be a horrible tragedy? He was right. I just didn't think it would be the match itself. And after the bell rings, Bradshaw appears to ask for The Undertaker's permission to work over Shamrock some more, and Taker grants it, so Bradshaw heads into the ring with his baseball bat as The Undertaker and Paul Bearer head off backstage. Bradshaw then proceeds to jab Shamrock in the stomach with the bat, nail him with a power bomb, and then choke him into unconsciousness with the bat as well. Memo to Bradshaw, if you come into the ring with a baseball bat, why not just swing it at the fucking guy? I, I guess the obvious answer would be that it would kill him, though, so touche. But also, why the hell is Bradshaw, a guy who's one half of a jobber tag team, getting to beat the crap out of Ken Shamrock after a match? I mean, why should he get any time to shine, especially when we know it's not going to lead to a singles push? So, strange decision, and for me, one more thing about this match that didn't work, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, Sal, what did you think of, of this match? Full disclosure, Oh, this match put me to sleep. Oh, literally, I was watching this, watching this match, and admittedly, it was it was a little bit late at night, but not ungodly. You know, it was like about ten thirty, eleven, and and I'm watching it, and and the crowd's not into it, and this was the person, by the way, who I said did the better impression of Lex Luger, because <laughs> Shamrock decided he was going to vocally sell everything, annoyingly, the same. And, and this match actually put me to sleep. I, I woke up as the finish happened going, I think I missed part of that, and I have to go back and rewatch it for the show. I thought you were going to say you woke up with uh, with Backlash having just ended. No, no. And I was, oh my god, like, this match was so fucking boring. God almighty, this it match really was, was awful. And it wasn't, like, like both guys, I thought, like, worked hard. And, and to be fair, when I went back and rewatched it, I'd say the final two minutes was, was not bad. It started to pick up. Yeah, that's fair. But the first 17 yeah. minutes was un, just ungodly awful. It's funny you mention that, too, because I actually, because I had no recollection of Taker and Shamrock having a pay-per-view match, I went back and looked at this, and it seems like a lot of people actually do kind of like this match, because they, they take the, it seems to be the general opinion that it's like a match that's quote-unquote ahead of its time, because a lot of the match is Shamrock trying to, you know, catch a limb on The Undertaker to try to make him submit. It's like a UFC, I guess from that UFC-style format of like, you know, I'm just trying to grab an arm or trying to grab a leg, whatever I can get to make you tap out. No, and, and the story eventually, the way it told, that's why I said I thought it picked up in the final couple minutes, because it, it made sense. Jamrock finally got him in the ankle lock. That spot where Hebner counted three and <laughs> yeah. then completely was like, oh no, Shamrock got his shoulder up. I think that did a lot of damage to the crowd as well. Yeah, that didn't help, yeah. Oh no, they were they just shit all over that. And and 
You say that uh, Shamrock got him up in a scoop slam. I actually had that he got he tried to give him a tombstone because that's what it looked like. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then you know no one should ever try to do that to the Undertaker because he'll fucking reverse on your ass and plant you and beat you. Ask Punk. So that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and then so I kind of had a similar note as you had. First of all, Bradshaw coming down to the ring with a baseball bat. Why Bradshaw? At, at the very least, Viscera has been doing all Taker's dirty work. And then if you're going to have Bradshaw do it, then have Bradshaw and Farouk do it. Make it very easy that it's both of them. Not only that, Bradshaw asked to finish off Shamrock when, let's be honest here, the leader of the ministry should be like, you go in there and you fucking finish him off. Not Taker just being like, meh. Yeah. Whatever, sure. Yeah, right. He does kind of do like a shoulder shrug, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah, and then to your point, my note here literally reads, Why didn't Bradshaw bash Kenny Skull in with the bat? <laughs> I mean, you have a fucking baseball bat. You poke him in the stomach and get him in a chokehold. Exactly. No. You, I don't care if you have to gimmick the bat. Beat the fuck out of him. It's funny because, well, isn't there a spot eventually, I don't know if you remember the spot, where Taker does smack someone in the head with a baseball bat. Do you know what I'm talking yes. about? Yes. Yes. I'm not going to spoil who that is, but I think that might actually be in the coming weeks. But it looks pretty awesome when he does it, I gotta say. I mean, like, this is wrestling, guys. We, we can work this. It's, yeah. It can be a work. Just, Bradshaw was very underwhelming with his beating of Kenny. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Just make a balsa wood baseball bat, and you swing it, and it looks like it's a, it looks like it's a regular wooden bat, and it just falls apart. You're good. It's like, the, it's like the, the cinder blocks that they use. In you the don't movie. even have to go at his head. Do you remember when Nails beat the shit out of Bossman with the oh. nightstick? Yeah. Do that. Nice. You know, and he just beat every other part of his body. And then put the pictures in the WWF magazine. <laughs> with all the bruises and yeah. like the bandages. I still remember that. Yeah, that's, oh, that's, that's scarred me. Boss man. You know what? They followed that up. They followed it up with Nails taking on Virgil at SummerSlam. That's oh. all I'm going to say. And like choking him for five straight minutes. Ugh. He thought it was Vince. But yeah, I mean, so obviously, so we're obviously of the same mindset on the uh, Undertaker-Ken Shamrock match, right? We're kind of not so great. But I mean, hey, like I said, a lot of people will stick up for this match. So you know, check it out for yourself. But just, again, be warned. It's a, it's about a 19-minute match. The does not fucking help you. Yeah, and the crowd does not. They, they give them nothing. They're, they're quiet pretty much the entire time. After the initial chance of, like, of we want Ryan and you screwed Brett, they're, they're pretty much quiet for the remainder of the match, which is... Probably, they, they, when they were chanting, we want Ryan, I had no idea what they were saying. I was like, what?! What are you fucking people saying? I thought they were saying, we want iron. I was like, what, like in your diet? What are you talking about? (laughs) Yes, we want iron. We need more protein in our diet. It was a very anemic audience on this night. And so finally, it is now time for our main event WWF Championship match. By the way, uh, the crowd was into this one, needless to say. I was going to say, finally is the right term. I think everybody in the arena felt the same way, too. Yep, and it is champion Stone Cold Steve Austin versus challenger The Rock with Shane McMahon acting as the special guest referee. And remember, Shane has now changed the stipulation to make this a no-holds-barred match, but Stone Cold will be disqualified and stripped of the title if he lays a hand on Shane. And speaking of matches that have had a great build-up, this one has been awesome. So to recap, Austin beats Rock in the main event of WrestleMania, The Rock takes possession of Austin's smoking skull belt. Shane McMahon taunts Stone Cold by putting an image of the belt on the Titantron, which leads to Austin and Big Show destroying the screen. The Rock tells Stone Cold to meet him on a bridge in Detroit, where Rock then throws Austin into the river below. The Rock holds a funeral for Stone Cold the following week, which gets interrupted when Austin pulls up in a monster truck and crushes The Rock's brand new Lincoln Continental. And then... After Austin beats the crap out of The Rock, it appears as though he's going to get the last laugh heading into Backlash. 
until Shane McMahon sneaks up on him and nails him with a shovel. Amazing stuff there, and yes, I had completely forgotten that basically the entire build-up for this match, from WrestleMania to Backlash, was pretty much all related to The Rock stealing the smoking skull belt. Simple, but effective. And before the match begins, we cut backstage, where we see Vince and Stephanie in the parking lot with four police officers, your favorite part here, Sal. Vince assures Stephanie that she'll be fine, and he tells her to wait for him in the limo, and then... We get one of the creepier moments I've seen in the WWF lately when Stephanie is about to get into the car, but Vince first says, "Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh, give me a kiss. And then Vince kisses her on the lips. What the fuck? Sal, I know you had some thoughts on this one as well. Let's pull back the curtain. What did I text you when I saw this part? (laughs) I forget the exact wording, but it was very... I, I, I believe against. it was, you. what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Which is an appropriate reaction. So here's the deal. First of all, I was not aware of this spot. So it wasn't as if I had any type of inkling that this was coming. This literally caught me off guard. And I will say this. If you were at a baseball game, or if you were at, I don't know... Uh, a movie theater or something, and you saw an adult woman with her father, and her father, uh, let, let's say he was elderly, and, and she's helping him out of the chair, and he's like, oh, thanks, honey, give me a kiss. It would be a little creepy. It would, it would, but you'd be like, okay, whatever. You know, that's their life, I guess. That's how their family shows affection. I'm, I'm open-minded, okay? But here's what we know as fact. Vince McMahon wrote a script on his television show purposely to include this shot of Stephanie being left in the limo as he goes and watches the match. And you could have left it at that, but instead, Vince purposely put in this segment, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, give me a kiss first, and then proceeds to kiss his adult daughter on fucking television in front of the entire world. On the lips. On the lips. Not on the cheek, not on the forehead, on the fucking lips. And I'm sorry, but the fact that you sat down and wrote this segment it is disgusting. Yeah. Oh, this will get a good reaction. No, you're a sick fuck, okay? Yeah. yeah. You are a sick fuck, and even your daughter seemed like, oh, I don't really want to do this, but he told me I have to. <laughs> where I thought you were going was the part where there was the alleged Vince incest storyline with Stephanie. That would come a few years later. Yeah, but, I mean, that's also in the same ballpark as that. Not quite the same. Of course. No, it is. It is. It absolutely is. Because, I'm sorry, you don't say, uh, 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 give me a kiss to anybody who's not your wife or your girlfriend. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't just say that line. Because in the segment, literally, Stephanie's about to, like, okay, I'm going to go hide in the limo because the match is going on. And he's like, oh, before you get in that limo. Give me, give me some tongue. Give me a kiss. I'm gonna cop a feel of your breasts. <laughs> That's afterwards. It's so fucking weird. I, I'm sorry, and it's not. Look, Vince was playing a babyface at this point. So for anybody out there in listener land that wants to tell me he was playing into his character, no, he wasn't. He fucking wasn't. He was supposed to be cheered. Nobody in Providence felt comfortable watching Vince kiss his daughter on the lips. That's a good point, too. Yeah, he is like, they're trying to turn him babyface, and it's kind of like, well, let's watch this guy make out with his daughter. Like, uh, what? That's, is that a babyface thing to do? A lot of people give Titus O'Neil crap. 
because at one of the pay-per-views, he kissed one of his teenage sons on the lips. Oh, yeah, that's right. Again, not a segment he wrote. That's how his affection naturally, that's how his family naturally shows affection. That's his business. But this was a segment that Vince not only sat down and wrote, but wrote it specifically to get a gross reaction. <laughs> Dude, you're a sick fuck. Or, or maybe the, the alternative could be that he just thinks that it's completely normal to kiss your, your adult daughter on the lips. And he's just like, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. Kiss Stephanie on the lips. It's just the way we've always been. All right, pal. I, I don't know. I, I guarantee you if Vince watched Shane kiss his mother on the lips, he would be like, that's gross. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. But yeah, so basically that's our lead into the main event is Vince McMahon kissing Stephanie on the lips. It took me a moment to recall. I had to like pause, kind of separate myself from that moment. I actually put a picture of that very moment on the Raw Attitude Podcast Twitter if you want to go take a look, which you probably don't want to do, but yes. Did you get comments? Oh, I got some comments, yeah. I did. So see, it does absolutely create that reaction. (laughs) Yes. Not just me. No, no, definitely not. But yes, so so from that backstage makeout session, we go into the arena for our WWF Championship match, and yes, The Rock comes to the ring with Austin's smoking skull belt draped over his shoulder, and before Stone Cold makes his entrance, Shane McMahon tells an attendant at ringside to take the smoking skull belt back to Shane's office, presumably so Austin can't grab it for himself, and you may want to remember that little tidbit for later on. Uh, slight interjection here. Big pop for the great one. Yes. This this showed to me where he was going to be going soon. Maybe as soon as tomorrow night. I was surprised he got this reaction because he wasn't getting... I mean, he was getting kind of a pop of 15, but, but this was like, yay, it's The Rock! Well, I think I mentioned it on a previous episode that, like, one according to The Observer, one of the plans was to keep The Rock a heel until SummerSlam. And basically, they're kind of... Pretty soon, they're like, yeah, we can't, we can't drag this out. We can't do it anymore. He's just too good. Yeah, another, like, what, fucking four months? Yeah, no. Can you imagine, well, I mean, I guess in the present day they might do shit like that where they just completely ignore the fan reaction, but back then it's like, this guy's getting a lot of cheers. Well, this, this is what happened when he was first heel with the nation. It, it, he was so popular that they had to turn him face, but I thought they did a great job then of being like, here's Face Rock, and you wanted this for so long, we're just going to take it away from you. You know, it, it's been, it, it's funny seeing Rock cut promos on this night because he's still heel corporate Rock. Think about where he is in that promo before the match, uh, before the main event at WrestleMania 2000. Where, where he is, like, character-wise. Like, so much confidence, and the crowd literally lingering on every single word he says. And it's going to be fun to see him getting right to that ascension of the peak of this business, where he absolutely belongs. Yeah, for sure. To the point where it becomes, every week on Raw, you're getting a Rock promo, no matter what. Because the fans, like, want to get their money's worth. They want to hear The Rock run down his opponent and say some crazy, stupid shit. So, yeah. We're not quite there yet, but it's it's coming. It's coming, folks. It's, like, ready to boil over at this point. Yeah, it's coming around the corner. And so when Stone Cold emerges from backstage, we see that he has the usual WWF championship belt with him, the big circular one, but he immediately runs down to the ring, throws it on the ground, and goes after the rock, so we are now underway. And early on in the match, both men take full advantage of Shane's laid-back refereeing style as they exit the ring and brawl up the aisle toward the stage. At one point, The Rock randomly finds a fire extinguisher and hits Stone Cold in the head with it, and then he Irish whips him into a chain-link fence they had set up near the entrance, causing both Austin and the fence to fall to the ground. But then, because turnabout is fair play, Stone Cold does the exact same spot to The Rock on the other side of the stage, so fences are just being destroyed all over the place. 
And Jim Ross has an interesting line when that happens. Quote, and the walls of Jericho go tumbling down. So perhaps JR knows something we don't there, Sal? I don't know. All I'm saying is that JR was head of talent relations at this point. Yes. And we know. And we know from Jericho's book that they were having conversations in this timeline. That's what right. I'm saying. And we also know, if you listen to my, if you've been listening to the past few episodes, just a few weeks ago, Jericho had his final match on Monday Nitro. So, yeah, that's a, you never know. So the brawling then continues with Austin finding one of those blue production crates with wheels on it, and with Rock down on the ground on all fours, he proceeds to push the crate right into the side of Rock's head. Jesus Christ. I'm not sure how much contact that actually made with his head, but there was certainly a loud thud upon impact, and it sounded goddamn brutal. I was going to say, it looked great, it sounded great, so... So eventually, they make their way back into the ring, where Austin begins stomping Rock in one of the corners. Shane then intervenes and gets in Stone Cold's face, pushing him several times in an attempt to get Austin to hit him. And remember, of course, if Stone Cold lays a hand on Shane, the boy Wonder will disqualify him and award the belt to The Rock. But Austin doesn't take the bait. And that in-ring segment doesn't last very long, because pretty soon, both men exit the ring and go right back down to the floor. And at this point, Stone Cold then puts Rock on top of the Spanish announce table and sets him up for a pile driver, but Rock hits Austin with a low blow to escape. And then, yes, Rock nails Stone Cold with a rock bottom right through the Spanish announce table. Remember, though, this is no holds barred, but not falls count anywhere like a hardcore match, so Rock does still need to pin him inside the ring. So, one real quick note about the Spanish announce team. I appreciate that they are calling Austin Stone Cold Steve Austin. Mm. They say that phrase in English as opposed to Piedra Fria Steve Austin. <laughs> are you saying, were they calling The Rock La Roca as well? No, they said The Rock. Nice. <laughs> as well they should, I suppose. Well they should. I mean, hell, we say all the Japanese names in perfect sequence as they are on TV today, so. <laughs> I don't know how perfectly I say that. Well, but we try. We, we try. <laughs> So Rock appears to have no desire to get Austin back into the ring just yet, because he then throws Stone Cold over the barricade, and we get our customary attitude or brawl into the crowd. But that only lasts for a little bit, until Rock tosses Stone Cold back over the barricade and near ringside. Rock then puts Austin on top of JR in the King's commentary table, and it appears as though he's planning on putting Stone Cold through another table. But then he looks toward a cameraman. And it should be noted that we then switch to the view from that guy's camera, and for some reason the quality looks incredibly shitty and well, grainy. I was going to say that guy's handheld fucking RCA camera. Yeah. I'm guessing maybe they used like a less expensive camera for this spot, given what was given what was about to happen, but that's just my speculation. So anyway, Rock then proceeds to just take the camera for himself and become his own cameraman, and well, let's just pick it up from there.
Okay, so what you heard there was Rock taking control of the camera, standing on top of the announce table, and, hilariously, when he filmed Austin lying down on the table, we then get the image of Rock's middle finger coming into the frame and flipping him off. Truly an amazing moment, it really is. Unfortunately for Rock, he then starts talking trash and filming the fans, but when he turns the camera back towards Stone Cold, we now see that Austin is back on his feet, he gives Rock the double bird, kicks him in the stomach, and yes we get a stone-cold stunner on top of the table. Now, truthfully, the stunner itself looked a little bit sloppy because both men just kind of, like, slid off the table and fell to the ground. But when we get the replay of the spot showing the view from the Rocks camera, it actually makes it look a lot better. But, Sal, did you enjoy this camera spot as much as I did here? I don't give a shit if the stunner looked shitty. That was so fucking amazing, and it was done perfectly. Rocks talking shit to Austin, who's down. He's You can see his finger go in the camera, and he's flipping him off. He goes to the fans, he calls them all trash. <laughs> Just like a perfectly directed comedy skit. When he goes back to Austin, Austin is alive, awake, and flipping Austin, <laughs> flipping Rock off and giving him the stunner. <laughs> so fucking great to see that from that camera's angle. And, and such a great fuck. I mean, that was amazing. Every time Rock would try to get on commentary, or get, in this case, the camera, uh, it always backfired on him, which I thought was just... <laughs> absolutely played into the hilarity of the whole rock persona. Absolutely. I think there's also, if I recall correctly, there's also like a little touch of like, when Rock starts filming the fans, you can hear King on commentary being like, Rock! Rock! Yes! Yes! <laughs> He's trying to warn him that Austin is getting up. But, but to no avail. But yeah, you're right. Like, the image of, of Rock filming Austin and then just like, randomly, his middle finger just kind of like, enters the frame. I think Rock should try directing at some point in the future. I mean, he's he's already an actor. I think he should try directing as well because that was that was some great stuff there. Got the timing for it, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Absolutely. So finally, both men make it back into the ring where Austin attempts another stunner, but Rock reverses it by pushing him away, which leads Stone Cold accidentally colliding with Shane McMahon. So Rock then follows that up by hitting Austin with a rock bottom, but Rock is still worn out from that table stunner, so he doesn't cover him. And interestingly, instead of just flat-out disqualifying Stone Cold for running into him, Shane then decides to grab Rock's arm and drape it on top of Austin, and then he counts the one, the two, but not the three, as Stone Cold manages to get an arm up just in time. But don't worry, Shane has a backup plan. He then exits the ring and grabs the big circular title belt. He gets a running start and swings the belt at Austin, but Stone Cold ducks and Shane accidentally nails the Rock. Austin then pins Rock, and Shane goes down to count the one, the two, but then he refuses to count the three, and he shoots Austin the double bird in a repeat of what was pretty much the exact same way he screwed Stone Cold over back at the Survivor Series. So this was the moment that they got me. They really? got me. At, even at this age, they fucking got me, because as I mentioned, I actually thought Shane was going to find a way to honor his work, you know, his dead grandfather. His dead grandfather's in his word that on his grandfather's grave that he would not, he would count every time and he would count if the rock was down. And when he stopped that count, I was like, "Oh, you son of a bitch! Yeah. <laughs> you fucking asshole! You completely just spit on your grandfather's grave," which was the exact reaction that they wanted. Yes, and. Kudos to them, because that's some great fucking heel work right there. They hooked me. Even after all these years, they still fucking hooked me. 
Absolutely. I, I had no recollection of how this match ended, but like you said, that actually provides a perfect catalyst for what happens next. So basically, the defiant Shane McMahon then exits the ring and starts walking up the ramp, but at that point, we get a rather interesting moment. So yes, as you heard there, Vince McMahon emerged from backstage holding Austin's smoking skull belt, which Shane had previously asked an attendant to put in his office. Shane then got in his father's face and taunted him, at which point Vince leveled his own son in the face with the title belt to a huge pop from the crowd, because apparently we all just want to beat the shit out of our own children and get away with it. And back in the ring, Rock smacked Austin in the face with the big circular belt, and referee Earl Hebner ran in to count the pinfall, but again, only a two-count. Rock then picked up the belt yet again to hit Stone Cold with it, but this time, Austin kicked him in the stomach and nailed him with a Stone Cold stunner. And then, in pretty much the only instance I have ever seen this spot outside of the Royal Rumble, Rock immediately pops back up to his feet after the stunner, so Stone Cold hits Rock with the belt, and yes, Hebner then counts the one, the two, and the three. Your winner and still World Wrestling Federation champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And after the match was over, in a truly shocking moment for the time, Vince McMahon tossed the smoking skull belt into the ring, returning Stone Cold's stolen property back to him. Yes, after bitterly feuding with Austin for more than a year, Vince McMahon has apparently extended an olive branch, not to mention the fact that he basically just helped Stone Cold win the match and retain the title. I imagine not a lot of people saw that one coming back in 1999. 
And so, with Stone Cold holding both title belts in the air, we get a quick shot of Vince at the top of the ramp watching the celebration, and it appears he may actually be approving of an Austin title reign for once. So, Sal, what did you think of our main event? This is the match that saved the pay-per-view for me. There were other moments on this night that weren't bad. I actually enjoyed Foley and Big Show for what it was. But this match, with how over both these guys were, was phenomenal. I thought the level of violence was great because they took it to another level past their match at 15. And again, Shane hooked me with his fucking work in this match. Having Vince come out, I see. I didn't remember how this match ended either. So I, you know, with Shane as the ref, you, you got to think, well, how are they going to get out of this? So having Vince come out with Earl, I thought was a nice touch. And actually, Rock didn't look bad in defeat because he did everything he needed to do. He took yeah. the big fight to Austin. He almost had him about four times, and he just happened to get caught with the stunner. So that was that was great. Great moment for Stone Cold. Great first title defense after Mania. Two things that I did not like, and the little nitpicky things, but the camera guy and the director completely whiffed on Vince throwing Austin the belt because you didn't see it. You yeah, just heard JR true. talk about it. True. And I'm like, well, where's the fucking visual of Vince throwing the belt and looking at Austin? So <laughs> bad on the director and the camera guy there. And then the only other thing, I, I enjoyed Austin holding up both belts to celebrate, but it definitely felt a little, you can tell they're going someplace else. This isn't the end, because it didn't have that big, like, explosive, like, Austin did it again, like, it was kind of almost like, we're waiting for our cue. <laughs> right, yeah. Which we'll get to in just a moment. Yeah, That's but, what but very like. nitpicky things. Other than that, I love this match. This match also went about 18 minutes. But it didn't feel like it. Oh, not at all. It felt like 10. I enjoyed the spots where they threw each other into the chain link fences and then both came collapsing down. Like you said, turnabout was fair play. That spot where he rolled that fucking blue metal contraption into Rock's head, I thought he legit gave Rock a concussion. And then, you know, great work by Shane, great work by all involved. And and Austin pops the, the whole fucking Providence Civic Center was on their feet at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they love them some Austin. That's obvious, even by today's standards. But it's just great all around. Great work by all guys involved. Yeah. I mean, no matter how much the crowd was, you know, quote-unquote, worn down by the backstage boiler room brawl, the long Hunter and X-Pac match, the long Shamrock and Undertaker match, they were up for this 100%, and rightfully and so. And they enjoyed every fucking minute of it, which was great. Yeah, which and I did as well, because this is it goes without saying for me, this is match of the night, no question. Oh, absolutely, and these two had a chemistry about them. I forgot about this. This match seems like a lost gem when you think about Rock and Austin. Yes, yeah, I, I actually talked about this when I was talking with um, William Rankin on the WrestleMania episode. I completely forgot they even had a match at Backlash, but then when I was talking with him, I was like, oh, that's right, we hadn't gotten the camera spot yet, because I thought that was at WrestleMania. But no, it's, it's actually at Backlash, so yes, we did get this one last match with them. And again, I think this is actually better than the WrestleMania match. It's not a knock on the WrestleMania match, because that's a good one too, but I think this is probably the better match of the two. For a guy who spends a lot of time reviewing WrestleManias, I have to agree with you. Yeah. There, there you go, yeah, you would know. 
And it's actually, I like the point you made, too, about the fact that, you know, Shane McMahon, Shane was not really getting involved in this match. It was pretty much Rock and Austin going at each other. Eventually, Shane does. You know, he takes the belt uh, and makes the count that one time. But up to that point, like, everything with, like, Austin putting, or with uh, Rock putting Austin through the table, he does that completely on his own. He takes the camera completely on his own, and Shane's just kind of standing by doing his referee duties. So it's not a case of, like, Shane constantly, like, interfering and, like, low-blowing Austin, like Rock is made to look pretty strong on his own, and he definitely gets a couple near falls. There's there's definitely a couple times where the crowd is, I think, pretty much thinks that the match is going to be over and Rock's going to win. I think one of them is when um, he hits Austin with the belt, and the crowd kind of buys that. So, yeah, again, Rock does look very strong, and it kind of, not to spoil too much, but it does play into what happens tomorrow night, where... Rock takes the camera and he's looking at the people and the people are what distract the rock instead of being concerned with the match. He's concerned with the people. So that's, that's, I think a good catalyst there too. But yes, this is really good match. Again, if if you're going to watch just one match from the show, watch this, but you know, top to bottom, you said this is the show, the the match that saved the show. I think this is, you know, I, I would say thumbs trending slightly up because even the matches, you know, like I said, where they lost the crowd, Triple H and X-Pac, Taker and Shamrock, they're not terrible matches. They're just matches that go on too long. So I would still give it a a thumbs trending up from there. But with that being said, the show, surprisingly, after all that craziness, is not over. Because we then cut to the parking lot where Stephanie McMahon, remember her, she's still waiting for her father in the limousine. Her lover. Yes, (laughs) she's waiting for her lover in the limousine with the police officer standing guard. And, well, let's just take a listen to what happens next. So what you heard there was the Ministry of Darkness walking towards Stephanie's limousine, which caused one of the cops to bang on the roof of the limo, signaling for the driver to pull away. Stephanie then told the driver to wait for Vince, and we got a view from inside the limo as the window rolled down to reveal that, yes, the Undertaker was the one driving. And, of course, he gave us that iconic line, Where to, Stephanie? as the boss's daughter screamed in protest. We then cut one final time back into the arena, where Vince is watching Stone Cold celebrate, completely unaware that his daughter has been abducted by the Ministry of Darkness. And we go off the air with Austin downing a bunch of Steve Weisers, as Jim Ross says that someone needs to get word to Vince McMahon. And that was how we wrapped things up. So, Sal, what did you think of our closing segment here? And again, you said that uh, this match saved the show, but I'd, li- I'd like to hear your thoughts on Backlash as a whole, if you thought it was a, a successful pay-per-view, I should say. Okay, so uh, saving the show more so the fact that, wow, you really remember this pay-per-view because of this match, uh, in a good way. So, there's, there was nothing wrong with this pay-per-view. It was okay. I think it, it was definitely in that C-plus, B-minus territory before the main event. Yeah. And and then when we got what we got from the main event, it pushed it up for me huge. Because there are certain times, especially in the WWF, where a main event can make a pay-per-view memorable and put it into one of those upper echelon tiers. Uh, and I think this was the case. This was 
pretty much on the same idea of what Hell in the Cell between Foley and Taker did for King of the Ring that year. Where the show was fine, but then this is the moment you remember. And for me, the Austin Rock main event was phenomenal. After the match, it was a little bit weird that you have all these cops around the limo, cops with guns, and the ministry walks out, and the cops look scared to death. (laughs) And they tell the limo to get out, like, okay, go, go, go. Like, why? Why would you do that? You're you're the fucking cops. And somehow they let the Undertaker get inside. The yeah, because well he teleports, so it's okay. That's true. Yeah, that's that's fair. Uh, no, no, no! Wait for my dad. Poor Stephanie. Driver, wait for my dad. Driver, wait for my dad. I, I will say this: as much as I didn't like this idea of booking in pay per views in Raw, we saw this a lot. Sometimes we see it today, where they end a pay per view with a hook for Raw. Yes. It's a catch-22, because I think the pay-per-view should be good enough to stand on its own, but I get it, you want people to tune in on Monday night. So, I, I get the idea, but now that being said, what a great fucking hook. Yeah. I mean, you're telling me anybody who watched this pay-per-view in 1999 wasn't like, oh my god, I can't wait to turn on Raw tomorrow night. Because what the fuck, The Undertaker has succeeded. He's captured Stephanie McMahon. As he's been saying he's been going to do it for like the past two months, basically. And you and I were both just saying, we had no recollection that the where to Stephanie moment was from Backlash. I thought it was from like an episode of Monday Night Raw. I completely thought it was from Raw. And I thought it carried over one week after that. But uh, no, it's it's at Backlash. And then the next night on Raw, my goodness, what what a uh, what a segment this leads into on Monday Night Raw. I'll just I'll just say that before we get there. But yeah, this is this is a really good lead into Raw. And again, you know, the, the pay-per-view, I think, on its own was strong enough. Just kind of like tacking on the hook to the very end of it, where it's like, here's what's going to happen on Raw. So I was very much a fan of this ending as well, knowing what's coming after this. Also very smart that Vince has no idea what's going on. Yes, right. You have JR and, and, and Lawler being like, Vince, Vince, oh my God. Like, And Vince completely, you know, just blind to what's actually going on outside of the arena. Exactly. Because if he knew, he'd presumably be running out. Yeah, and, and, and instead you, you get the moment of Vince kind of accepting Austin as the champ, a, a move he kind of helped make on this night, which was interesting when you think of their history. So overall, thumbs up, and definitely becomes a must-watch for anybody who wanted to watch Raw on April 26th of 1999. Absolutely. In the segment that I end up complimenting Vince Russo for, which caused him to follow me on Twitter. So, And as a quick side note, uh, in case you were wondering, Dave Meltzer, big fan of this main event, calling it the best WWF pay-per-view match of the year. Although I guess that's not really such high praise because there probably aren't that many other contenders at this point in 99. I can only think of maybe the Mankind Rock I Quit match from Royal Rumble, the Mankind Rock Last Man Standing match from St. Valentine's Day Massacre, or the first Austin Rock match from WrestleMania, if you want to be generous. But yes, Meltzer quite enjoyed the Backlash main event. And so before we wrap up, here are some quick stats on this pay-per-view. So Backlash did about... 398,000 pay-per-view buys, which is about half of what WrestleMania did the previous month. Although, if you compare Backlash to the April 1998 pay-per-view Unforgiven, that one did 309,000 buys, so they've actually increased that number by almost 100,000 since last year. And as I mentioned a few episodes ago, WCW's Spring Stampede pay-per-view did 
255,000 buys, so they beat them by almost 150,000 this month. So all in all, I think you can definitely consider that a success. So with that being said, Sal, are you ready to move on to Monday Night Raw? Absolutely. Let's go. Then let's do it. We're going to come back in just a moment, but before we do, I'm going to go ahead and play the tribute to Ravishing Rick Rude that the WWF aired this week, featuring comments from Vince McMahon himself, as well as Terry Taylor, who was a friend of Rick's. So take a listen to that, and we'll be right back. Wrestling Federation in 1987, ravishing Rick Rude quickly rose to superstardom. His sculptured physique and unabashed charisma endeared him to the fans. Rick Rude was the embodiment of everything you loved to hate. Fellas, please try to contain your jealousy for just a moment. The ladies would like to have silence while I take my robe off and show them what a real sexy body looks like. I think Ravishing Rick Rude personified sports entertainment in, in many, many, many ways. Uh, and, and one of them was the way that he would begin uh, his matches, in which you would grab the microphone, is what I'd like to have right now. It's for all you southern swamp sounds, for all you fat, ugly, Rhode Island rednecks, Minnesota meatheads, New York nerds, take a look at this body. This man exudes arrogance from every pore. Ah, here it comes. Oh my, the rude awakening. Nobody gets up after that. Rick Rude's physical prowess earned him the Intercontinental Championship in 1988. But it seemed his primary focus was always the ladies. I'm going to give some lucky young lady a rude Awakening. Oh my goodness. Ravishing Rick Rude with a rude awakening. Because of my ravishing body and my gorgeous facial features, people have a tendency to overlook my inward beauty. Well, there's two Rick Rudes. The performer on television who was flamboyant and physical and exciting and larger than life but in real life he was one of the most down-to-earth honest straightforward people you'd ever meet the rick rude outside the ring was at heart a family man he was a loving husband and father of three behind the extraordinary performer was an extraordinary man the world wrestling federation will forever be indebted to him for his enormous contributions And we have returned. So, Sal, are you ready to jump into Monday Night Raw and head down the road to Over the Edge? Well, I mean, I'm ready to jump into Monday Night Raw. Other than that, you're on that road on your own. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Well, let's do it. It is Monday, April 26th, 1999, and we are live from the Hartford Civic Center in Hartford, Connecticut, now called the XL Center in the present day, and we are just a little more than an hour's drive from WWF headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include 10 episodes of Raw, 5 episodes of SmackDown, and a handful of pay-per-views, including 
1990 Survivor Series, No Way Out 2000, Vengeance 2004, WrestleMania 11, a.k.a. the one that gets my vote for worst WrestleMania of all time, and Money in the Bank 2019. Hey, wait a second. Money in the Bank 2019? Hey, I was just there a few months ago. And Sal, I didn't even realize that I was in the same arena where a certain famous moment on this episode of Raw takes place, but I suppose we'll get to that in just a little bit. Just think, you could have taken a picture and said, this is where that moment happened. Right here in Hartford, Connecticut. So much history. So we open the show with still photographs from Backlash last night, courtesy of WWF Magazine, of course. However, Sal, did you know that these still photos were actually not the first thing which was shown on this episode of Raw back in 1999? I did not know that. I'm hoping that what was shown was a milk carton with Stephanie's face on it. And that would actually make a lot of sense. But actually, so they edited something out on the WWE Network, and it was a black screen with some scrolling text, which I alluded to in part one. What the text said was, quote, Earlier today, the World Wrestling Federation received a request from the parents of Matthew Kector to join them tonight in remembering their son, his friends, and classmates who lost their lives in the senseless tragedy at Columbine High School. The WWF joins parents, teachers, and community leaders in recognizing the importance of banding together to meet the needs of troubled teens. Violence is never an answer. Through communication, we will hopefully find a solution. In memory of all who lost their lives, we ask everyone to join us in a moment of silence. End quote. So yes, Sal, for some reason, the WWE Network actually edits out the very nice gesture of a request for a moment of silence for the kids murdered at Columbine High School, which came directly from the parents of one of the victims. I would think they would want to leave that in, but hey, what do I know? I don't know. What do you think? Did you say that was a scrolling graphic? It was, yes. Ah, too long. (laughs) Yeah, too much reading. Too much reading. Cut that shit out. Nobody wants to read when they go on the network. (laughs) TLDR. And actually, by the way, I have to say, pulling back the curtain a bit here, in the interim period between when we recorded the Backlash portion of the podcast and when we're recording this part of the episode, there have been several mass shootings here in America. And it seems like the culprit everyone is blaming this time around is video games. But I got to say, based on our conversation in part one, I have a better idea. Just blame The Undertaker. I mean, Ah, he was there. Yeah, he was there 20 years ago. He's still kind of lurking around. Just blame taker it makes literally almost as much sense as blaming video games so just just make him the scapegoat america i didn't think they were blaming video games i thought they were blaming the guy in office but i'm not going there i i will say this to their credit they did do a little bit of a tribute on raw in the present day to victims in ohio and in el paso I heard uh, they, that, yeah. They, they they open up the show. Every all the superstars are on the stage, and they did. They actually did do a ten bell salute. So even though they're editing out things from twenty years ago, I guess you could say they're doing the right thing today. Well, that's good. That's good. So yes, that was edited out on the WWE Network. That moment of silence. But after that, we kick into the still photos from Backlash last night, and specifically, they focus on the main event where Vince McMahon helped Stone Cold Steve Austin retain his WWF title. But while he was doing that, the Undertaker commandeered Vince's limousine and kidnapped his daughter Stephanie. We then go live to the parking lot where a limousine is pulling up, but it's not the one that the Undertaker stole last night. Instead, we see Vince McMahon 
and the recently fired Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe emerge from the limo and walk into the arena. From there, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include... Signs suck. Shut up, Undertaker. Val Venus stuffs his pants. Anal warts. X-Pac equals piss break. Vince, if your Rudy Poo candy ass needs me, call 1-800-YOU-SUCK-IT. No fat chicks. I got crabs, complete with a drawing of some actual crabs on the sign. Hey Vince, can I be your son? Nicole Bass has Bell's palsy. Ouch. In a very nice gesture, happy birthday, Kane, which is actually true. Today really was Glenn Jacobs' 32nd birthday, so that fan really did his homework. And perhaps the most offensive sign of the night, we'll take the hose in a no-holes-barred match. And yes, I said holes with an E, not holes with a D. (laughs) And actually, the cameraman even zoomed in on that sign at one point, so clearly Kevin Dunn really enjoyed it. But anyway, Sal, were there any you noticed that I happened to miss? Okay. So I would like to point out for the record, I also noticed the happy birthday, Kane, and I also did some digging and was able to find out that it was his birthday and he did turn 32 years old. So Excellent. I did just as much research as that fan. Of course, I used Wikipedia. He probably actually did real research. Yeah, I wonder how you figured that out in 1999. Oh, God, nobody knows. Maybe maybe the census? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There was a couple other signs. I did have the Velvina stuffs his pants. Vince, if your Rudy Pooh candy ass needs me, call 1-800-YOU-SUCK-IT, which seems like an awfully long sign. A-Yo Mark was there. Like, I, all I could think of was Scott Hall going, A-Yo Mark. <laughs> uh, show the puppies for all mankind. I thought that was a nice little oh, that's nice. play together. Uh, somebody actually put up a sign that said I and then the little heart symbol test. And I thought it was nice that his mother joined us tonight for Raw. Yeah, he's, he has a face only a mother could love. I did have the Nicole Bass has Bulls Palsy. That was a little bit harsh. And then the only other sign that I noticed was Doug the One Pump Chump. Oh. So I don't know who Doug is, but buddy, you suck. But his girlfriend was at the show. <laughs> so we officially kick off the show with The Rock making his way to the ring. And while he's walking down the ramp, we see that tonight's announce team is an interesting one, as it will be Jim Ross sitting alongside Jim Cornette. Yes, that's right. Jerry the King Lawler is missing in action tonight, so Cornette will be taking his place. And I'm honestly not 100% sure why Lawler is missing. I tried to do some research here, and I couldn't find any specific reason why. I even tweeted at Cornette himself to see if he'd answered me, but alas, no avail. So Lawler works backlash, and then he doesn't work raw. I don't know. So The Rock grabs a microphone, and interestingly, he begins by playing to the crowd a little bit by saying, quote, It's been a long time, but finally, the electrifying one has come back to Hartford. And when he does that, he is immediately greeted with chants of Rocky from the fans. Huh. The Rock going for a cheap hometown pop. Not exactly something a heel would do, so I wonder what's going on here. Hmm. However, he then says he's going to give Stone Cold Steve Austin credit for being a worthy opponent, But then he immediately undoes all that positivity by calling him the biggest piece of Texas trailer park trash walking God's green earth. Really kind of sending some mixed signals here so far tonight. It's almost as if he's he's begrudgingly still doing a heel shtick. You know what I mean? Very much so. But then, well, 
Rock turns his attention to someone else, and as Jim Ross might say, business certainly begins to pick up. So let's take a listen to what the Great One has to say. The Rock has but one problem, and that problem is a 200-pound piece of steaming, stinking monkey crap, and his name is Shane McMahon. business here did just pick up before the rock went one-on-one with austin the rock told you shane do not under any circumstances get involved in the great ones match do not do anything because the rock was gonna whoop stone cold's ass all by his lonesome but true to mcmahon word championship last night on a silver platter but no the rock has to let the corporation down the rock has to entertain his millions and the millions of the rocks fans you have to get on the people's headset and then rock what do you do this is a first you get on the people's camera rock what happened there stunner boom uh uh-uh rock what you should have done is roll steve austin here And you could be standing in front of me, the World Wrestling Federation champion. But instead, you stand in front of me as a loser. Rocket is you who is the big piece of monkey crap. Man, this is getting very personal. Monkey crap. Shane, The Rock says that this Brahma bull is going to take his sharp horns, turn them sideways, and stick them straight up your candy ass. I think the Brahma bull is full of BS. And Rock, I'll tell you one thing right now. You better take your attitude out of my face if you smell what the boss is cooking. Jabroni, you are three seconds away. And the rock means three seconds away from the rock to let. 
SmackDown on your candy ass. Well, I don't see any backup. Not in either one of them, JR. Hey, wait a minute. Whoa. Triple H trying to get a cheap shot in. It's China with a shot. Oh, I'll tell you what, she puts herself in a man's position here. And the Rock is going to treat her like a man. And the boss man from behind. The, the Rock is down and the corporation is... Well, Shane McMahon directing traffic. He's Shane's trying to settle things down. He's trying to keep the corporation back. Oh, Shane McMahon no. wanted a shot for himself. Shane McMahon. Look at this. And now Shane McMahon, the boss man's nightstick. Shane McMahon took it. The Rock. Shane McMahon, after every single one of them, had a shot at The Rock. Got that police nightstick in his throat. And now Helmsley... With a free shot right to the Rock's head, and the boss man has come to get him some. Hear me out. Shane McMahon says your ass is fired. The Rock has been fired from the corporation, and the, the boy Warner has spoken. Well, don't you know that? Look at the rest of the corporation. There's no honor among these thieves. Where the rock was in the cat first seat in the corporation to begin with. Now they see they've got the chance. Rock. No more than a, a gang assault here on the rock. 30 seconds ago, these guys would have all said they were his friend, and they just stabbed him in the back. Shane, Shane. The rock says if you don't have enough sugar in that sack of testicles, then tonight you will come down and face the great one one on one and make your monkey ass famous. What a challenge there. You want me, Rock? You got it tonight. Me and you, we're going at it. What? Shane McMahon and The Rock. He took it? Look at her. You want The Rock. You got The Rock. If you smell what The Rock is cooking. So, as you heard there, The Rock proceeded to say that he had a problem with Shane McMahon, which, of course, resulted in Shane and the entire corporation heading to the ring. After Rock and Shane talk trash to each other, Triple H tries to get a cheap shot in on Rock, but the Great One knocks him down with a punch. From there, China nails Rock in the face with a forearm, so Rock punches her in the face. Yeah, hit that and, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get, you know, China, she's an imposing presence. She wants to mix it up with the men, but still, eh, yeah. They have run with this narrative the past couple, you know, episodes and backlash that if she wants to act like a man, then the men will treat her like a man. Jim Ross himself has been saying that on commentary multiple segments. So I guess they're saying it's okay to hit China? They're they're very much trying to segue into that being the case where China can now like mix it up freely with the men. But because it's still so early, I mean, China, from the episodes I've been watching, China has not really been getting involved with the men. So to see The Rock just punch her in the face is kind of, it's kind of a strange little thing. But obviously she's going to be much more involved with the men in the future. So I guess it'll become much more commonplace very soon. Are you talking about her future after her WWF career? <laughs> nope, that's that's getting something else in the face. Well, I mean, it was getting involved with the men, so I just, you know, kind of figured. Okay. Oh, I see. All right, we'll leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. But from there, the rest of the corporation then proceeds to gang up on The Rock and overwhelm him, knocking him down to the mat and getting in some cheap shots. Shane then clears out all the corporation members, and it appears as though he's going to play Peacemaker, 
But no, he then proceeds to kick Rock right in the ribs. Shane then takes the big boss man's nightstick and chokes Rock with it, and as you heard in that clip, he then fires the Rock from the corporation. So all the corporation members then leave and start walking up the ramp, but before they get backstage, the Rock grabs a microphone, and yes, he challenges Shane to a match one-on-one later tonight. And surprisingly, Shane actually accepts, so it appears as though we have us a match tonight, Corporation Leader Shane McMahon versus now former Corporation member The Rock. So Sal, what did you think of our opening segment here? Okay, so before the promo started, when Rock's music hit, pretty big pop for The Rock. So obviously Mm -hmm. it's one of those things where he is, despite being a heel, he's getting more cheers than boos. Now, there was a moment during the promo that you played... So after Rock calls Shane a bag of monkey crap, I believe it was, mm-hmm. Shane comes down, runs down the Rock, tries to make it all about him, and there's a moment where the Rock takes off his shades. Now, I have been waiting with bated breath for that moment that the Rock would turn into what we knew from 2000 through 2001 the electrifying, rhyming, just charismatic, ultra baby face. I've been waiting for that moment, and I know it was coming soon. Because when I reviewed WrestleMania 2000, he was there. He was there 100%, but I knew he wasn't just there at WrestleMania 15 yet. So when he took off his shades, he gave Shane a look, and I said, that's it. That's Mm. it. That's The Rock as the big ultra star that we know him as today. Yeah. Great segment to get The Rock over. As a babyface, keeping Shane and the corporation heels, obviously, still making them look like cowardly dickheads because Triple H tries to sneak up on The Rock, China nails him with a forearm. Really good stuff there. And then, of course, Shane choking Rock with the nightstick. The one thing I I thought was actually kind of funny, though, perhaps unintentionally so, and you alluded to it, was the fact that Shane is basically, or Shane and The Rock are basically taking turns calling each other monkey crap, which which I was like, huh, for the segment that turns Rock face, we're just kind of going back and forth, calling each other monkey crap for quite a while. So, right. And it was funny because I, or when I had uh, William Rankin on the show for the WrestleMania 15 episode, he had mentioned when Rock turns face, and he said it was kind of an infamous moment because there's some terminology that gets thrown around. And I'm assuming this is what he was referencing, the fact that monkey crap is thrown around about 15 times right. in this segment. So, not only that, Which I did not remember. Um, so the only, the only kind of critique, and it's a very little one, but... The corporation, we're talking the Mean Street Posse, Shane, Bossman, Triple H, they beat down The Rock, not really that effective of a beatdown. You, you mean because he just gets right back yeah, up and grabs right the mic? gets right back up, but you would think like seven or eight guys, like they would leave The Rock laying. I'm not saying they had to stretch him out, but like, I mean, how weak is your corporation that he pretty much stands right back up after you're done? You make a good point because, I mean, I, I feel like that group needs to get bigger somehow. I don't know how they could do it, but maybe maybe on the SmackDown pilot we'll find out how that group gets a little bit bigger. Just just a hunch. Just a hunch, Sal. Yeah, we'll see. So from there, we cut backstage where Vince McMahon is with Patterson and Briscoe discussing the Stephanie situation. Patterson proposes that Vince should call the cops, but Vince shoots that idea down and says he's going to play by The Undertaker's rules. Because why would Vin- you call the fucking cops if your daughter got abducted? Yeah, that's just silly. <sighs> Vince, by the way, also did the same thing previously. I think it was actually, it might have been the night after WrestleMania where The Undertaker first 
kidnapped Stephanie. Remember that? And Shamrock got her back yeah, basically yeah, yeah. the same night. I think it was the same scenario where he, where somebody suggested calling the cops, and Vince was like, no, no cops. I don't want you saw what they did to involved. I'm still yeah. bitter about the steroid trial. <laughs> oh, yo, yo, good point. But his logic after WrestleMania was like, you saw what happened to Boss Man last night. It's like, well, he's not a real cop, but okay. <laughs> yes, Undertaker will hang them all from the hell in the cell that's no longer there. Right, exactly. Uh, but yes, so Vince apparently brought papers with him tonight, presumably to sign the company over to Taker, so the Lord of Darkness is seemingly about to get what he's been after for months. Briscoe then rightly asks how Vince can trust The Undertaker, but the chairman says he doesn't have a choice. So after a commercial break, we go into the arena for our first match of the evening, and it is a non-title tag match, WWF Tag Team Champions X-Pac and Birthday Boy Kane versus Brood members Gangrel and Edge. Uh, by the way, Edge is still wearing his trench coat, which is totally fine since he was not shown wearing it in the USA Today, just so we're clear, just so we're clear. And amusingly, when X-Pac is coming to the ring, we get a pretty hilarious glitch. You know how when X-Pac comes to the ring, they rapidly cut back and forth between him live in the arena and his Titantron video? Mm. Well, apparently, the Titantron video and the audio just cut out completely during his entrance, and Pac then has to do his crotch-chopping-to-the-pyro routine with no sound whatsoever until his music eventually comes back on. I thought it was pretty hilarious, but maybe that's just me. I had a theory about that. Oh, I mean, this is April 26th, 1999. Maybe that Y2J-bug is starting to interfere. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good... I like that theory. I like that. Playing the long game right there. Either that or Kevin Dunn's teeth just hit the fucking board again. I think that's probably what happened. Yes, exactly. In fact, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and play that glitch for you here just so you can you can hear what happened. of the World Wrestling Federation Tag Team Champions, X-Pac! It's fucking Triple H at Backlash. They had a hell of a matchup. Okay, so much like last night's Mankind vs. Big Show match, Sal, I have to ask the question, if the Brood just left the Ministry of Darkness and they are presumably supposed to be faces, why are we booking them against a babyface tag team? I mean, it's one thing to have, it's one thing to have, like, Shades of Grey, but it's another to just completely jumble up the roster so much so that the fans have no idea what the fuck is going on. Or, or maybe that's just me. To be fair, especially after tonight's episode, I kind of get with Big Show and Mankind, because it's almost like giving Big Show the rub. I know, phrasing. Mm -hmm. But, um... Yeah. Although, although Big Show lost the match, but... Well, I mean, like, in the sense that, like, fully, like, it's like, hey, you stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with me, and... And now I don't mind if you fight alongside with me, that kind of thing. Fair, that's but fair. But with the brood, I I have no fucking goddamn idea. Like yeah. like X Pac and Kane, as much as I personally don't get it, and I never did, even back in 1999, they're liked. They're pretty popular. So let's take the brood and put them against them. What? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then after the match, it's just like, did we just switch the brood back to heel? Because I'm completely confused what's going on. Yeah. Well, we'll get, actually I'll get into that right now. So. On the note of turning them face, I had initially thought they would try to make the Brood look strong after breaking off from the Ministry, but remember, of course, they jobbed last night at Backlash, and they do the same thing again here tonight. So the finish comes when Christian gets up on the ring apron to interfere, but Kane immediately tosses him back down to the floor, 
X-Pac then nails Gangrel with a Bronco Buster in the corner, followed by Kane drilling Edge with a choke slam. The Big Red Birthday Boy covers Edge, and in just about three minutes, X-Pac and Kane defeat the Brood rather easily. So just to repeat that, the Brood had a three-on-two advantage, and this was a non-title match, and yet they were still booked to lose completely cleanly. I can't believe I'm saying this, but couldn't Christian's interference have maybe just caused a disqualification? I mean, the Brood turned face two weeks ago, and they're already back to looking like absolute jobbers. But, as you alluded to there, Sal, I suppose they get some measure of revenge after the match, because shortly after it ends, the lights begin to start flickering, and we can see the Brood beating on Kane outside the ring. Eventually, the lights go out entirely, and when they come back on, as you might expect, Kane has been given a bloodbath. The Brood has now disappeared, but X-Pac is standing around asking Kane if he's alright, which proves to be a mistake, because Kane then grabs X-Pac by the throat and chokeslams his own partner over the barricade and onto the concrete floor. Kind of. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if that was Kane taking out his frustrations on X-Pac, or if he somehow thought that Pac was the one who gave him the bloodbath, but either way, I feel confident in saying that Kane is lacking in social skills. So, I don't know, Sal, what did you think of X-Pac and Kane versus the Brood and the subsequent bloodbath? The fuck is the point of giving Kane a bloodbath? <laughs> The people in the goddamn bleachers can't even tell. Fair, yeah, because of his red outfit. <laughs> He's a whole red outfit. It's just, oh, look, his other arm is red now. That's <laughs> number one. So so visually, it doesn't work. Number two, and we're going to talk a lot more about this later on in this episode, but the commentators are spinning the narrative that, well, Kane, just the lights went out, and the only person he saw when the lights came back on was Xbox, so he must have blamed him. Really? Because Kane's never watched the show? Kane right. doesn't know that a bloodbath comes from the brood? <laughs> could have been a swerve. Could have been an Xbox swerve. And, and then finally, you mentioned the chokeslam, and that's why I had to comment on it. He lifts X-Pac over the barricade to chokeslam him on the floor, and then gently places him down on his feet. Oh, you think he landed on his feet? <laughs> it didn't look like he slammed him on the back of his head like you would with a chokeslam. Oh, yeah, yeah, because I think he was, he was trying to, he basically did throw him into the front row, but... Yeah, I mean, it was basically kind of like he lifted him and threw him in the front row, but X-Pac didn't really sell it, and it's just a mess. Right, right, which I also am going to reference later, because the spot, the spot is supposed to look like he's chokeslamming X-Pac onto concrete, which, like you said, he's not actually doing that, but, but that's supposed to be the gist of it. So, let's just say I have some problems with what happens a little bit later, but, but we can get into that. <sighs> But but from there, we then cut backstage, where Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe are sitting around waiting until a phone rings. And for some reason, we immediately go to commercial, but then as soon as we return, we get the footage from during the break. So let's take a listen to the conversation that went down. Hello? Vince, you know who this is. I know who this is. Just tell me. You know, how's Stephanie? She's fine, Vince. As a matter of fact, she's real fine. Now you know what I've got. And you know what I want. Listen. I brought everything, just like you said. You got controlling interest. You got it signed, sealed. Now I want Stephanie back. And I want her back now. Oh, you've planned ahead. I like that. 
Once I get those documents, Stephanie will be returned to you unharmed. But if you slip up just once, you'll never see your precious little girl again. If you so much as harm a hair on her head, so help me, you son of a bitch. Now, Vince, is that any way to talk to your daughter's soulmate? You just get me those documents. Deliver them at 10 p.m. sharp by the loading dock in the Grand Chalet Hotel parking garage. Oh, there's one more thing. What? I don't want you to deliver them. Vince, I want Steve Austin to bring them to me. What? Alone. I, I, can't Aust- I can't ask Austin to do that. Hey, that's your problem. Now, wait a minute. Hello? Vince, what your problem, not mine. No, it's... Hello? Hello? Son of a bitch. So there you have it, Sal. Vince McMahon has drawn up papers giving controlling interest of the WWF over to The Undertaker in exchange for him returning Stephanie. However, for some reason, Taker is requesting to have Stone Cold Steve Austin deliver the papers to him at a local hotel parking garage at 10 o'clock p.m. sharp, which Vince protests by saying that he can't ask Austin to do that. Now, you had some thoughts about this uh, phone call, Sal? What a hokey bunch of fucking bullshit this was. (laughs) Look, I did laugh, so for the entertainment factor, it was there. But the phone looks like it was straight out of a horror movie, right? Of course. Well, the call is coming from inside the the house. (laughs) The call is coming from inside the house. Then to hear the Undertaker's voice on the other end of the phone, it's just so fucking disjointed. It's like, it's, it's, it's me. It's, it's Mark. I mean, it's Taker. (laughs) That would have been awesome if Vince was like, I'm, I'm sorry, I think you got the wrong number, click. <laughs> then Vince pulls, Vince goes completely Batista, and he's like, tell me what you want. Tell me what you want. Yeah. I'll oh, that, well, that sounds, I want. I was going to say, that sounds like the Spice Girls right there. Well, that's exactly what Batista did with Triple H this past year. True. Um, and then Vince sits there, and he's like, hello? Hello? And, all, and this is 1999. So all I could think about was, hello, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Oh, God, yeah. Uh, Vince is acting, too. It was a little bit like overacting in this segment. He was just like, oh, oh, I think the line went dead. <laughs> yeah. Dude. And, and and I know we're watching this on the network, but I'm assuming that the timestamp in, re- you know, in, in real time back in 1999 was probably about 9.20, maybe 9, approaching 9.30. Because mm. you got to figure the, the opening segment took, a long time and then we actually had a match so yeah i think you're right taker's giving taker's giving vince 30 minutes to get to this parking lot outside of hartford or to get stone cold to get to this parking lot outside of hartford correct which (sighs) this is is all very ruined because obviously in the present day we know where the storyline ends up going but um you know, in 1999, you're probably sitting and thinking, why the fuck does he want Stone Cold to bring him the papers? Yeah. Just because he knows that Vince could never convince Austin to do it? Like, that's all I could think of. It just was very... Like, if I'm watching this in 99, I'm like, what? Why? Well, on that note, maybe Vince can convince Austin because, fittingly, after that phone call, we cut right back into the arena where 
your WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin himself, is heading to the ring, once again holding his coveted smoking skull belt. Now, initially, Michael Cole was in the ring to interview him, but after Cole informs Austin that he overcame the odds last night at Backlash, Stone Cold immediately grabs the microphone away from Cole and tells him to get his ass out of the ring, as if we needed yet another reminder as to why Austin is one of the greatest of all time. <laughs> True. And so, let's pick up Stone Cold's promo from there, because it takes a rather interesting turn. You damn right overcame all odds, and I did exactly what I said I was going to do. As far as The Rock coming out here, saying he beat my ass all over the ring, Jesus Christ, son, all you got to do is watch that match and see that Stone Cold Steve Austin on his own beat your sorry ass, and that's all I got to say about that. What a match it was. Wait a minute. There's he couldn't. Vince McMahon. He's not going to actually. Vince McMahon is making his way to the ring, and certainly the the hatred between these two well documented. I don't mean to interrupt, but I guess maybe I do. This is not easy for me, but but what I'm trying to say. Make a long story short, I need your help. You said, you said what? You need my help? Is that what you said? I need your help. The Undertaker has my daughter, Stephanie, and I need your help. You got to clear this up exactly for me. What are you trying to say? Just go ahead and say something, because you ain't making no sense. Well, this isn't... It's not, it's not anything personal. I know that you don't like me. I know you never will. And the feeling is somewhat mutual. But it's not about you and me. This is personal, and it involves my daughter, Stephanie, and Steve, you can help me. With all due respect to you and your little daughter, hell, son, I got a million problems on my own. So as far as I'm concerned, I really don't give a rat's ass about your problems. But Steve, the, the Undertaker's made, he's made some demands. He's asked for some documentation, and that's all right with me. I don't care about the documentation. But he's made other demands. He's demanded that instead of me delivering the documentation to him, he's demanded that you deliver that documentation. And if you do that, I really believe that everything will be fine with my daughter, Stephanie. And I think you can understand my point of view as a father. What you're saying is 
What you're saying is Vince McMahon needs Stone Cold Steve Austin. That's what you're saying. So if that's true, if that is true that Vince McMahon needs Stone Cold Steve Austin, then that's what I want. That's what I want you to say to me. Say to me, Vince McMahon needs Stone Cold Steve Austin. Vince McMahon needs Stone Cold Steve Austin. I thought I'd hear that. That all sounds real good, Vince. But hell, you must think that I have a real horrible memory because the last 15 months, every single night I come to work, you see fit to put my life Make my life a living hell, and I will give you credit. You have done one hell of a job. Stone Cold Steve Austin never forgets one single thing that happens right here in the World Wrestling Federation. So, since Vince McMahon needs Stone Cold Steve Austin, I'll say this. By the same token... Stone Cold Steve Austin needs Vince McMahon to kiss his ass. And that's the bottom line of Stone Cold Central. I think the answer is no. Well, there you go. It appears that Stone Cold has no interest in aiding Vince McMahon tonight in his quest to get Stephanie back from The Undertaker, even though Vince helped him retain his title one night prior at Backlash. Clearly, Steve Austin will never be considered a pioneer of the gratitude era. <laughs> you see what I did there? <laughs> but anyway, Sal, what did you think of Vince asking for Stone Cold's help here? Okay, obviously Vince was put in a position he had no choice but to ask. However... I very much appreciate the fact that Austin was pretty much like, ah, ah, I ain't helping you, you sorry son of a bitch. You think yep. I forgot everything you did to me? Which, which is completely fair, in my opinion. Absolutely. And he tried to ruin his life. He tried to ruin his career. He tried, he tried on numerous occasions to take the WWF title from him. Uh, just because he helped him last night, and let's be honest here, he was really just you know, defying his son Shane by helping Austin, not really helping Austin. Fair. Uh, just because he helped him last night, if I'm Stone Cold, I'm like, fuck you, dude. I ain't fucking helping you for shit. Yeah, hey, DTA, don't trust anybody. Yeah, and and like, I can't believe I'm going to say this, like Cornette said, you reap what you sow. How are you going to go and ask Steve Austin for help after everything you've done to him? Absolutely. I'm glad you actually mentioned Cornette, too, because I think he and Jim Ross actually do a good job tonight, specifically in that final segment, which we'll obviously get to in a little bit, basically playing up, you know, so we as the viewers know what's going on, if we couldn't tell already. I'll get to it in a little bit, but I think Jim Ross and Jim Cornette do a very good job. So On that yes. note, I was very skeptical when I saw the beginning of this episode that Cornette was going to do commentary. Oh, God, here the fuck we go. But you know what? I, I apologize. I owe, I owe Jimmy an apology. He was actually really good on this episode. I agree. And you know what? We actually get him on the pilot episode of SmackDown as well. 
So he's pulling double duty. He's getting somehow he gets to do Raw and SmackDown. So so good for Cornette. Did and King yes, he does a good job. Did, was King facing more Chargers or something that he had to <laughs> throw away? <laughs> yeah. The, the only other thing I could guess was like maybe there was like I don't know if there was like a memorial service for Rick Rude or something like that. But I didn't even know oh, if Jerry maybe. Lawler. Yeah, I didn't I even know, know if Lawler was friends with Rude. So I I don't know. But no clue. No clue. But yeah, I enjoyed this segment very much with Austin. Austin being like Stone Cold Steve Austin needs Vince McMahon. To kiss his ass. To kiss his so. ass. Huge pop. And Huge I have to say, though, he said that. you know what's funny, though, is and, and they totally hooked me with this because when you see Vince McMahon completely defeated after Austin turns him down, I did feel bad for Vince. So I, I think did it shows you? it's I did it for me. I think it's a testament to Vince as a performer that, you know, he's in this dire scenario and Stone Cold's basically like, eh, eh. and I'm like, even though Vince totally has fucked Austin over for the past year and a half. Just just by virtue of how they've told the story, I was like, oh, man, I, I do feel a little bummed for Vince that Austin's turning him down. So. You're a better person than I am. I was one of those <laughs> people in the crowd cheering, like, yeah, fuck him! Yeah, fuck Vince. <laughs> fuck Vince and fuck Stephanie. <laughs> she's she's collateral damage, goddammit. I mean, to be fair, I had no connection you know, raw watching raw wise to this essentially teenager that that was presented as Vince's daughter. I mean, I didn't like her or hate her at this point. I just I didn't know who the fuck she was. So, what emotional connection do I have to her? You know, nobody wants to see anybody get hurt, right? But I again, it's like it's not like they presented her as some type of sympathetic character that you like really attach to. She said like three words, "My dad." It's the best dad ever. <laughs> yeah. she, well, actually, really with... she, she said five words. Driver, wait for my dad! For anybody who uh, isn't aware, by the way, the face Undertaker, the, the grin in the face the Undertaker gives Stephanie when he unveils himself to be the limo driver is meme gold. <laughs> yes. It is fucking, you could put anything you want above it and it just works. Yes. But yeah, just to put the cap on the segment, I don't blame you for feeling that way, by the way, because you could tell from the crowd the crowd reaction. The fans were also like, "Yeah, fuck Vince." So <laughs> I, I think I think I'm just in the minority watching this 20 years later. But I was like, "Oh man, I feel a little bad." But so after a commercial break, we quickly cut backstage where Vince McMahon informs Patterson and Briscoe that he has no choice but to deliver the documents to the Undertaker himself, and so he exits the arena, briefcase in hand. Now, will the Undertaker accept this change in plans? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Now, I did like that part because, as a father, if this was a situation, that's what you would do. You would, well, can't get him to do it. I'm just going to do it myself. So I thought that actually made logical sense. Have you ever seen the movie Fargo? God knows how long ago, yeah. Okay. Well, one of those things is like, you know, the, the William H. Macy character is supposed to bring the briefcase or bring the bring the money essentially to the bad guys. But the yeah. father is, is basically the father of the kidnapped wife is essentially like, I don't want you mucking this whole thing up. Like, I'll do it myself. <laughs> so for some reason, that just reminded me of that. And also, just as a quick side note, uh, more on the town of Fargo a little bit later in this episode. There's a nice cliffhanger for you. Oh. Indeed. So from there, we cut back into the arena where it is now time for our next match of the evening, Val Venus versus D'Lo Brown, who is accompanied by Ivory. And interestingly, in the ultimate showing of disrespect, when Val starts to do his pre-match Hello Ladies promo, 
Delo interrupts him before we can get our customary sexual innuendo of the evening. Frankly, I'm surprised no one else has tried that up to this point. So Val and Delo proceed to have a pretty solid little match for a few minutes, and Sal, with that in mind, I'd like to quickly recommend that you go back and check out the Val vs. Delo match from SummerSlam 1998. Now, people tend to forget about that match because it literally had zero buildup going into the show, <laughs> but it's definitely a very strong opener to a very strong pay-per-view. And guess what? They get 15 minutes, and it's an easy breezy 15 minutes. I will say the finish of the match is shitty, but before that, it's great stuff. So check that out, Val vs. Delo for the European Championship at SummerSlam 98. You but, heard it here first, a hidden gem in the Attitude Era. Hidden gem. It's literally like Val Venus is literally still doing his feud with Kai and Tai the Monday before the show, and then SummerSlam rolls around, and it's like, hey, Val Venus versus D'Lo. Okay, why not? I vaguely remember it, and I remember it not being bad, so I will have to go back and recheck it out. Yeah, it's the it's the opener of SummerSlam 98, which people love. You know, Highway to Hell, great show, and a great match. I was going to say, that was a great SummerSlam. But obviously, Val Venus and D'Lo is something you probably forget about. Yeah, I think most people tend to remember the latter match where The Undertaker versus Steve Austin, but, (laughs) you know, but that's also a very good show. Or a very good match, I should say. But getting into tonight's match, at one point, Val hit D'Lo with a side Russian leg sweep, and then he proceeded to stand over D'Lo and do his patented hip swiveling, but then Nicole Bass emerged from backstage and walked down to ringside. Nicole then proceeded to shout at Val that he owed her, and he knows what she wants, which proved to be an effective distraction. Why? Because when Val turned back around, D'Lo nailed him with his sky-high powerbomb. He covered Val, referee Tim White made the count, and yes, that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of the match, D'Lo Brown. And by the way, I fucking love the sky-high powerbomb as a finisher. Someone bring that move back today, and I promise you fans will still pop for it like they did back in 1999. But after the match, Nicole Bass entered the ring and stared down the fallen Val Venus, but that provided an opportunity for Ivory to sneak up on Nicole and jump on her shoulders as payback for Nicole chokeslamming her last night on Heat. Unfortunately for Ivory, though, Nicole was easily able to throw her down to the ground, but that interference allowed Val Venus to sneak out of the ring and head up the ramp, once again escaping a potential sexual assault from Nicole Bass. So what did you think of this match, Big Salboski? <laughs> the match was fine. I mean, obviously it, was, it had a greater purpose, I guess you could say. I will <laughs> point out that Jim Cornette said on commentary on live TV, about Nicole Bass having uh, a desire for Val Venus. I quote, I don't think they have the proper parts. I think some assembly would be required. Oh, jeez. That is a line directly from Jim Cornette. Wow. (laughs) Also, I would like to point out, for anybody who's not aware, maybe we have some younger fans who listen to the Riot 2 podcast, Ivory was not a tiny little girl like, let's say, Terry Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Ivory used to wrestle in the Gorgeous Lady of, Ladies of Wrestling Federation back in the 80s. Yep, she, she, used, had, to, she used to fight Allison Bree, I do believe. <laughs> she had some muscle to her. So, I mean, she, and she was probably about six foot one. But in comparison with Nicole Bass, it would be the equivalent of, oh, I don't know, X-Pac and the big show. <laughs> yeah. Is Ivory six foot one? Is she really that tall? I mean, she's not a tiny girl. I mean, maybe, okay. Again, I've seen her in the ring with women who are smaller than her, so she kind of towers over them. 
But I'm pretty sure Ivory was was a decent size. She definitely had some muscle on her. So you would think that, you know, she, she'd kind of give Nicole Bass a little bit more of a fight. But unfortunately, you know, Nicole Bass is literally built like Lex Luger. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know exactly what, what Ivory can do. But, but I thought it was nice that she gave it a, a good old college try. That's not fair. Nicole Bass is much more muscular than Lex Luger. That's not fair. <laughs> Lex Luger used to be like, I got 4% body fat. I bet Nicole Bass is 3% body fat. I bet she has him topped. Well, yeah, probably. But yes, just in terms of matches, I would say go back and watch Val versus D'Lo from SummerSlam 98. This match is okay, but again, more more of angle advancement of Nicole Bass being infatuated with, with Val Venus yet again. Oh, for the record, she's 5'5", five five, but, 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 but she was billed at 135 pounds of muscle. There you go. So we then cut backstage where Stone Cold Steve Austin walks past the big show. He asks show what the hell he's looking at, and Paul White says, Hey man, it's the guy's daughter. Austin says he doesn't give a rat's ass, and he keeps on walking. So Stone Cold, apparently, is immune to guilt trips from badly misused seven-footers. I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. It's the guy's daughter. Like, yeah, okay. He's like, so? I don't give a rat's ass. And after a commercial break, we go elsewhere backstage where Michael Cole is with the New Age Outlaws. And amusingly, yes, and amusingly tonight it's actually Road Dog who's wearing a WWF hotel and casino t-shirt, so clearly he must have enjoyed Shane McMahon's fashion sense last night at Backlash. And by the way, Sal, in case you're wondering, the back of the shirt says, quote, Cause life is one big crapshoot. Because, of course it does. Now, unfortunately, though, Billy Gunn is the only one who speaks in this segment, and he says that he's going to defeat Triple H tonight. Interestingly, though, Billy appears to take a shot at fellow DX stablemate X-Pac as he says that he will not fail, and it's up to him to get the job done against Triple H correctly. Mr. Ass then leaves the frame, and we actually see Road Dog seemingly mouth the words, What the fuck? As, <laughs> though he couldn't, as though he couldn't even believe what he was hearing from Billy. Do we have us a rift here in DX? It would certainly appear so. On that note, we've been talking, not only in this episode, but I know you've been talking about it uh, on past episodes, of the positioning of Billy Gunn by the WWF at this point as a top guy. You can tell there's certain things, and I know we talked about it with Backlash, there's certain things they're doing with Billy Gunn. But the problem is, and this segment proved it, every time you put a mic in front of Billy Gunn's face... He shoots off a bunch of cliched, tired lines, like, I'm going to get the job done, <laughs> and has absolutely negative charisma. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, what the fuck? This guy does, needs to never talk, ever. Just, just like his other uh, DX stablemate there, X-Pac, both of them just should not be given a microphone. I thought you were going to say just like uh, Bart Gunn, but that's, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably trust Bart Gunn more with a mic than Billy Gunn at this point. <laughs> <laughs> that says something. Yeah. But yes, actually, on that note, Sal, I'm pretty sure this is literally the first time that one of the outlaws has even referenced X-Pac since Triple H and China left DX. You would think X-Pac and the outlaws would be putting on a united front with Hunter and China having turned their backs on them at WrestleMania. But no, they literally have not even been in the same segment since then. I mean, technically, DX still exists, but you'd never know it if you watched any episode of Raw since WrestleMania. Very bizarre. That's how you show United Front. 
You have them never appear in segments. I mean, the NWO did this for the first six months of their existence with Hall and <laughs> Hogan. <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. But anyway, on that note, we then segue back into the arena where it is now time for that very match. Corporation member Triple H, who was accompanied by China as well as his new shitty theme music. I still fucking hate that song. As well you should. <laughs> and he is taking on Badass Billy Gunn, who, funny enough, has a brand new theme song. Oh, this was of the night! Own. This was this the I, Okay. Is the debut. In fact, I'm going to play it for you right here. Hell yeah. Triple H in China. Now, you'll notice that once that theme starts to play, we get complete silence from Jim Ross and Jim Cornette on commentary for 18 straight seconds. I'd like to think that both of them muted themselves because they heard, I'm an ass man for the first time. And then they just, yeah, and then they just started laughing their balls off. But that's just my interpretation. (laughs) Now, Sal, we only got a quick sample of Billy Gunn's new theme song here, so allow me to read some of the lyrics for you, if you don't mind. I probably could recite them from uh, memory, but no, go ahead, go ahead. Sure. I love to love them, I love to kick them, I love to shove them, I love to stick them, love to flaunt them, I love to watch them, I love to pick them, and I'm gonna kick them. Now, those are actual lyrics, folks. Now, for my money, Sal, this is... One of the worst theme songs Jim Johnston has ever done in his illustrious career, but I'd love to hear your opinion on this matter as well. Oh, fuck that. I love this song. (laughs) (laughs) Very divisive. Very divisive, it seems. Probably for all the wrong reasons, but I just think it's it's so bad it's good. It comes off as very narcissistic, right? (laughs) But it also comes off, and whether this was their intent or not, as fucking stalkerish. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a good point, actually. Especially when you start, because this song, and many, many people don't know this, because when you come out to the ring, you get the intro, you get the ver- first verse, and then it usually goes into the chorus, and then you start your match. This song's second and third verse are even worse than the first verse. <laughs> yeah, they're not all great, but I'm trying to think what the second one It's It's like the where he's like, one's... so many asses, so, so little many time. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. A yeah. little tight one can stop me on a dime. Oh, that's, oh. that's not pervy or anything. No. <laughs> Good Lord. I also, I like the fact that, you know, so he's talking, and I'm assuming in the theme song, when he says, I love to pick them, he's talking about, like, choosing different asses, but it's kind of like, you like you like picking your ass? Is that what you're I saying? I thought he was talking about picking, like, a wedge or something. Or, or that, yeah. <laughs> well, we've seen that Mr. Mr. Ass does wear thongs that's during his matches. So. Uh, but you know what? You brought up a very good point because now that I think about it, that's got to be the reason why you didn't hear Cornette or JR because they probably would just die. This is probably the first time they heard it. Oh, I would, like the first time I heard that, if I was there in the arena and I just heard, <laughs> I'm an ass man, I'd be like, oh my God, just, just, cut the mic, cut the mic. <laughs> I mean, good this Lord. Song, this song is so bad that it's made an appearance on the show that I co-host, the Rundown Wrestling Podcast. Uh, cheap plug, I know. It's made an appearance on there in the past so many times so that we used to have a raccoon that, on the show that would play it all the time just because he thought it was hilarious. 
I remember that guy. Whatever happened to him? I'd probably take it through trash. So, yes, back to Triple H versus Billy Gunn in the battle of shitty new theme music. And early on in the match, Billy was putting the boots to Hunter in one of the corners, and we then got an amusing moment. Mr. Ass stepped back and did three straight crotch chops, and with each one, he said to Triple H, Suck my dick! <laughs> very, very subtle stuff there from Billy Gunn. And from there, Triple H took control of the match and basically spent most of it working over Billy Gunn's left leg. That seems to be Hunter's go-to move over the past 24 hours. Just pick a body part and then just work the shit out of it for an yep, entire match. That, that's the mark of a classic heel. Like I agree. In all seriousness, all seriousness, all the guys Triple H looked up to, rest his soul, just recently passed the late Harley race. Yes. Ric Flair. Even Killer Kowalski, who was, who was Triple H's trainer, these guys knew how to be these vicious heels that would pick a body part and pick you apart. And that's great. This is this is the beginning of the game for me. Yes. And, and to be clear, I love that too when somebody picks a body part and just works over it, especially like like you'd see Bret Hart do working over the leg to set him up for the sharpshooter later. Yeah. That makes total sense. It worked a lot better, I feel like, in this match against Billy Gunn because it was a lot shorter as opposed to on Backlash where he's literally like working over X-Pac for like eight or nine straight minutes. Yeah, with, you with know, that, it got boring. Like, yeah. But in a very amusing moment of foreshadowing, one of the ways Triple H worked over Billy's leg was by putting him in the figure four leg lock. Now, I couldn't help but think of how fitting that was since Triple H and Ric Flair eventually go on to become super best friends several years from now. And for the record, I'm pretty sure this is the first time we've seen Hunter use that move, so maybe it'll become a recurring thing for him. I'm actually not sure. But eventually, Triple H and Mr. Ass head out to the floor where Hunter proceeds to distract referee Earl Hebner which allows China to throw Billy Gunn face-first into the ring post. And good lord, when Billy hits the post, you really hear a loud smack when he goes into it. I'm frankly surprised he was still conscious after that one. You know what I heard? What'd you hear? I heard absolutely nothing, because that's what Earl Hebner heard. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. He's literally standing right there, Billy goes head-first into the post. Hebner's like, I don't hear nothing. Yeah. That could have been a fan. <laughs> he's right be he's literally right behind this isn't on the other side of the ring. He's right behind him. Yeah. Uh, maybe he threw himself into the post. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and as you might expect, that interference proceeded to bring out the road dog from backstage, but China then just stood in the aisle blocking his path, and like a total bitch, Road Dog appeared to be completely unable to go by her. So when Road Dog stepped to his right, China would block his path. When he stepped to the left, China would block his path. I thought it was actually rather unintentionally funny, because Road Dog was just like, well, she's in my way, there's nothing I can do about it. And meanwhile, back in the ring, Triple H simply picked up Mr. Ass, nailed him with a pedigree, and covered him, and referee Earl Hebner counted the one, the two, and the three, your winner of the match. Triple H. And after the match on commentary, Jim Ross said, quote, Road Dog hesitating to strike a woman. Cannot blame him for that. And meanwhile, if we flash back to when <laughs> Kane chokeslammed China last night, what exactly was JR saying again when that happened? Give her what she deserves! No! She wants to be a man! Treat her like a man! Oh, what a difference 24 hours makes, huh, JR? Not to mention the fact that The Rock already punched her in the face earlier tonight, so perhaps they reached their quota of man-on-woman violence already, so Road Dog had to simply take it like a bitch when China stood in his way. Either way, Sal, what did you think of 
Billy Gunn versus Triple H here? I don't know. Maybe look, there's a school of thought that they recognized, and, and there's certain things that indicate this that they recognized Triple H was a star, and the focus was going to be around him because this is now the second night in a row that former DX members are being made to look like bitches. Well, there's still there's still DX members. Well, oh, yes, that's true. Um, I'm sorry, former partners of Triple H in DX. They're made to look like bitches because Billy Gunn talks all this trash and basically got his fucking ass kicked. Yeah. He had like a a very tiny hope spot before they went out to the outside, but not really. And then Road Dog comes down there and you're telling your audience that Rock is a man because Rock will punch China in the face. Cheer for (laughs) that guy. Road Dog's a bitch because he'll just stand there and do nothing while Billy gets pinned. Pretty much. I mean, again, it seems to me like the focus is on Triple H, and I guess that's fine. It's well-deserved. We all know that he's a star in the making. At the same point in time, I don't understand why DX couldn't be, like, cooler after Hunter left. I'd like to know, too, why China didn't just, like, lay out Road Dog with a forearm, you know what I mean? Like, she already hit The Rock with a forearm earlier, so they could easily explain it as, like, she punches Road Dog in the face, and he goes down, and meanwhile Triple H hits the pedigree, instead of, like... Basically, that trick you used to do with your younger brother, where it's like, oh, "I'm stepping in your way," "Oh, I'm stepping in your way," you know. So <laughs> the yeah, only thing I can think silly. of is because it would have had to have led to a match with Road Dog and China, which maybe that they didn't want to go there. Like, oof, nor should they. Right. So just, but to your point, you know, have the ref get involved and have China throw a forum like in between them or something, just to create that space, and then Hunter still gets the pin. I don't know. Like it's, it it was just weird that. He's like, come on, let me pass. Yeah. Come on. I'm going to tell mom. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, yes, once that match concludes, we cut backstage where Shane McMahon is hyping up the big boss man and Test for their match. He tells them to go take care of business, but once Test leaves the frame, Shane asks boss man to hang back and he whispers something into his ear. Bossman then nods in agreement and walks off as Shane turns his attention to his Mean Street posse pals, Rodney and Pete Gass. And after a quick commercial break, we go elsewhere backstage where X-Pac is angrily yelling out Kane's name. He also begins to yell out the word motherfucker, but he realizes he can't quite say that on cable television, so he says, Mother! and then just kind of trails off. So once again, the expert mic skills of Sean Waltman are on full display. But from there, we go back inside the arena, where it is now time for our next match. Corporation members, the Big Boss Man and Test, versus the unlikely team of the Big Show and Mankind, who, yes, just faced each other in the Boiler Room Brawl last night at Backlash. And by the way, Mankind, in a quality moment, high-fives a fan on his way to the ring, but he does it with the hand that he injured last night, so once the high-five connects, he actually sells it for a moment. Imagine that. Mick Foley, the consummate professional. Absolutely. And so about a minute into the match, we see that the dissension between the big boss man and Test has carried over after they cost each other their matches last night on Heat. At one point, Test goes over to tag boss man, but his partner is busy looking off into the crowd and not paying attention. But then, just a few seconds later, boss man slaps Test on the shoulder to tag himself in, so apparently he just wanted to do it on his own terms. Now, the majority of the match consisted of Bossman and Tess taking turns working over Mankind, until eventually, Foley made the hot tag to Big Show. 
Paul White then started cleaning house on both Boss Man and Test, and at one point, Boss Man shoved Test right into Big Show's path, but Show refused to chokeslam him, instead chasing after the Boss Man. Meanwhile, Mankind planted Test with a double-arm DDT, followed by, you guessed it, Mr. Socko. And at this point, Jim Cornette says that the sock is still covered in blood from the Boiler Room Brawl last night, but in actuality, what he's seeing is that Mankind's face is drawn on the sock, so that was a rare misfire from Corny there. But anyway, Foley took Tess down to the ground, and Tess was apparently able to say that he quit, despite having a sock in his mouth, so referee Mike Kyoto called for the bell, your winners of the match, The Big Show and Mankind. And after the match concludes, the big boss man gets in Test's face to confront him about the loss, which results in Test punching boss man in the face. However, Test then makes another rookie mistake as he turns his back on boss man to exit the ring, so boss man wallops him in the back of the head with his nightstick, causing Test to fall down to the floor. Boss man then adds one more nightstick shot to Test's ribs for good measure before heading backstage. So is Test still a member of the corporation? It's left a little bit ambiguous here, but at the very least, it certainly appears as though he and Boss Man can no longer coexist. I suppose we'll find out in due time. But anyway, Sal, what did you think of this tag team match? Mm. So I'm really glad that Boss Man and Test uh, started having a back and forth after the match because when Big Shows refused to choke slam Test and chase after Boss Man... I got really worried that we were entering that part of Big Show's career, yeah. a.k.a. his feud with the Big Boss Man. I don't think that's until the fall, thankfully. I was I was still worried for a second. I'm glad to see that wasn't the case. I kind of, to be quite honest, I was so glad when Boss Man hit him with that fucking nightstick because, you dumb son of a bitch, how are you going to turn your back on a guy with a weapon after you punched him in the face? Yeah, that's a good point. He totally deserved it. Just kick him out. Like, yeah, you said, like you said, they didn't really define anything, and I honestly don't remember, you know, how much longer it stays undefined, but it just seems like Tess gets, like, punked out every week now, and then he's right back the next week with the corporation. Spoiler alert, stay tuned to SmackDown for your answer. (laughs) Okay, well, there we go. So from there, we cut to Vince McMahon, who is now standing at the loading dock of the hotel, waiting for The Undertaker. Although, when I say that Vince is at a hotel, it clearly looks like he's just standing in the loading dock outside the arena. I mean, they're not really making their best effort with this one. But then we quickly cut to the backstage area of the Hartford Civic Center, where Stone Cold Steve Austin is watching a monitor, and he sees Vince standing around. However... Austin only pauses for a moment before he keeps on walking, so once again, it appears as though he just don't give a damn. And that provides a fitting segue, because on the WWE Network, they actually leave in an advertisement for the Stone Cold t-shirt where his arms have turned into snakes for some reason. Only $25 plus $6 for shipping and handling. Yes, that's right. $31 for a t-shirt in 1999, which, adjusted for inflation, would be... $47.66 in 2019 dollars. That better be one hell of a comfortable shirt, is all I'm saying. So after commercial break, we go backstage where X-Pac is still searching for Kane, but to no avail. I mean, come on, dude. The guy's like a seven-foot monster, for Christ's sake. How hard can he be to find? Frankly, Pac, that one is, that one's all on you. 
But then we quickly cut away from there to another area backstage where Hardcore Holly is beating the shit out of Al Snow with a metal pole. Holly then grabs Head and tells Al that he'll get it back, but only when Al gives him a shot at regaining the Hardcore title. Because clearly, when your name is Hardcore, you must always be seeking the Hardcore title. Just a thought, maybe Bob Holly should change his name to Intercontinental Holly so he can move up the card. I'm just spitballing though, just spitballing. <laughs> And then, after a commercial break, well, fuck, I might as well just go ahead and play this vignette for you, right here. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Okay, so let me set the scene for what you just heard there. After a few weeks of just seeing the exterior of a house with the word cleavage written on the mailbox, we finally go inside the house to see what this is all about. The segment is entirely in black and white, and as you heard there, there's even a laugh track in the background. Now, picture this, if you will. Mosh from the Headbangers has completely gotten rid of his old gimmick, and he is now essentially dressed as an overgrown child, complete with a little schoolboy cap. He pours some shredded wheat into a bowl and eats it, but then he spits it out because it's too dry, and so his mother arrives on the scene with a tray containing a pitcher of milk, and the mother, of course, is a sexy lady, because why wouldn't she be? And so she comes up with the solution for the dry cereal, offering him some of mother's milk, which causes Mosh to stare into the camera and bounce his eyebrows up and down suggestively. So yes, it appears as though we're teasing a mother and son incest angle here. Russo didn't get his Ken and Ryan Shamrock incest angle approved, so he's got to go a different route, apparently. Oh, and of course, the mother informs us that her son's name is Harry Beaver Cleavage. Now, in case you're not familiar with what they're doing here, this is a clear parody of the classic sitcom Leave It to Beaver, which featured a child named Theodore Cleaver, who was given the nickname Beaver Cleaver. So naturally, television junkie Vince Russo decides to do an edgier gimmick inspired by a show he probably watched as a child. There's just one glaring problem here. Leave It to Beaver had been off the air for 36 years at the time this episode of Raw aired. And as you're probably aware, Raw was courting a very young audience at this point. So chances are, most of the teenagers watching this skit were probably like, what the fuck is going on and why is this happening? Beaver cleavage. Sal, do you remember seeing these skits back in the day and did you understand the Leave It to Beaver references at the time? I mean, I did, because I knew about Leave it to Beaver. I don't think I ever watched an episode, but I knew that it existed as a TV show. The problem is they have to wait 36 years, because otherwise, otherwise they'll get sued by the Leave it to Beaver studio. Yeah. Now, two things about this. Number one, well, actually, let, let's, because I'm not going to be on next episode, so let me give you my overall thoughts about this gimmick. This was sure. retarded. Sorry for anybody that, you know, doesn't like that word. This was Kane. 
Okay. Very, we'll very it, PC. Very PC. We'll call it, this was a cane. All right. So this was never going to work or be anything more than a comedy shtick. And it actually got like, you know, like vignettes like building up to it. Like, I don't get what the point of it is. Like you said, is it an incest angle? Is it just like a tongue in cheek? Like, haha, we can say Harry Beaver on TV. <laughs> yes, pretty, pretty much. Yes. Um, and Mosh looks dumb, or sma- oh, not Smash, that's Demolition. Uh, yeah, Mosh, you're right. Mosh. Yeah, Mosh. yeah, he just looks dumb. He just looks like a really dumb guy doing absolutely anything to keep a job in the WWF. <laughs> yep, that's that's about right. Now, the cereal that said shredded wheat, Henry, I am very disappointed that you did not notice this. They folded the box top over to avoid having to pay royalties, but that was 100% a stop and shop box. Oh, really? Yep, go back and look. It says the word shop, and you can tell it's their old logo. Beautiful. And for anybody unaware, Stop Stop and Shop is a very uh, popular grocery chain in the New England area. Obviously, well, in this episode. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't know if they filmed it in Connecticut, but they probably did, actually. Second of all, I don't know who this woman is, but she's got muscles. She is. She's very buff, yeah. So I And I don't know if I ever find out who this woman is. Yeah, she is. um, I believe she's a former bodybuilder so she comes from that background i think she might have been a worker too but i know for sure when i was researching this she did do competitive bodybuilding so i know her her real name is mariana something because eventually eventually they she she does segue into a bit of a different role uh with mosh or with his real name i should say we'll get there in a couple months but yeah this is what they do it's kind of funny because what they go after the beaver cleavage gimmick, uh, spoiler alert, dies out, they go an even worse route with Mosh and Mariana. So we'll we'll get there down the line. But yes, it's it's not good times ahead for Chaz Warrington, if you will. Wonderful. So can't, looking yeah. forward to that. But, I'm surprised uh, you don't remember this because it was kind of an infamous angle as well. But uh, but we'll get there in due time, I suppose. We'll get there. Um, yeah, you know, I, this is how we're introducing new characters at this point. I just... I mean, the last new character they introduced was a homeless guy walking around the subway going, you don't know me. You'll never know me. Like, <laughs> so I guess they just they don't, haven't really found their niche of how to introduce new gimmicks right now. For a second, like when you first said a homeless guy walking around a subway, I was picturing the sandwich restaurant. So I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Took me a second there before I realized you meant the actual subway. Yes. So from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is a non-title match. WWF Intercontinental Champion The Godfather, accompanied by five hoes, one of whom is actually holding his IC title, versus Jeff Jarrett, who is, of course, accompanied by Deborah. But right off the bat, the WWF completely confuses me, because we're told it's a non-title match, but then they put the graphic on the screen that says it is for the title, which Jim Ross immediately corrects by saying that it isn't for the belt. However... Jeff Jarrett then grabs a microphone and confirms the match is non-title, but he challenges Godfather to put the belt on the line, so now the match is for the belt after all. Got all that? Because Jesus Christ, with all this disorganization, for a second there, I thought I had accidentally switched over to Nitro. But no, (laughs) not the case. But the Godfather does add one important stipulation here. If Jarrett wins, naturally he gets the Intercontinental title, but if Godfather wins, Deborah has to join the hoe train, and holy shit, when he says that, the fans pretty much jump out of their seats with excitement. For some reason, they absolutely love the idea of Deborah being a hoe. All right, then. 
And so our intercontinental title match is underway, but only about a minute into it, Val Venus emerges from backstage and starts hitting on Deborah at ringside. And when he does that, Nicole Bass then also emerges from backstage, and she proceeds to get in Deborah's face, presumably because she wants Val all to herself. And while that's going on, Val takes that opportunity to run right back up the ramp again. Meanwhile, back in the ring, all of these festivities have distracted Jeff Jarrett, so the Godfather rolls him up from behind, and referee Teddy Long counts the one, the two, and the three, so your winner and still WWF Intercontinental Champion, the Godfather. And so, as per the pre-match announcement, Deborah must become a member of the Ho Train. And it appears as though Deborah is actually willing to honor the stipulation, but before she can enter the ring to join the Godfather, Owen Hart emerges from backstage and grabs her by the hand. Owen and Jarrett then head off backstage with Deborah, but the Godfather doesn't seem to mind, so he just starts dancing with the hoes. So Sal, what did you think of the Godfather versus Jeff Jarrett in our non-title title match? How they got to a title match was very stroke-inducing. <laughs> and to be quite honest, I should have fucking known, because the whole crowd pops when Godfather wins, thinking that they'll see Deborah become part of the hoe train, and instead... Much like the week before, when she promised she was going to take her top off and show the crowd her puppies, this time it's Owen that comes down and prevents her from actually doing it, so once again we get promised something that we don't get. Shocking! Yeah. I love, too, that the crowd pops huge. Like, Godfather is the baby face, and he wins, and it's like, yeah, woo, Deborah's being forced into a life of sexual slavery, woo! Yeah, and not only that, oh, wow, we get to see Deborah in scantily clad outfits. Really? Which don't, we already get to don't see. Don't we always get to see Deborah in scantily clad outfits? Especially at the pay-per-views. Right. So, and to, to be fair, I'm glad Godfather didn't care, because what does he care? He's got, he ain't chasing no hoe. He's the pimp. <laughs> he ain't chasing no hoe. So That's true. Uh, it just makes Jarrett look just stupid. You you challenged him. You ran your mouth. You, you won the belt in line. And guess what? You couldn't fucking do anything. So, And we actually do get a little bit of a follow-up on this on SmackDown. So even though Deborah has escaped for one night, we'll see how it turns out on the SmackDown pilot. So tune in for that. So once that match concludes, we once again cut to Vince McMahon, who is still standing at the loading dock of the hotel, waiting for The Undertaker. Now remember, in that phone call Taker made to Vince, he said he would meet him at 10 o'clock p.m., but this episode of Raw has now gone well past 10 o'clock at this point, so maybe Taker needs a new watch. And after a commercial break... I suppose it wasn't enough to introduce Beaver Cleavage tonight, because we're now also introducing yet another, uh, interesting gimmick on Raw. So let's take a listen. It's Could he be any sexier? Ooh, could he be any hotter? Mm. Could he be any harder? You know, Jackie, I remember a time when we didn't need men. We were doing just fine, all by ourselves. And what happened? Along came this gorgeous slab of 100% USDA prime meat. And you can rest assured that this meat isn't done until you ladies are completely, and I mean completely, satisfied. 
Okay, so what you just heard there was Terry Runnels and Jacqueline basically feeling up a new young wrestler who they have apparently christened with the name Meat, as in he's just there to be used as a piece of meat, presumably for their sexual needs. Oh, and speaking of sexual, no, I have no idea why Mark Henry's sexual chocolate theme song is playing in the background. I actually went back and read some old recaps from 99 just to make sure this wasn't a WWE Network dub, and indeed, it was not. They really did play the sexual chocolate theme song on the original broadcast, so your guess is as good as mine on that one. Now, just for the record, this is not the official first appearance of Meat. He did appear on Sunday Night Heat one week ago, so yes, there was Meat on Heat. And in case you're wondering who Meat is, he's actually played by Sean Stasiak, the son of WWE Hall of Famer Stan the Man Stasiak. And I can only imagine what Stan the Man's reaction was when his son told him he would be debuting in the same company where he won the WWWF title back in 1973. Dad, I'm going to be debuting in the WWF tonight. What's that? Uh, no, I'm not main eventing yet, but I am portraying a living sex toy for a group called PMS. And that was probably the last time they ever spoke. So, Sal, did you have any fond memories of meat? No. (laughs) (laughs) Simple and to the point. Okay, when I first signed on to do this block of episodes, I was completely unaware of the things that would be portrayed on this night's raw Mm. so much so (laughs) that and i admittedly am a regular listener to the raw attitude podcast i appreciate your listenership so when i first saw this segment i said you're you're not serious i haven't seen jackie and terry on raw in what two months at this point (laughs) yeah just about actually and now we're just gonna be like now they have a man toy his name is Meat. Yep. What? And where where exactly does Meat fit in the landscape of the WWF these days? Because it seems like a gimmick just bred for Sunday Night Heat and Shotgun Saturday Night. Sunday Night Meat. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem like this guy's ever going to get time on Raw. I mean, isn't he just like a... A more clean-shaven Val Venus, kind of? Yeah, kind of. That, that's actually a pretty fair analogy, because his only role is to be a sex toy for PMS. So, right. yeah, and if they're gonna much. pick, And if they're going to pick a guy to be their their meat, obviously the guy's got to have some meat. I mean, he's got to be probably rivaling the big Valboski, I would imagine, so... Well, spoiler alert, we do get one angle where he has a boner, so, I mean, oh, there's, there's that. <laughs> that might be on heat, I don't remember, but we definitely, uh... We, we definitely do get a boner angle with, with meat sometime in the future. The meat looks to skeet on heat? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's right. <laughs> Whipping out the meat missile. Oh, God. So we then go back into the arena for our next match. Ken Shamrock with his baseball bat versus Ministry of Darkness member Bradshaw. Now, Shamrock, by the way, is wearing a long sleeve shirt and jean shorts, so he's certainly not dressed to wrestle. And fittingly enough, before he can even get to the ring... Farouk jumps him from behind, and by the way, Farouk is dressed in a black shirt with leather pants, so what is this, fucking casual Monday or something? But anyway, we end up getting no match whatsoever, as the Acolytes team up to beat the shit out of Shamrock, until Test runs down to the ring and makes the save, helping Shamrock fend off Bradshaw and Farouk. 
And amusingly, once the Acolytes have left the ringside area, Shamrock still feels the need to dial up the crazy as he grabs the baseball bat and swings it at the referee. Then he exits the ring and starts smacking the timekeeper's table and the ring bell with the bat. Now, I don't remember Shamrock using a baseball bat as a weapon for a prolonged period of time, but frankly, I need more of that shit. (laughs) Shamrock was already insane enough on his own, but when you throw a baseball bat into the equation, even better. But anyway, the big takeaway here is that Test, who has been beaten down by the boss man earlier, is now seemingly aligning himself with Shamrock, a man who left the corporation two weeks ago. So perhaps we have an alliance forming here? I suppose time will tell. But Sal, did you have any thoughts on this Shamrock-Bradshaw non-match? Why the fuck didn't Shamrock thank Test after the match? Very ungrateful. He literally just was like, yeah, I don't give a fuck about you. I'm going to grab this bat and go crazy on the outside. And Tess Pretty was much. like, dude, I helped you. Like, hello, a thank you would be nice? So so what you're saying is you want those two guys to form some sort of union? Hmm. You said it, not me. <laughs> yes. Coming soon, one week from this episode of Raw. But yes, there was really nothing here. It was just, it was, again, pretty much just angle advancement. But uh, we do get a little bit more of Shamrock and his bat a little later on tonight. So we'll, we'll touch on that. But so, after a commercial break, we head back into the arena where it is now time for our main event of the evening. The Rock versus Shane McMahon, who is wearing one of The Rock's football jerseys, but he has added a C to it so that it now says The Croc, and instead of the number one on the back, he's crossed it out so that it says number two. I always loved it when Shane would alter his opponent's merchandise to mock them. Great stuff. Maybe he should do that these days during one of his 400 weekly appearances on Raw and SmackDown. And surprisingly, Shane actually comes out for this match by himself, and when the bell rings, he really does try to go one-on-one with the Great One, with predictably poor results for Shane, as Rock easily gets the better of him with punches and a clothesline. But then, with Rock putting the boots to Shane in one of the corners... Rodney and Pete Gass run out from backstage and enter the ring, and they both receive rock bottoms for their troubles. And surprisingly, referee Earl Hebner does not call for the bell, but maybe that's because the Mean Street Posse didn't actually get in any offense on the rock. But once the posse exits the ring, Rock also nails Shane with a rock bottom as well. He then sets up Shane for the people's elbow. And actually, Sal, this is an interesting touch I realized recently. So in the past few weeks, as Rock has been getting closer and closer to becoming a babyface, when he takes off the elbow pad, he's now throwing it into the crowd instead of just dropping it on top of his opponent. So a little little bit of a subtle character change, but it makes a lot of sense that he now wants to give the fans a souvenir instead of just throwing it down to the ground. Yeah. However, before Rock can hit the elbow... Triple H runs out from the crowd and ambushes him from behind, which also does not result in a disqualification. Although at this point, I think we can safely assume the match is at least a no contest, but the bell just never rings. Well, it doesn't work anymore because the Shamrock hit it with a fucking bat. That's actually a fair point. I hadn't thought of that. So Rock starts fighting back against Triple H, but China emerges from backstage and nails Rock from behind, which enables Hunter to hit Rock with a pedigree. And then, in what I thought was a very nice touch, several additional referees run out from backstage to try and intervene, but the refs are actually held back by Shane and the Mean Street Posse, while Hunter and China continue their assault of The Rock. Good stuff. And by the way, at this point, we're getting massive, rocky chants from the crowd, so hey, face turn fully accomplished. Tip of the cap to Vince Russo for how he played that one. 
And finally, after beating on Rock for a while, the corporation all head backstage together, but not before Shane triumphantly holds up Triple H's arm in the air. And so, it certainly appears as though we're building toward a feud between The Rock and Triple H, which, if you ask me, has no chance at ever drawing money. So, Sal, what what do you think of this match and these subsequent shenanigans? Oh, I should have known. Um, I was wondering what Shane was going to do, and within 30 seconds, here comes the Mean Street Posse. And even though Rock easily dispatched them, then comes Triple H, because Triple H is being positioned as the new face of the corporation, I guess you could call it. So, it was, you know, a advertised match with a no-contest finish. Tell me if you've heard that one before in the Attitude Era. Very often. In fairness, though, WCW is also doing that a lot at this point, too. Not saying they're not. <laughs> But yeah, I was actually surprised that Shane actually did try to go toe-to-toe with The Rock for a bit, because I assumed that like the match was just going to be like, Shane gets in the ring and then immediately like rolls out and stalls, and then the corporation just runs in. But no, he actually, he got some offense in, surprisingly. He well, he didn't get any offense in, yeah. <laughs> he tried, yeah, that's a good point. He, he tried to get some offense in, but he didn't even land a punch. Rock just kicked his ass, which made it all the more surprising, like I said, because you would think Shane wouldn't want to get his ass kicked. But, and, and going in there with The Rock, he should probably know that's what's going to happen. But but no, it's all all The Rock. But then we do get that interference, so probably to be expected. Right. And so once that match concludes, we once again cut to Vince McMahon, who is still waiting in the loading dock of the hotel. But at this point, he grabs his briefcase and walks off, apparently giving up on waiting for The Undertaker. But then we cut back to the backstage area of the arena where, as it turns out, the Undertaker and the Ministry have been keeping Stephanie in the building the entire time. Swerve, bro! Apparently, Taker fooled Vince into leaving the arena so that he could have Stephanie all to himself. And what we see backstage here is actually a bit creepy as the Acolytes drag Stephanie around by her arms as she screams in protest and asks for the Ministry to let her go. But to no avail, as the entire ministry then begins walking toward the arena, and so we cut to commercial. And when we come back from break, we go back inside the arena, and, well, obviously I was expecting to see the ministry, but no, it's actually, of all people, X-Pac heading down to the ring. Apparently, (laughs) yeah. Apparently he's still pissed off about Kane choke-slamming him onto the concrete earlier tonight, which, by the way, shouldn't X-Pac be pretty much dead after that spot. Instead, he's been running around the arena all fucking night, but no, he takes a chokeslam on concrete, and apparently he's totally fine, but okay, sure. So Pac says he doesn't know if Kane is with him or against him, but he's calling out his, quote, big red ass right now. So X-Pac waits in the ring, but instead of Kane, Owen Hart and Jeff Jarrett jump him from behind. The former tag team champions are putting the boots to him for a while until the lights go out. And yes, as you might expect, the still-covered-in-blood Kane emerges from backstage. And apparently, Owen and Jarrett must have thought that Kane was on their side because they just keep beating on X-Pac until Kane enters the ring and proceeds to single-handedly take out both of them, culminating with a choke slam to Jarrett. X-Pac then gets in Kane's face and yells, What's your goddamn problem, man? Followed by a shove to Kane's chest. And, well, that proves to be a mistake, because Kane then chokeslams X-Pac yet again. And by the way, Sal, at this point, you can tell that X-Pac's popularity is starting to die down a bit more, because after he eats that chokeslam, you can hear a collection of fans chant, one more time. So yes, we're definitely beginning to enter the X-Pac heat phase, folks. 
Gee, I wonder why. However, though, instead of chokeslamming Pac one more time, Kane actually rolls out of the ring and then picks up X-Pac, and he then walks backstage with him. So yes, it certainly appears as though Kane was actually experiencing remorse for his actions, so perhaps he actually does care about his tag team partner after all. Uh, also, Sal, I have one quick side note here before we wrap up. Since Kane was still covered in blood from the bloodbath earlier, when he picked up X-Pac, some of the blood rubbed off on Pac's tights, including one bloody mark right on X-Pac's ass. <laughs> and now I couldn't help but think of what a fitting bit of foreshadowing that is, because as you may be aware, X-Pac does eventually end up tearing his asshole when attempting a Bronco Buster in 2013, so it may have taken 14 years, but that bloody asshole prophecy did indeed end up coming true. But that's neither here nor there, I suppose. But what did you think of this segment with X-Pac and Kane? Okay, just like you said, I was fully expecting to come back from the quote-unquote commercial break to the Ministry coming out to the ring. And instead, here comes X-Pac. Like, really? We gotta fucking tie this now? You can't just hold <laughs> yeah, this off till heat or even SmackDown? You gotta fucking do it now. Okay, so I'm already not interested. Because I just want to get to to the main segment with, with the Ministry. And, and I'm talking even as a fan in 1999. We need to see what's gonna happen with Stephanie. That's the whole reason we're watching this episode. That's the story. That's the thread throughout the episode. Right. So you stick this in here at, like, whatever it was, 1045. So everybody's like, just come on, hurry up, get to fucking Stephanie. And then to be fair, X-Pac pushed Kane first. True. He, he fucking shoved him for no fucking reason. So I don't blame Kane for responding with a chokeslam. Although, if you listen to the commentary, are they trying to, like, show Kane in the light of being on the spectrum? Is that what they're trying to do? Like, he doesn't get it. Like, he doesn't... Like, he's like a rabid animal. Like, he just, if somebody attacks him, he's going to attack him back. Like, he has no, like, is that what they're trying to do? If Jerry Lawler was on commentary tonight, I'm sure he would certainly be playing that up. Because he always talks about, like, how Kane's an idiot, basically. But even even Jim uh, uh, Jim Ross was like, he doesn't understand. All all he sees is, is, is that somebody physically, uh, you know, hit him or something. And he's responding as an animal would. And I'm like, so he's a... Re okay, yeah, that's the thing. That's the, the gimmick, right? A big red retard? That's that's what we're going with here? Well, they certainly do play that up every time he comes out. I think what they've, what they've essentially portrayed him as is basically since the, the accident that burned him up in the fire, it's like, oh, Kane is just now like an unfeeling monster who doesn't give a shit. But but maybe he does because we did see him show remorse for his actions. So right. So perhaps they, they, he's, perhaps about, he's coming around. Talk about uh, sending mixed signals to your audience. We watch Kane chokeslam him, and then he picks him up and carries him backstage. So we're all thinking... So is he mad at X-Pac, or he's not mad at him anymore? <laughs> yeah, very conflicted. Right. And so once Kane carries X-Pac backstage, the lights go out, and yes, the Undertaker's music plays, so it is time for our final segment of the evening. However, before the Undertaker arrives, we see the Acolytes, Midian, and Viscera, and they're carrying an Undertaker symbol to the ring with Stephanie McMahon strapped onto it. Not only that, but we can also see they've dressed Stephanie in some sort of black robe to make this whole thing look even creepier, so that's actually a pretty nice touch. Also, when the Ministry is carrying Stephanie to the ring, we actually get a really cool overhead camera shot as they carry her down the ramp, and it's just a fantastic visual. If that was Kevin Dunn's idea, props to him, because I thought it looked great. 
And by the way, while the ministry is carrying Stephanie on the symbol, she's screaming at the top of her lungs and yelling, please let me go. And I have to say, even 20 years later, Sal, I thought this was a really disturbing scene, mainly because this is still a young, fresh-faced Stephanie McMahon who we don't know very well up to this point. So far, we pretty much just know her as Vince's innocent daughter who has, for some reason, been targeted by The Undertaker for several months now. And to Stephanie's credit, I think she knocks it out of the park in her role here because she's strapped to the symbol, so she's not able to move, which means she has to use her face to convey all the emotion here. And she really does look scared as fuck, as really any of us probably would be. So yes, I will give huge props to Stephanie McMahon. Yeah, that's what I got from it is that um, her acting in this was on point. Her, her expressions in her face, the, 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 the despair that she showed for somebody who never, you know, acted or isn't used to being on camera. She did a great job here. Absolutely. So there you, so we're, we're unanimous in that then. We're both going to give huge props to Stephanie for this segment then. Yes. There you go. Not, not the popular thing to do these days, but I would say at this point in 99 for this segment, great, great stuff by Stephanie. Great stuff. Yeah, like I said, for somebody who has no experience, she did a great job. Absolutely. So anyway, the Ministry slides the symbol into the ring, and they then proceed to prop it up against the ring ropes. And shortly after that, The Undertaker and Paul Bearer enter the ring, so let's pick it up from there. She's scared. She's scared to death. I must address the McMahon family. I am not to blame for what is about to happen here. Vince, this rests upon your shoulders because you did not live up to your end of the agreement. And Steve Austin, well, I guess he just showed his true colors as well. Paul. Let the ceremony begin. Vince tried to live up to the, the agreement. He wasn't there. Poor Stephanie, this is, this is so sickening. What a demonic human being. What kind of ceremony? I have no idea. Trapped him before he had a chance to use that belt, that bad boy. 
through the line of defense. The Big Show is swinging. The Big Show is destroying whatever. Oh, God. Oh. Undertaker just shot that baseball bat. Undertaker just hit the Big Show with a ball bat. And they're on him now. They're on him. So yes, as you heard there, we very quickly realize what The Undertaker's intentions are tonight. He's holding a ceremony so he can marry Stephanie McMahon. And as you heard there, Paul Bearer is officiating the ceremony for a little while until Ken Shamrock tries to interfere, bringing his baseball bat with him. However, the Acolytes manage to tackle him and hold him down, which enables Viscera to splash him, incapacitating Shamrock. We then cut backstage where Shane McMahon is holding back the corporation for some reason while telling them, if it gets bad, we'll make our move. Which makes me think, how is this not already bad? Your goddamn sister is about to be forced to marry someone against her will, dude. How is that not bad? But uh, I digress. So the ceremony continues with the big show eventually trying to interfere, and he manages to take out a few of the ministry members. However, his momentum comes to a stop when The Undertaker picks up the baseball bat Ken Shamrock had left behind, and he smacks Big Show with it, knocking him out of the ring. With that distraction out of the way, Paul Bearer tells The Undertaker that he can now kiss his bride, which brings out Stone Cold Steve Austin, who then proceeds to clothesline Midian on the entrance ramp before getting in the ring and briefly mixing it up with The Undertaker himself. 
However, Midian enters the ring and Austin turns his attention back to him, which allows Taker to escape. And from there, Stone Cold pretty much single-handedly manages to take out the other members of the ministry with vicious, unprotected chair shots. And let me just say this. I know you could make the argument that it's unrealistic for Austin to take them all out by himself, but I don't give a shit because it's just too goddamn awesome. And also, both Jim Ross and Jim Cornette make a very important point here on commentary. Austin isn't doing this for Vince McMahon. He's doing it because it was just the right thing to do. He couldn't sit back and watch this happen to an innocent woman, so he came to her rescue. Perfect explanation. Totally makes sense. And once Austin takes out the ministry, he goes over to the symbol and unties Stephanie, and she then proceeds to gratefully hug Stone Cold. And once again, I have to say they play this perfectly, because Austin doesn't hug her back, he just kind of puts his arms up in the air, which I think was smart of them to do, because if he hugs her back, the fans might instinctively think, like, oh, are they going to do an Austin-Stephanie romance angle? Which would clearly be ill-advised. But no, instead Stone Cold just kind of puts his arms up, like, okay, all right, you're welcome. And then, before we finish, Vince McMahon runs down to the ring and hugs Stephanie, and while he's doing that, we get a shot of Vince looking towards Stone Cold and mouthing the words, Thank you. And that is how we go off the air. So, Sal, what did you think of The Black Wedding? Very iconic segment. And, again, full disclosure, when I when we had discussed me being on this series of episodes, I wasn't aware this happened at, on this date. So I kind of even lucked, better. I kind of lucked out there. I will say that the way they did it. So Shamrock slides in the ring, and the way he slides in, the, he immediately gets trapped, and and then Vicious splashes him. So that kind of makes sense taking him out. Big uh-huh. Show comes in, and then to tie it in, Shamrock left the bat in the ring, so Taker uses the bat on Big Show because Big Show was starting to clear the ring a little bit. Right. But the way they made Austin clear the ring was actually believable because here comes Austin with the with the steel chair and it wasn't like all the ministry jumped him at once they were still outside dealing with Big Show so Austin got the better of Midian and then based on his positioning in the ring here comes Bradshaw and Farouk you know steel chair shots for both of them it made sense it wasn't like five guys jumped Austin he just kicked all their ass you know what I mean right my only issue is and I kind of get it because he's a heel uh, while Austin is fighting Midian, you see a direct camera shot of Taker, and he just goes, "Well, I'm out of here." <laughs> yeah, right. He doesn't. He's he's right behind Austin. He could hit him. He just decides to leave. Yeah. What a bitch. I kind of like that though. I kind of like that though, just because they want to save the the Undertaker Austin like confrontation for a little bit later. So I'm I'm kind of okay with it from that perspective. Yes. And then obviously it was smart too because there was a huge pop when Austin came out and. Jim Ross and, and, and Cornette played it perfectly like, hey, he's not doing it because he likes Vince. He's doing it because it's the right thing to do. He's doing it for this innocent girl. She's obviously, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, my God, she throws her arms around Austin, which, again, that's exactly what she should do in character. Um, and I mm-hmm. thought Steve, like you said, played it great. He's not going to hug her back. He's just like, all right, yeah, okay. I will ask you this, Henry, because you said you recently attended uh, Money in the Bank at this very building. Is there a hotel attached to the building? Because how the fuck did Vince get down there that quick? <laughs> I don't believe there was a hotel attached to that building, no. Okay, also... Might, maybe maybe one nearby, but I'm not sure. Also, second note, just to go back to the beginning of the segment, as you mentioned, his sister is getting married to the Lord of Darkness. Against her will. And 
the future husband of Stephanie McMahon, the real-life future husband of Stephanie McMahon, wants to do something about it. The boss man wants to do something about it. All of the corporation want to do something about it. And Shane goes, no, 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 no. If it gets bad, we'll go down there. Right. You mean like Texas Chainsaw Massacre bad? Like, what do you mean right. if it gets bad? If he takes out the knife to make her drink his blood like he did with Midian, then we'll then go. We'll, but only we'll then we'll think about it. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, it was a great segment and a great way to end Raw. Indeed. And we do get somewhat of an explanation. I'd say more than somewhat of an explanation on the pilot episode of SmackDown. We do kind of find out why Shane McMahon pulled back the reins on the corporation and and didn't have them interfere. Uh, And Sal, I'm sure you can probably guess what moment that is, but... But we'll get to that. I'll get to that when I do my uh, when I do the SmackDown pilot in just a bit. But so, would you say thumbs up for the Black Wedding? Uh, thumbs up for the whole Raw. This was a great Raw after a pay per view. We got some new characters, whether they were liked or not. We we did. We got some new storylines. Just because this is you know like I won't be appearing on the next couple episodes. I do want to mention that it seems like we're going with an Owen Hart and Jeff Jarrett versus Kane in, in X Pac feud. And that logically would have made a lot more sense than what Owen ends up doing at Over the Edge. But I'm just kind of throwing that out there. Like, we had a feud, so we didn't have to do something different with Owen at the next pay-per-view. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. But other Again, th- I say, for more on that, check out the SmackDown pilots. <laughs> but other than that, I thought this was a great follow-up to Backlash. Fantastic. Well, I obviously have some thoughts on the Black Wedding, too. I'm going to save them for when we get to the Raw synopsis. Is that all right, Sal? Because I do have quite a few things to say. Oh, absolutely. Okay, perfect. But before we get there, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Because yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they pluckin'. WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Now last week, Raw triumphed with a 6.11 rating to Nitro's 4.08, and surprisingly this week, both shows' ratings actually went down slightly, which I consider particularly strange, since the WWF was one night removed from a pay-per-view and delivered an amazing angle in its final segment. But regardless, Raw put up a massive 5.99, defeating Nitro's 3.89. So, Sal, would you like to know what was going on over on the TNT network while Raw was airing? Sure. Okay, well, here are the results from Nitro, live in, of all places, Fargo, North Dakota. And in case you're wondering, yes, this is the only episode of Nitro ever to take place in North Dakota. So, Conan defeated Brian Adams via disqualification. Scott Armstrong and Steve Armstrong defeated Raven in a handicap match. And in case you were wondering, yes, this is the same Scott Armstrong who later goes on to become the authority's crooked referee. Sting defeated Diamond Dallas Page to become the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion. And Sal, I know WCW doesn't have a lot of great moments left, but this match was absolutely one of them. A 20-minute classic in front of a super-hot Fargo crowd. And if you ever see those lists where people do, like, the, you know, best matches in the history of Nitro, this one is usually right up there. Wow. Page, maybe a diamond cutter will never know. Attempted a backslide in a low blow 
And then, Sal, in case one title change wasn't enough for you, in the very next match, Rey Mysterio defeats Psychosis to win the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. And then, continuing on, Bam Bam Bigelow defeats Eric Watts, who somehow still has a job in 1999. Booker T defeats Ming to retain his World Television Championship. Brian Nobbs defeats Hack, Horace Hogan, and Mikey Whipwreck. Scott Steiner defeats Randy Savage via disqualification to retain his United States Championship. And then, before I get to the main event, Sal, I want to mention something interesting that happened. So, after Sting beat DDP for the title, Kevin Nash came out and challenged Sting, DDP, and Goldberg to a four-way match for the championship tonight. And for some reason, despite just winning the belt, Sting accepted those terms, so that was your main event of the evening. And then, well, this happened. Yes, that's right. After Sting had just won the title earlier in the night, he put the belt on the line in a four-way match, and DDP just won the title right back, thanks to some nonsensical interference from the macho man Randy Savage. And I invite you to go back and listen to those two audio clips once again, because in that first one, the crowd completely came unglued when Sting won the belt, and then later on, when Paige wins it back, total silence. So WCW always sending him home miserable. Or, as the fans in Fargo likely said that night, so you're just going to have Sting win the title and then take it right off him two hours later? Who's booking that shit there, fella? <coughs> now, Sal, I'm not sure how big of a WCW fa- fan you were at the time, I should say, but did you happen to remember Sting and DDP trading the belt in the same night? No, so here's the problem. I was switching the channel between Nitro and Ross for probably 
I would say two and a half straight years, like 96, 97, and 98. But it started waning in 98, and then pretty much was done after the finger poke of doom. Fair. Very fair. Like, I might have caught some things here and there, but I really stopped caring. So you missed out on this classic uh, double title switch? Well, the first match sounds great. The fucking... It is. The second part of that, when they put the belt right back on DDP, is absolutely classic WCW for you. Yep, absolutely. So yes, definitely, if you get a chance, go back and watch that, that Sting-DDP match. Again, in Fargo of all places, the crowd was hot, Sting wins the belt, and just, just ignore the part where he loses it literally two hours later. But also, Sal, in addition to what was a pretty good night for in-ring action, WCW also had to leave a sour taste in the fans' mouths because this was also the show where Ric Flair spent the majority of it getting into crazy antics while he was locked up in a mental institution. And by the way, this is after they mentioned last week on Thunder that Flair was released from the institution, but then Nitro begins with Flair still locked up, so fantastic continuity. And for more on this, let's go to this week's excerpt from the book, The Death of WCW by R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez. Quote, While Flair quite literally danced around the hospital in his underwear with other insane inmates, J.J. Dillon announced that since he was vice president of the company, which was news to viewers, Charles Robinson would be the new acting president until Flair returned. For those who don't know the name Charles Robinson, he was a referee whose sole claim to power in WCW was apparently that he was a big Ric Flair fan who had bleached his hair blonde like the Nature Boy. Roddy Piper and Robinson then had an in-ring confrontation that ended in Piper being arrested. And then quickly continuing on in the passage, the authors mention one more little note from Flair's stay in the mental institution. Quote, Flair then ran into Scott Hall, who, as you might recall, had been off TV for some time. It was never explained why Hall was in the mental hospital, and his appearance was never acknowledged by the announcers. Apparently, someone just thought it would be funny to put him on TV for a cameo, not understanding that when wrestling fans see something happening on TV, they automatically and often foolishly, especially in WCW's case, assume there is a reason behind its occurrence. End quote. Yeah, so there you have it, Sal. Does that sound like an episode of Nitro you would have wanted to watch? You had me with the Sting fucking DDP match, man. <laughs> and then I lost you with Flair in the nuthouse. Just like WCW absolutely lost me. Pulled the rug right out. And of course, there's some writer thinking like, oh, yeah, alcoholism, mental issues, same thing, right? Yeah, right, right, exactly, yeah. God damn. Okay, yeah. I'm glad I didn't watch Nitro that night. Yeah, yeah, probably, probably the right call. And on that note, let's take it to the raw synopsis. So Sal, as promised... Here are my thoughts on the Black Wedding, and I hope you're sitting down. I think this is one of the greatest moments in Monday Night Night Raw history, and I'm going to tell you why. Two words, perfect booking, and I'll explain what I mean. So for the past two months, The Undertaker has either been hinting at going after Stephanie outright or talking about it. So remember back in February, they were doing the angles where Taker gave the envelope to Shane, and he set Stephanie's teddy bear on fire, but we didn't know what any of that meant at the time, and eventually, obviously, they actually did incorporate Stephanie into the angle, so then we knew for sure that this was who The Undertaker was referencing. And then you add the stone-cold Vince McMahon rivalry into the equation. Now remember, WrestleMania 15 ended with Steve Austin beating Vince's ass and putting one foot on his chest while he raised the WWF title in the air, and the night after on Raw, Vince smacked Stone Cold in the face with the belt. So if you had told me just one month later that they'd be doing an angle where Austin helps out Vince 
I would have said that there would be no way that it would have made any sense, and yet it does. Why? Because in that interim period between WrestleMania and Backlash, we also get that moment where Shane took over the corporation from his father. And again, this made perfect sense. Vince didn't care about the corporation because he was so preoccupied with The Undertaker trying to get Stephanie that Shane felt like he had to assume leadership over the corporation himself. However, Shane took it a bit too far by slapping Vince in the face and telling him that he wasn't even his father anymore, and that directly led into the angle last night at Backlash, where Vince was willing to knock out Shane and help Stone Cold retain his title. So literally, all these angles were combined together leading up to the Black Wedding, and when they got there, it all made perfect sense from a booking perspective. Stone Cold came to Stephanie McMahon's rescue, not because he's best friends with Vince, although certainly there's a bit of softening there, it would seem, but he did it because it was just the right thing to do. Everyone in the angle played their part masterfully, and all of the dots were connected perfectly. So Vince Russo, for one night, I'm going to go ahead and say it, you pulled off something which was pure genius. That's my take. And I stand by it. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, this was the angle that caused me to tweet at Vince Russo, which resulted in him following me on Twitter. So yes, as Vince McMahon might say, this was such good shit. Now, Sal, will you back me up on this one? Or have I gone so insane that I should be institutionalized alongside Ric Flair? No, you're, you're not insane. And, and there's a lot of valid points you bring up. I specifically remember this moment. In 1999. That's what we talk about with the WWF, especially with uh, longtime fans, is the moments. And this was a moment, as much as it tied in the storyline between The Undertaker and Vince and Stephanie, what I thought this was, was that this was a moment that it kind of, obviously Austin was super over for the past two years, but it tied in Austin's number one spot in the company and pretty much as the number one baby face in wrestling and no matter in what company at this point when he came out there to help an innocent girl from a black wedding it just worked it worked the crowd loved it everybody loved it big huge pop for austin coming out and the way they got there for once actually made sense and i do like the fact that it wasn't just the cookie cutter like well, shucks, Vince, you asked me to help you, so yeah, darn, I guess I'm going to help you then. No, we actually right. had a, a, the characters struggle with this as the night went on. You know, Austin essentially not giving a damn, but still kind of keeping an eye on everything. And then after Shamrock comes out and Big Show comes out and neither of them are able to, to, to help the situation, you know, Austin does finally come out and he clears the ring. And it was such a great moment, such a great moment. So if we take this and just encapsulate it from the end of WrestleMania 15 to this night, this was told very well. And actually, on that note, I mean, earlier in the show, you have Stone Cold telling Vince to, to kiss his ass, and the fans are like, yeah, fuck Vince. And yet, by the time this angle rolls around because of the backstage work they did with, you know, Austin talking to Big Show and Austin walking by the monitor, the, the fans are chanting Austin because they want Stone Cold to come in and yes. fuck up the Undertaker, yep. so... They did. They do. They do a great job. They do a great job of of taking the fans on that ride. Where okay, you know what? We want Austin to help her. This girl doesn't deserve this. Uh, the Undertaker's sick. He's sadistic. He's they got fat Paul Bear there, like reading uh, this girl fucking marriage proposal. Like somebody, please help this girl. And when when Shamrock and Big Show, to their credit, they tried. But when they can't, the only one left is the WWF champion. 
And one underrated moment I like about it, too, is so Paul Bear has that line where he's like, you may now kiss your bride. And Jim Ross on commentary, this wasn't obviously planned, but he, his commentary times it perfectly because he's like, oh, for God's sake. And then Austin's music hits. Yeah, as he's saying sake, the glass breaks and he goes, sake. Yes. So another another little touch that just made this completely perfect. Obviously, I give this episode of Raw a huge thumbs up, not just for the the opening segment, but also because, quite frankly, so even the segments that were bad, like the uh, debut of Meat and the debut of Beaver Cleavage, were are also enjoyable from a retroactive perspective. To be like, wow, that was really that was really fucking dumb. Yeah, so, I mean, like yes. I said, they're trying stuff on this episode with that. There are obviously some subplots. You got The Rock making a babyface turn in a natural way. It wasn't like it came out of nowhere. It didn't seem forced. Uh, you still got Shane being a complete fucking asshole. You're trying to make the big show a, good, a, a big star. Mankind's still there getting huge pops. It's a great episode in this time period. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. You get the Black Wedding and a, and The Rock's face turn on the same show. What more do you need? What more do you need? Go go watch this fucking episode of Raw, for Christ's sakes. And before we finish up here, Sal, I just have a few notes from this week's edition of The Wrestling Observer. I know you have to go tape the rundown, so I'll go through this quite quickly for you. So this week, Dave Meltzer does a pretty in-depth obituary for Rick Rude, which he's quite good at, if I do say so. And actually, he has some pretty interesting notes about Rude's last days. So for starters, despite his Lloyds of London insurance policy, Rude was actually planning on making a comeback to the ring, which Eric Bischoff had no interest in. Rude was trying to get out of his WCW contract for several months so he could go to the WWF, but Bischoff wouldn't let him do it. And apparently, when Bischoff showed up for Rick Rude's funeral... Rude's mother asked him to leave, which Bischoff did. So once again, Eric Bischoff, not the most popular guy in the wrestling business at the time. And speaking of which, the British Bulldog Davy Boy Smith has finally been released from the hospital after several weeks, although he is in a full body cast. According to Meltzer, despite his recent health problems, Davy Boy is still looking to return to the ring at some point, and huh, I wonder if that'll ever happen. Huh, I guess we'll see. Also, WCW is now apparently offering incentive plans with bonus money in order to get more of their top guys to work house shows. So around this time, most of the top WCW guys are not working house shows at all, while by contrast, the big stars in the WWF like Austin and Rock are almost always on house shows. So go figure as to why the attendance is up for one and not for another. Vince McMahon this week wrote a letter to the magazine Entertainment Weekly because in their previous issue, they did a piece on the growth of popularity in professional wrestling, but they put Goldberg on the cover. Yikes. Yeah, so Vince's letter said that someone from the WWF should have been on the cover because they're the only wrestling company which is actually experiencing growth at this point. And he also took EW to task for not specifying that their parent company owns WCW, which is probably why they put Goldberg on the cover. So yes, Vince McMahon at this point could be quite the petty bitch. And finally, I had to pull an interesting quote from Meltzer here, Sal, because I think you'll find it funny. Quote, Whenever Triple H is put in a position where he's supposed to have a good match to make himself the star they've been grooming him to be from day one, he usually comes up short. And honestly, after that backlash match, I can't say I disagree with him, but don't worry, I think he'll end up just fine. And so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. So as always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at Raw Attitude Pod. 
or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or just leave a five-star rating without writing a review because that's very helpful too. Now, before we wrap up here, Sal, would you care to remind the listeners where they can find you outside of this fine podcast? Absolutely. So I am on the Rundown Wrestling Network, which is a whole network of wrestling shows. I currently host two of my own shows, WrestleMania Salvation, where I chronologically go through every WrestleMania, and TakeOver Salvation, which is a new show where I'm starting to review NXT TakeOvers. Uh, you can follow me at WrestleMania Sal, and check out the Rundown Wrestling Network at rundownwrestling.com. Fantastic. And as always, as you know, as is the custom here on the Raw Attitude Podcast, Sal, as the guest co-host, I will allow you to pick the audio clip which you would like me to put at the end of this episode. Now, you already sent it to me, but would you like to specify for the listeners what you have chosen? I have, I have sent it to you already, although, uh, given the main event segment of Raw, maybe I should have you play... Uh, the Billy Idol song, Nice Day for a White Wedding. Yeah, for a black wedding. For a black wedding. But this audio clip comes from the year of 2003. The Rock has had his face turn, and he will remain a face for the remainder of the Attitude Era. It is not until 2003 that The Rock turns heel again, but yet at that point he's so charismatic and so good that even as a heel... He is absolutely, fantastically entertaining. And tonight, I offer you a clip of that very time period. I love it. I love how it's coming full circle. Like, The Rock turns face, and you're like, well, but here, since we're not going to get The Rock being a face anymore on this timeline, here's a good moment from when he was a heel. I love it. I think that's that's a perfect tie-in. So there you have it. Once again, a big thank you to Sal for coming on the show. Perhaps we can uh, do it again some other time? Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much, Henry. I think... I might have you on for a future uh, WrestleMania Salvation episode, possibly the next one. I believe so. I believe so. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, if you ever want to come on again, I can't promise that you know we'll have a, sh- a segment as good as the Black Wedding. But still, I-, I welcome you to come on. I don't know. I seem to always find these uh, these iconic moments. That's true. Yeah, it's true. So you never know. We'll see. But yes, yeah, so everyone, enjoy Sal's clip, and I will catch you next time. Let the rock remind you of something. Let the rock remind you of something. You ain't nothing. You ain't nothing. You ain't no superhero. Not like the Scorpion King. You're a hundred pounds of nothing. Five feet nothing. Oh, excuse the rock one second. Excuse the rock. His cell phone's going off. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Cacao, hello. Hey, it's nothing. He says he knows you. You're nothing. Ah, don't laugh at the rock's jokes. Does you nothing? You and hey, as a superhero, <laughs> you've got braces. You've got braces. What? What are you? You're the president of student council. Is that what you're gonna do? What are you gonna? You're gonna go sell band candy after the show? <laughs> Get your little hamburger, green monkey ass other. Before you leave, before you leave, before you go fly out and you do all that uh, unrealistic crap, I want to remind you of something. The Rock, when he threw you over the top rope, he was saying to you, he was screaming to you. He was screaming to you, he said, hey, the greatest line a superhero has ever said, the Scorpion King, he said, Haku Mashente Da. Haku Mashente Da. Do you remember that? Do you have any idea what that means? 
Do you have any idea? Do you, can you fathom how, how enormous that is? Do you know what Akumashente means? Well, apparently, from what I saw behind that curtain, it means the Scorpion King got a tiny ding a ling. I mean, there's a reason they call the rock the rock. Oh, yeah. Easy, big fella. 